Okay, good evening and welcome to the December 14th, 2022 hybrid meeting of the San Francisco Board of Appeals. President Rick Swig will be the presiding officer tonight and he is joined by Commissioner Alex Lemberg, Commissioner John Trezvina and Commissioner J.R. Epler. Vice President Jose Lopez will be absent this evening. Also present is Deputy City Attorney John Givner who will provide the board with any needed legal advice. At the controls is the board's legal assistant, Alec Longway, and I'm Julie Rosenberg, the board's executive director. We will also be joined by representatives from the city departments that will be presenting before the board this evening. Corey Teague, the zoning administrator representing the planning department, Matthew Green, acting chief building inspector with DBI, and Chris Buck, urban forester representing San Francisco Public Works, Bureau of Urban Forestry. The board meeting guidelines are as follows. The board requests that you turn off or silence all phones and other electronic devices so they will not disturb the proceedings. No eating or drinking in the hearing room. The rules of presentation are as follows. Appellants, permit holders, and department respondents each are given seven minutes to present their case and three minutes for a rebuttal. People affiliated with these parties must include their comments within these seven or three minute periods. Members of the public who are not affiliated with the parties have up to three minutes each to address the board and no rebuttal. Time may be limited to two minutes if the agenda is long or if there are a large number of speakers. Mr. Longway, our legal assistant, will give you a verbal warning 30 seconds before your time is up. Four votes are required to grant an appeal or to modify a permit or determination. If you have questions about requesting a rehearing, the board rules or hearing schedules, please email board staff at boardofappeals at sfgov.org. Now, public access and participation are of paramount importance to the board. SFGov TV is broadcasting and streaming this hearing live, and we will have the ability to receive public comment for each item on today's agenda. SFGov TV is also providing closed captioning for this meeting. To watch the hearing on TV, go to SFGov TV, cable channel 78. Please note that it will be rebroadcast on Fridays at 4 p.m. on channel 26. A link to the live stream is found on the homepage of our website at sfgov.org forward slash BOA. Now, public comment can be provided in three ways. One, in person. Two, via Zoom. Please go to our website and click on the Zoom link. Or three, by telephone. Call 1-669-900-6833 and enter webinar ID 819-9598-7054. SFGov TV is broadcasting and streaming the phone number and access instructions across the bottom of the screen if you're watching the live stream or broadcast. To block your phone number when calling in, first dial star six seven, then the phone number. Listen for the public comment portion for your item to be called and dial star nine, which is the equivalent of raising your hand so that we know you want to speak. You will be brought into the hearing when it is your turn. You may have to dial star six to unmute yourself. And you will have two or three minutes depending on the length of the agenda and volume of speakers. Our legal assistant will provide you with a verbal warning 30 seconds before your time is up. Please note that there is a delay between the live proceedings and what is broadcast and live streamed on TV and the internet. Therefore, it is very important that people calling in reduce or turn off the volume on their TVs or computers, otherwise there is interference with the meeting. If any of the participants or attendees on Zoom need a disability accommodation or technical assistance, you can make a request in the chat function to Alec Longway, the board's legal assistant, or send an email to boardofappeals at sfgov.org. Now, the chat function cannot be used to provide public comment or opinions. Please note that we will take public comment first from those members of the public who are physically present in the hearing room. Now, we will swear in or affirm all those who intend to testify. Please note that any member of the public may speak without taking an oath pursuant to their rights under the Sunshine Ordinance. If you intend to testify at any of tonight's proceedings and wish to have the board give your testimony evidentiary weight, raise your right hand and say, I do, after you've been sworn in or affirmed. Do you swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? 
Okay, thank you. If you are a participant and you're not speaking, please put your Zoom speaker on mute. And President Swig, given the length of the agenda, I recommend public comment be limited to two minutes. Do you concur? I agree. Okay, thank you. So, commissioners, we do have one housekeeping item. Uh, the parties for item 7A, B, and C, that, that's appeal numbers 22-078, 22-068, and 22-069 have come to an agreement, and they would like the board to grant the appeals and issue the permits on the condition that they be revised to require one, all work take place between the hours of 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, excluding holidays. Example, no work on weekends or holidays. Two, the permit holder and his contractors will use best efforts to do the work as quietly as feasible. For example, not playing loud music. And three, that the permit holder and his contractors will use fans to remove fumes during work hours when doing work that generates fumes. So they've come to this agreement and are requesting that you make uh, that motion. Somebody make a motion. I see Please. Commissioner Lundberg has uh, requested to speak. I, I so move uh, that we grant the appeals based on the conditions that I'm not going to reread. Okay, and I just need to check to see if there is any, uh, Commissioner Trezvina, did you want to, before I go to public comment? Uh, yes, if you could, uh, I, I know there was an email earlier today, but can you, just for the record, describe the way in which both parties have expressed to us their agreement and their recommendation for this action? Uh, the, I spoke to the appellant's attorney by phone. He sent me an email with the conditions, and I got confirmation from Brett Gladstone, the attorney for the permit holder, that he agreed to these conditions. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So is there any public comment on this item? Please raise your hand. Okay, I don't see any public comment. Uh, and so, on that, the, on that motion, Commissioner Trezvina? Aye. Commissioner Epler? Aye. President Swig? Aye. So that motion carries four to zero, and I want to note for the record that both parties agreed to waive their right to request a rehearing, which means we can issue the written decisions tomorrow. Okay, thank you. So that item, those items are concluded. We are now moving on to item Number one, which is general public comment. This is an opportunity for anyone who would like to speak on a matter within the board's jurisdiction, but that is not on tonight's calendar. Is there anyone here for general public comment? Please raise your hand. Okay. I don't see anyone here for general public comment, so we'll move on to item number two, commissioner comments and questions. Uh, commissioners, uh, before we... I, I ask you for any uh, comments and questions. I would like to take the floor and wish you all a very happy holiday, uh, regardless of what holiday you you celebrate. Um, most importantly, express my thanks for your participation on this panel. Uh, this is a volunteer panel, and um, uh, we sit up here three or four times a month and uh, give it our best, and I appreciate that you all have given your best uh, for the citizens uh, who we represent, and I look forward to next year. I also want to thank the, the public for their patience uh, for these proceedings. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's tough, uh, but we do our best, and I appreciate the public's participation and presence in these meetings and, uh, and their understandings with our, our verdicts, whether they go <coughs> one way or the other. also like to express my thanks to uh, the various city, city departments who put a lot of work into uh, sorting out the 
the various issues that come in front of us uh, and uh, get us up to speed with regard to um, all the, 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 the laws and uh, compliance issues, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because sometimes it's very complicated and they help sort it out. You know, so I appreciate that. The city attorney, uh, pr present and past this year, who also uh, keep us sorted out. So thanks very much, and everybody have a very happy, safe uh, holiday. And um, Commissioner Lemberg. Thank you. Uh, I echo uh, much of what President Swig just said, and I uh, especially want to give thanks to all of the members of the public who are here tonight in the room and on Zoom uh, for participating in the public process. I, I think it's uh, not often stated enough, but uh, your, pres your mere presence here, regardless of your position on any given issue, is, is greatly appreciated and contributes to uh, to the greater good in San Francisco governance. Um, and similarly, I want to wish my fellow commissioners, uh, our uh, city agency representatives, uh, our city attorney, and all others associated with the Board of Appeals a very happy holiday season, as this is our last meeting of the year. Uh, Commissioner Trezvino. Uh, thank you, President Swig. And I also, I, my, my colleague uh, sitting to my left expressed very well my, my uh, uh, response to seeing so many members of the public. I've been on this commission for a better part of the year, and this is the time we've had more people come to us than any other hearing that I have attended, and I think that's a, a, a testament to the people of San Francisco that they care about what's going on and that they are here to express, they, they express some faith in, in the deliberate, deliberative process. Whatever the outcome, uh, whatever it is they have to say, I do not know. I we will know over the next few hours, uh, but I, I want to express my appreciation for, for their presence. I also want to, um, uh, President Swig, you, you left out one important person to thank, and that is President Swig. Uh, I, I, as a new member of this body, greatly appreciate the guidance you provided and the leadership you provided uh, to me, and I think I speak for all of us that uh, this is this is important work for, for the city and county of San Francisco, for our residents, and I'm greatly appreciative of all of your tireless efforts uh, to keep us as, as a unit moving forward and being re responsive uh, to the law and the facts of all the cases that come before us. So thank you, Mr. President. Thank you. And sorry that the, the budget this year did not allow for the Christmas cookies tonight, but we'll do a better job next year. Uh, Commissioner Epler, thank you. I didn't know that there could be Christmas cookies. Um, ditto everything that my fellow commissioners have said. As the newest member on the board, I have uh, felt very welcomed by both my fellow commissioners, by the city attorney, and by the executive director. And I appreciate everyone's efforts to, to get me up to speed so that we could efficiently and effectively you know, administer our roles on behalf of the public. So thank you all, and a happy holidays to everyone. And of course, you raised the issue of, that I of completely overlooked of the most important person in the room, who is our executive director, who really does the heavy lifting. It's not true, but thank you. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, yes, it, it, she is. She is the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain as well as in front of the curtain. And we thank you, Julie, very much for everything that you do. Thank you so on much. On a daily basis, not just a weekly basis, a daily basis. Thank Trust you. Me. Is Thank there you. any public comment on this item? Please raise your hand. I don't see any public comment, so we will move on to the next item, which is the adoption of the minutes, item three. Before you for discussion, possible adoption or the minutes of the December 7th, 2022 meeting. Commissioners, do I have a motion? 
Motion, motion to, adopt. to adopt the minutes. Oh. Thank you, Commissioner Epler. Okay, is there any public comment on the motion to adopt the minutes? Please raise your hand. Okay, I don't see any. So on Commissioner Epler's motion to adopt the minutes, uh, Commissioner Trezvina? Aye. Commissioner Lemberg? Aye. President Swig? Aye. That motion carries four to zero and the minutes are adopted. So we are now moving on to item number four. This is appeal number 22-080, Waterfront Action Committee versus the Zoning Administrator, subject property 955 Sansom Street, appealing the issuance on October 28, 2022 to Waterfront Action Committee of a letter of determination. The Zoning Administrator has determined that the subject lot is developed to less than 20% of the lot's principally permitted buildable gross floor areas determined by height limits, rear yard requirements, and required setbacks per planning code section 206.3 B8 and is eligible for the Home SF program. This is record number 2022-008802. And we will hear from the appellants first. I understand uh, Mr. Richard Drury is the attorney representing the appellants. Welcome. You have seven minutes. Thank you, Honorable Commissioners and Executive Director Rosenberg. My name is Richard Drury. I'm representing the Waterfront Action Committee in this appeal. Um, Waterfront Action Committee is a uh, California nonprofit organization, um, members living in the Telegraph Hill neighborhood. Um, this concerns whether a proposed project at 955 Sansom uh, 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 qualifies for the Home SF program, which would allow vastly increased density and height. Um, as you can, can we have the projection? As you can see from the um, projection and uh, materials we've submitted, um, the project would tower over the historic district. This is in the Waterfront Historic District, a recognized historic district. This would be by far the tallest building in the area. For that reason, Home SF actually has a qualification for this district only, that only in this district, the a project can comply for Home SF only if the existing project is developed to less than 20% of the buildable gross floor area. So that's a unique requirement to protect the nature of this, his, this historic district that's world famous, really. Um, the zoning administrator has calculated that the, the existing uh, development of a parking garage is 18.4%, but we believe that that calculation is mistaken. It both underestimates the amount of developed area currently on the site and vastly overestimates the amount of a buildable gross floor area. Um, the, uh, let me uh, toggle through here. So the, this slide shows the, the nature of the calculation. You basically have to look at the developed area of the existing, whatever's built on the site, and divide it by the maximum amount that could be built on the site. Um, I'm going to turn to Tom Dadon, who is one of the members of the Waterfront Action Committee, to talk about the, the numerator, the, the top number, the developed area. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Dadon, and I'm a neighbor of the proposed 955. Sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Dadon, and I'm a neighbor of the proposed 955 Sansom Development. Thank you for allowing me to speak to you today. I would like to explain to you how we calculate the numerator of the ratio that Richard laid out. This is the developed uh, area of the existing building. We start by taking the square footage of the lot, which is 18,906 square feet. We then multiply it by three because the existing building fully occupies the lot and contains three fully developed floors, resulting in a developed area of 56,718 square feet. Dividing by the denominator provided by the zoning administrator of 186,666 square feet, the result is 30.4% and a 20% threshold is crossed, which means this project should not be eligible for Home SF. 
Importantly, we believe that the third floor should be included in the calculation because it is fully developed as a third parking level so it can produce income to the owner. Its developed features include parking spots, paving, a fence, a gate, lights, and multiple enclosed structures. That being said, we also show that excluding the third floor, the numerator would be calculated as 18,906 square feet times two, which results in a developed area of 37,812 square feet and a ratio of 20.3%. Again, the 20% threshold is crossed and the project should not be eligible for Home SF. You might ask why the zoning administrator reaches a lower numerator of only 34,157 square feet. The reason is that the zoning administrator relies on the definition of gross floor area, which he explains in the letter of determination excludes the rooftop mechanical enclosure and stair penthouse. In addition, he notes that unenclosed roofs are excluded from the definition of gross floor area. However, planning code section 206.3b8 does not guide us to use gross floor area in the numerator. It asks for the developed area of the existing building. Those features that the zoning administrator is excluding in his calculation are clearly developed and should be included in the calculation, as should 100% of the developed area of the lot. Therefore, even using the zoning administrator's denominator, which my colleagues will shortly prove is inflated, the 20% threshold is crossed, and this project should not be eligible for Home SF. With that, I'll pass it on back to Richard. Thank you. Next, I'd like to discuss the denominator um, in the short time that's left. The denominator is basically the amount that could be built on the site. Here, I think the zoning administrator really went off the rails. The zoning administrator assumed that an 11-story building could be built in 84 feet. The only way he's able to do that is by assuming a floor-to-floor -floor height of 8 foot 1 inches from floor to floor. That leaves no room for ceiling, no room for flooring, no room for plumbing, pipes, electrical, HVAC, um, and it assumes a five-inch slab between floors, which, as our engineer Dr. Karp has, has, test, has testified in writing, you can't build a five-inch slab. It will crumble, even with post-tensioning post concrete. So this, the ordinance requires a calculation of the buildable floor area. Dr. Karp believes the maximum buildable area here would be eight or maybe nine stories if you used a seven-foot, six-inch ceiling height. But even at nine stories, you'd be far above the 20% threshold. The statute requires buildable area. Now, notably, Aralon submitted a letter saying that eight foot one inch floor heights are possible. That letter is not signed by anyone, not a licensed architect, not an engineer, but not by anyone. Um, so please look at the Ruben and Junius letter. The city's letter uh, brief says that, quote, the issue of feasibility either technically or financially, was not included in this determination. So they're essentially admitting this is not feasible. You can't build eight foot one inch from floor to floor because of the need to put in plumbing, fireproofing, flooring, ceilings, lights. Um, toilet plumbing itself requires nine inches of, of P-traps and pipe. Um, we have one, in, uh, one minute left. I, I would like to, to, to um, turn the floor over in a minute to Dr. Larry Karp, uh, who is a licensed architect and engineer. Dr. Karp, could you, um, uh, and we'll, we'll have three minutes of rebuttal also, or, uh, or questions um, for Dr. Karp. Um, I wrote a um, paper on, with some facts that the, uh, the zoning administrator who is not uh, a design professional uh, came out with this theory that you could 30 um, seconds 
you could have seven inches between a floor and a ceiling below, and that's all you needed for a structure. It's not true. You have to have framing, and uh, it, it would be at least 14 inches, and you would need uh, uh, plumbing, uh, and uh, 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 all the other amenities. So, thank uh, you. That's time. You have time in rebuttal. You have time in rebuttal, sir. Thank you. We'll, we're out of time, so okay. we'll have three more minutes. On yeah. Okay. Thank you. We will now. Uh, we have a question from Commissioner Trisvina. Thank you. Yes, I, I had a question about. I wanted to thank you for your presentation. It's very thorough and helpful. One thing I'm struggling with, though, is the the concept of buildable versus feasible. And is, do you have any any either statutory or case law to amplify your version of buildable? Well, the uh, this is a new statute or new ordinance, and I believe it has not been interpreted before. Um, the term buildable, I think dictionary definition means it can be built. Something that can be built is buildable. And eight foot one floor to floor is not buildable. It, it would collapse. Um, so we believe that it's the, the small, the lowest buildable floor area, according to Dr. Karp, would be nine feet if you consider the supports that are necessary for a, a, even a post-tension concrete flooring. Um, the, the city claims that feasibilities, whether technologically feasibility, feasibility is not relevant, but if it's not technologically feasible, then it can't be built, and it's not buildable, okay. and that's the, the term used in the right. statute. Right. Well, I'll, I'll have questions for the city about the feasibility definition, but in, in just in terms of, of the way you have described the, re, the report, I think the unsigned one, um, it's... It, <laughs> It, it doesn't say it's not feasible. It just doesn't speak to feasibility. It, it may be, if we press them on it, we may hear more about why it is feasible, but thus far, the, you're, you're saying the report just doesn't address it. Well, the, the Aralon letter is the only one that addresses it, and it says that they could, Aralon's letter claims that they could build an eight-foot, one-inch floor-to-floor by having no flooring, no ceiling material, no plumbing, no electrical in the floor. It would all be in the walls. Of course, then your toilet would have to be mounted on the wall, um, and it's, it can't be built. But notably, no, no one signed that Aralon letter, no design professional. So I don't believe a qualified structural engineer would ever sign that letter because they'd lose their license. Um, the the other question I had is about, I believe it's in your papers regarding the rounding up rule. Was that, was that in your presentation? Um, the that was the argument that 19.97 should really be 20, and if it's and if it's is that is that your? That was in our original letter. Um, yeah. Thank you for reading that. Um, this the that was when the um, city was calculating about a 19.97. Uh, they're now right. calculating 18.4. So I think that issue. Okay, so we're on, we're on, we're on to other numbers and calculations. Correct. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. We will now hear from the attorney for the property owner. Uh, Mr. Kevlin. Thank you, Commissioners. John Kevlin here with Ruben, Junius, and Rose on behalf of the project sponsor, Airline Properties. Um, 955 Sansom is a uh, proposed 65-unit project. 
uh, with 25% affordable housing, one of the highest rates of affordable housing in the city, and the reason it's subject to that is due to its ability to use the Home SF program. Um, I'm going to defer to the zoning administrator, Mr. Teague, on a lot of the points um, with respect to his letter because he's the best one to, to defend it and comes from a, you know, not, not related to each, either party. So um, I'll, I'll let him speak to, to most of the letter, but I did want to focus on just a couple of things. Um, as, as has been discussed, the eligibility criterion at issue here deals with the legally allowed density uh, at the site, in particular that the existing de uh, development is less than 20% of such legally buildable area. Um, the, this is not the desirable buildable area. This is not the uh, ideal uh, buildable area. This is not a building that anyone would necessarily want to build. It is a legal uh, criterion that uh, uses uh, uh, language that the zoning administrator can relatively easily pull from both the planning code and the building code to determine what is legally principally permitted at this site. Uh, so uh, Erlon has pr provided um, a basis for being able to build the project as illustrated. I will mention Erlon uh, is its own general contractor as well. Um, so uh, th they're not just simply a developer. They're actually involved with the actual construction of their buildings. Um, and most importantly, that the, the one legal provision we're dealing with here is that the building code says you have to have a ceiling height of seven foot six inches but they've gone beyond that just to explain how not in an ideal scenario but in a buildable scenario you could still build uh the 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 floor at the thickness it's shown and you can provide utilities and other uh you, you know aspects of the building not within your typical drop ceiling because again a drop ceiling isn't required it's uh, it's what is desired it's what's ideal it's what people like to use, that, but the standard here is legally buildable gross floor area. Um, and I think the appellant's brief and the, the uh, attached letter kind of get right at this issue that they're not talking about the legally allowable. Um, they use words such as seven foot six ceilings are rarely used, suggesting that sometimes they are used because they're legal. Um, we, they, we hear the words uh, preferred. We hear the use uh, design professionals consider seven foot six height to be oppressive. We're not arguing that, that's probably true. We're talking about what is the legally buildable floor area on this site. And um, going beyond what the ZA and other, uh, and staff in general can easily rely, rely upon, turns this into a debate between engineers, subjectivity, uh, lack of ability to apply this standard in a way that is uh, rational and what the plain text of, of the code says. So the moment we start getting into what's desirable, what, what should be built, what, sh what, what shouldn't be built, we're getting beyond what is a, an actually uh, you know, practicable uh, provision and criterion to use in this context. Um, uh, the other uh, quick point I want to make, uh, you know, there was some reference to the fact of they reference gross floor area in this uh, criterion. Gross floor area, very clearly defined in the planning code, uh, has very specific rules. There is no question about whether or not the roof, the unenclosed roof, is gross floor area or not. And the fact that separating what's the gross floor area that's allowed separate from what's the gross floor area on the site and that they don't reference gross floor area with respect to what's on the site, I don't think makes a lot of sense that we would use a different standard as to how to calculate what's on the site and then apply it to a differently measured uh, 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 denominator uh, to, to come up with this calculation. So um, again, these were, <laughs> as zoning codes and state law continue to develop, we, we end up in these situations where we're uh, coming up with much more precise uh, standards. 
uh, standards in which need to have uh, reliable, objective application and not inserting uh, debates over whether something should or should not happen um, and what, what's ideal or not. So with that, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you. I'm, I'm here if you have any questions. Uh, and again, I, I, uh, uh, we have re reviewed the zoning administrator's brief and are in uh, support of his positions. Thank you. Thank you. We have a question from Commissioner Lemberg. Thank you. I, um, I'm having a hard time formulating this question, but I, I, I definitely hear your point as to, you know, the strict definitions of, of what is allowable. I guess my question is, is, is the project being presented that you're saying, you know, it falls within these categories, um, is it actually going to be built to those specifications or are you just using this as an excuse to say, oh, well, this falls within the strict legal definitions, and then when the plans are brought up, it's going to be totally different and not comply with other zoning requirements. I, I guess I'm, I'm having a hard time yep. seeing this. Thank you, Commissioner. So the provision we're talking about that, that that's at issue here, um, it is a theoretical calculation. You know, is, is the site built out more than equal to or more than 25% of what is the legally buildable area, right? And so this is merely a, a theoretical exercise to, to, to confirm whether or not it meets that uh, provision of the Home SF el eligibility. No question, the project we're proposing does not propose seven foot six floor to ceilings, which is not, the, the eligibility criterion doesn't require that, right? Eligibility require, criterion says, what is allowed on this site? What, what is the max you can put on this site? And we're proposing a different project because that's that's what's actually proposed. It, there's no linkage required between between the two. So, what is being proposed then? Uh, I, I well, guess we're we're only seeing what could theoretically be proposed. But what I, I what I want to know is what's actually being proposed. And and I appreciate that question, Commissioner. And that I think goes to kind of the heart of the context of where we are right now, we're in the middle of an entitlement process right now, right? We're doing environmental review, we're going to the HPC soon, we're gonna to go to the Planning Commission. This letter was filed uh, by a group that's established its opposition to the project, which is they're absolutely right, and they have filed the zoning administrator uh, letter determination in order to put this in, fr in front of this commission on this very technical issue as to do we meet this criterion of the Home SF program. I can describe the project to you, but it is not, frankly, relevant to, to this conversation. That's why it hasn't been brought in yet, because we're not talking about what the project is. We're talking about, is this site eligible for a Home SF program entitlement? Okay. And I believe Mr. Drury did uh, uh, include a, a section of the project at the beginning of their presentation. Again, not really relevant at all to this question of the eligibility, um, but but uh, that did appear to be accurate to the degree you're looking for something as to <laughs> your curiosity as to what is the actual project. Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. We will now hear from the planning department. Good afternoon. Good evening, I mean. President Swig, Commissioners Corey Teague, Zoning Administrator. 
Um, again, the subject lot before you tonight is 955 Sansom Street. It's located in the C2 zoning district, the waterfront, um, SUD number three, the Telegraph Hill North Beach Residential Special Use District, and an 84E heightened bulk district. The proposed project, which filed its first application in January of 2021, would build a 10-story residential building containing 65 dwelling units, of which 25% would be affordable. The project would also include um, some amount of ground floor retail and accessory parking up to approximately 39 total spaces. The appeal before you now is not an appeal of the project itself, as it is still undergoing review by the Planning Department and HPC and is yet to be heard by the Planning Commission. Also, the issue determination was not a judgment on the quality or appropriateness of the project as it's proposed. Instead, the issue determination is only related to a single eligibility requirement um, from the planning code. And more specifically, it really comes down to the calculation methodology for a soft site analysis. So the project is able to achieve its proposed height, density, and overall massing through the city's Home SF program, which provides development bonuses to projects that provide certain levels of affordable housing on site in a manner similar to the state density bonus program. The Home SF program generally is not available in the northeastern part of the city. However, as the original legislation was moving forward in 2017, the Board of Supervisors agreed to allow only soft sites in this area to use the program. The ordinance language defined a soft site as either a vacant lot or a lot that was greater than 12,500 square feet where the existing buildings are developed to less than 20% of the lot's principally permitted buildable gross floor area as determined by height limits, rear yard requirements, and required setbacks. So in that case, the language called out the specific provisions we should use to determine how to constrain the permitted buildable envelope. Um, that language does not include floor heights, it does not include uh, feasibility or desirability, et cetera. It simply states that you determine the, the permitted buildable gross floor area as determined by height limits, rear yard requirements, and required setbacks. Uh, this provision was added late in the legislative process and therefore did not receive staff analysis or significant conversation when added to the original ordinance. As such, other than the clear intent to allow home SF projects on soft sites in this area, there is very little documentation of any additional legislative intent around this soft site analysis. As outlined in my brief, the board adopted a simple and generic definition of a soft site that included no technical guidance or any direction to consider the potential desirability or feasibility of a potential development on a lot. Instead, the code language simply requires an analysis of the maximum gross floor area that could be developed on a lot when constrained by height limits, rear yard requirements, and required setbacks. So as was kind of pointed out earlier, it's not necessarily my determination that the um, proposed project and the analysis is infeasible. It's more that feasibility was not a significant factor in the determination. So considering this context, I used the plain text of the code and standard practices to make a determination, and this included using the planning code definition of gross floor area. This provision that we're discussing here is in the planning code. It uses the term gross floor area, which is a defined term in the code. I don't know why I would use any other definition of gross floor area uh, when doing these calculations than what is already defined in the code and was defined when this provision was added uh, to the code. Um, again, the goal was to develop the simplest calculation methodolo methodology um, without including more subjective criteria such as desire, desirability and feasibility that would be very challenging to determine on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and then ultimately to the point of feasibility, you can get 
you know, professionals to disagree on a lot of things. Ultimately, what is feasible and what can be kind of permitted to be built in the city is under the purview of the Department of Building Inspections and not, not the planning department. Um, the analysis provided by the project sponsor met all of the technical eligibility requirements by accounting for the lot's height limit of 84 feet, as well as its bulk limit, which reduces the um, size of the floor plates above a height of 65 feet. And it's important to note that a non-residential development on this lot would not be subject to a required rear yard or any other setbacks. The appellant highlights the fact that the department's methodology and calculation for this soft site determination evolved over time, which is true. However, it is common for the department to work through various methodologies or interpretations of new code provisions that have never been implemented before, such as this one. In this case, each iteration of the methodology continued to show that the existing building represented less than 20% of the maximum permitted gross floor area of the lot. However, the appellant continued to question the methodology, which was their right, and ultimately the final call was left to the zoning administrator to make a final interpretation. As detailed in the issued determination, the final soft site analysis for the subject lot found the lot area is well over 12,500 square feet minimum, and that the existing two-story parking garage represents 18.3% of the maximum zoned capacity for development of the lot. Therefore, the lot meets the specific soft site eligibility requirement for the northeast portion of the city for home SF. And beyond meeting the technical eligibility requirement, it's clear that the proposal meets the spirit and intent of those requirements as the existing building is a nondescript two-story parking garage that does not include any long-standing businesses and would almost definitely be considered a soft site in any other formal soft site analysis. To conclude, there was nothing nefarious about the process of determining if the subject project is eligible uh, for Home SF under this provision. The project created a need uh, to interpret a very new provision of the code, which ultimately fell to the zoning administrator to decide. The issue determination is not a statement on the pro proposed project's design or appropriateness. It is instead a technical determination that follows the plain text of the code and the legislative intent and represents a simple, rational, and logical interpretation of the planning code. As such, it is the department's position that the zoning administrator did not err or abuse their discretion when making this determination, and we respectfully request that the board deny the appeal. Um, I didn't touch on all the details outlined in the issued letter or my brief, because there are some other technical issues, but I'm definitely available for any questions you may have related to, the, to those topics or any other questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you. We have questions from three of the commissioners. President Swig. Okay. <clears throat> um, so uh, at the beginning of your, your presentation, uh, you paid reference to the context of uh, of this activity, um, is this is this like the very one of the very first steps in a in a long process to potentially make this project move forward? And could you briefly uh, put us into context as to um, what what's what step we're in? If this isn't the first one, what step we're in? where it goes second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, tenth, twelfth, and at what point r really um, this the issue of feasibility, the issue of legalities, the issue of what this thing is going to look like really comes, uh, comes to fruition. Sure, and I think this is where it is important to go back to the point the, the project sponsor made, which is all of the numbers and technical things we're talking about for this determination basically have nothing to do with the actual project that's proposed. 
this is a theoretical analysis for the site to determine just if that site is even eligible to use this program. And then once it's determined eligible, they design a project based on the market and whatever their incentives are that is consistent with this program. So this is purely just an eligibility requirement analysis. Um, that's done pretty early in the process. You know, the project sponsor provided materials and their analysis to show that they were eligible at the beginning when they um, were first filing for this project and staff determined that analysis to be correct and for the project to be eligible and it has moved forward in the review process since that time. Um, and so as was, was mentioned, the project now is still, it's, it's deep in the process. You know, it's, it's deep in its review, um, both in terms of co-compliance, but also CEQA. It's already been reviewed uh, once by the Architectural Review Committee of HPC. Um, so they're still going through that process. And it's important to understand because the decision basically in front of you tonight is if it's, if it's not eligible, then it's not eligible for the program and what they're proposing is not really relevant. And if it is eligible, then you know, it does, that determination doesn't affect that project. That, the actual project is going through its development review process and getting comments from the relevant bodies. And so you didn't answer my question exactly, and I want a little bit more sure. detail. Tell us where we are. What, when does it go to planning? What, what steps are next? And how many times does this project have a shot at getting shot down uh, if it's not a, as, as the, you know, the, uh, the appellant claims, well, it's, it's not feasible, it's not realistic. Uh, you know, I build a lot of hotels. I know exactly what they're talking about. But, but this seems to be more abstract at this point, number one. Uh, and, and number two, how many, how many hands are going to touch this? How many commissions are going to see this? How many uh, hold accountable people are going to review this project before it comes back to us on appeal? Because <laughs> sure. I, I have sure. a sneaking suspicion that and if we go this far, we're going to see it again. Sure. And to be clear, I mean, the feasibility arguments that the appellants are making are about the, the feasibility of the theoretical project in the eligibility analysis, not the feasibility of the actual project, because that's really the only thing we're focusing on here is this eligibility requirement. Um, but in terms of the steps, um, right now the, the environmental review needs to be completed, which that's not done yet. Um, because this is in a historic district, it will require approval from the HPC. That is independently appealable. And then ultimately, kind of the final step would, it would have to go to the Planning Commission for approval of the Home SF project, and that is also appealable. So um, there's still all of that process kind of left to go. Um, in terms of the exact timeline, you know, the project sponsor would have a better idea of kind of how, um, how far along they are in that timeline, other than the fact that they have already been to one committee hearing at the HPC. So I get a sense that what this is all about for you, not about the, the issue, but for you, is that you were asked to prove that two plus two, in fact, does equal four because the, the general statutes in place, the, the general information as we know it at this time, you said that it's, you know, it's new legislation, so it, you're kind of putting your finger in the wind just a little bit, but that's all you got. But basically, you were asked to prove and support the fact that two plus two equals four as relates to um, the, this applicability issue. Is that is that kind of what we're talking about here? Except the fact that 
maybe the, 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 what was really asked is kind of like, what, what's your methodology for doing that math, right? And right. is that a valid methodology? Because um, that's really what we're determining here. There are some numbers that are clear numbers that are indisputable. It's really about the methodology. And again, that, that's, the, that's the only question here today is nothing to do with the actual project that's being proposed. It's just, does this lot meet this specific eligibility, of which there are many other eligibility requirements that apply to the Home SF program. This is just one of them, and that is the very narrow focus of this letter and this appeal. So, uh, said another way, uh, we agree that two plus two, all of us agree that two plus two equals four. You, you took this being asked, does two plus two equal four? And you you found that it does, and now you're you're being asked for your audit. Your audit trail is basic basically being questioned, and as to the fact that did you use the proper two and the proper two to get it to equal four? Is that kind of the abstract? That's I mean that's in the right ballpark. Yes. Okay. Thanks. I'll I give it to Commissioner Lemberg. Uh, thank you, Mr. Teague, as always, for your uh, thoroughness. I have two se very separate questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, if, you, if you can please speak a little bit as to, uh, I, I know the appellant has definitely um, characterized uh, this in certain ways, but I just want to hear your analysis on the planning staff's amended calculations uh, for uh, to determine the eligibility for the Home SF project, and if, if you can just speak as to what happened initially and then what happened subsequently to change those sure. calculations. Um, um, one caveat is, I mean, I don't have all the details and nuance of every kind of calculation that happened at the staff level. My understanding is that the initial analysis provided by the um, applicant was determined to meet the requirements, right? So I don't, I don't know that our initial staff review did a separate analysis. I think it was a review of the applicant's analysis and a determination that it was accurate. Um, I think once there was some questioning of the, the applicant's um, methodology, there was some additional staff review and some attempts at the staff level to kind of do the, our own analysis. Um, I know that one, just as an example, and one earlier analysis was factoring in the uh, floor area ratio requirements for the site as part of the analysis. Um, and, and to that point, it still came in under 20%. It was closer to 20%, but it came in under 20%. But ultimately, when the appellants, you know, which was their right, continued to um, dispute the methodology, it ultimately kind of landed on my desk to make a final call. And once we kind of really sat down and dug into it, um, we determined that you know the code was, language is very clear on what should be included in the analysis, and that's what we would include. And determined that the the floor area ratio control didn't need to be part of the of the methodology, and that that did change it to to some degree. One other thing is that the we we did have the um, applicants update the plans a little bit because they weren't showing kind of the rooftop stair penthouse and mechanical enclosure. So those were updated, but ultimately they didn't change the numbers in the calculation. Thank you. Um, second, completely unrelated question. I've, I've heard the term home SF before, but I'm not really familiar with the ins and outs of the program. So I want to ask what the practical considerations are if this proposed project is or is not subject to home SF rules and what difference that would make in the real world. 
Sure. So <clears throat> uh, Home SF was adopted, um, or this version of Home SF was adopted in 2017, and it was somewhat in response to the state density bonus program. And it's a simple, a similar concept, which is there's um, a trade-off in terms of development bonuses for providing certain levels of on-site affordability. So you're getting the affordable housing on-site, you're not paying into a fee, um, and there are certain things that you kind of get automatically as, as part of that program if you meet all the eligibility requirements. Because um, it doesn't apply everywhere and there are kind of numerous eligibility requirements beyond this one. But if you take advantage of it, um, there are multiple tiers. The more affordability, you, the more affordable housing you uh, provide, the more development bonuses you receive, which is similar, again, to the state density bonus law. They do the same thing there. Um, and so in this case, um, uh, for example, some of the things you get are a reduction in the rear yard requirement, a reduction in the open space requirement, and additional height. Um, and so that's, that's the, the gist of it. It's basically a program that's designed to um, accommodate the development of more affordable housing through market rate development. Okay. And so if, if Home SF, if, if, you had, if your letter of determination had found the other way that, that Home SF did not apply to this project, what would the kind of the hard numbers be? I mean, how how much shorter would the building have to be? How much more rear yard setback would they have to have um, as sure. opposed to it currently? Sure, and and I'm not as familiar with the details of the plans as the project proposed. I think the project sponsor could speak to that, but I think generally um, it would be one to two stories shorter because um, it's basically a 10 story building, but it's an 84 foot height district. So that's about a 16 foot difference. So I believe that what's being proposed, it would be like one to two stories um, shorter in height. Um, and then again, like for the rear yard, I believe it's a 10% reduction. So right now the proposal is to have kind of a corner central courtyard that it, as the rear yard, that would just have to be essentially like 10% bigger. Okay, thank you. Sure. Thank you, Commissioner Epler. Thank you, Mr. Teague. Um, unfortunately, you know the law is usually bad at math, and that's that's what we're doing right now. Um, so, looking to the numerator, um, we've used gross floor area, and gross floor area is a defined term under the code. Are there other definitions under the code for calculating floor areas? The other one that is defined is occupied floor area which tends to be even less because it nets out um, certain like storage and parking and certain things that don't get counted in gross, which makes sense. I mean, gross implies gross. Listen, it's like the biggest calculation we have. It goes from the exterior of the wall in, and there aren't very many um, exceptions. There are some places in the code where it says there'll be a provision that says use gross floor area, but with these modifications, you know, kind of very specific modifications for certain sections. But in terms of other defined floor area, it's pretty much gross and occupied are the two primary definitions that we have. And, and the uh, code provision in question um, doesn't use occupied floor area, it just uses no, gross. No, uses right. gross. And there's nothing known as developed area or developed floor area, area in the code. No, and, and gross floor area is what we use for all of like our formal area calculations in the code, whether it gets to you know, floor area ratio, um, whether it's calculating how many square feet a project has that's subject to impact fees, et cetera, is definitely the standard for what we use. Okay, uh, going to the denominator, um, you know, the code could have said permitted gross floor area as, as the calculation for the denominator, but it says 
permitted buildable gross floor area. What, you know, in your analysis and what in your mind does the modifier buildable do to gross floor area in the denominator? Sure, and we have this in other parts of the code where it talks about the buildable floor area. And in all other places in the code, what that is in reference to and how it is interpreted and implemented is like buildable is synonymous with permitted. Um, it's not a, I mean, the planning code is not a technical um, construction code. Um, we don't really do feasibility analysis based on like construction methods, et cetera, in the planning department. That's, that's not our purview. So when the term like a buildable, uh, the buildable envelope um, is used in the planning code it is synonymous with, you know, what's, what could be permitted. Okay. Well, I mean, and that, that gives me a little bit of pause because the provision is the principally permitted buildable gross mm -hmm. floor area. And so that gets interpreted as the principally permitted, permitted gross floor area in that circumstance. Sure. Right. And I think that's not the best wording. Like I said, this was kind of added late in the process at the Board of Supervisors, so I don't, you know, I don't think it got as much as many eyes on it as typically would. Yeah. But I think it's, I think another thing is helpful there is that, is that it's all modified by the end of that sentence when it says, as determined by height limits, rear yard requirements, and required setbacks. It doesn't say as determined by, it's, you know, any of the other things that could have been used in the analysis if that was the intent. Um, Including the building code, for example. Correct. Okay. All right, thank you. Okay, thank you, Commissioner Trisvina. Uh, th thank you, I just have a couple of questions. On this, um, you described the current uh, building as a two-story garage, but are, and do you know how many levels of parking there are? There's three levels of parking because you can park on the roof level. And as I've read the papers, there's various things going on on the roof rather than just blank slates. Yeah, there's two small, there's like one little stair penthouse and a small mechanical enclosure. Yeah. And, and are you saying that the legal definition of gross floor area would not include that roof level parking, even though there are things on it? Correct. Yeah, we don't count unenclosed area. Gross is measured from the exterior of enclosed walls and structures. Um, and it does not include exterior areas. There are some situations where you have partially enclosed structures where if they're enclosed enough, we will count it. But if it's just open roof or in, in a situation like this, a parking level that's accessible at a roof level, that's absolutely not considered part of gross floor area. Right. So, and on the, uh, on the question of uh, the... Um the buildable question. Uh, it seems that uh, the eligibility for OMSF depends upon the ceiling height or the floor to ceiling height that you have described of seven foot six, correct? Well, I think they actually, the lowest ceiling height they have is eight foot one in, the, in their analysis. But that's based upon Seven foot six plus the. Sure, seven foot six is the minimum in the building code. Right, right. So, and you've you've also said we're kind of in this theoretical exercise. Right now, are. Do you have an expectation that when this is all done, that there will be, that, height of the walls and that that, low ceilings. 
No, I don't. <clears throat> I don't. I mean, I think that as this project sponsor mentioned, like the the purpose of this eligibility is a, is a soft side analysis based on what is permitted under the planning code, like period, and not like what is feasible in the market, what's desirable in the market. Um, so yeah, there's not, I mean, I don't think, and the project sponsor has said that, that those aren't really desirable for the market, um, but whether they were desirable for the market or not was like not a consideration in the calculation. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. One more question from Yeah, so as a follow-up to your last point, so it really doesn't matter what we're what we're seeing. You know, the the whatever's been drawn on a piece of paper to that we've reviewed is really that's just real fiction at this point. I mean, I mean there's not there's not going to be a building with eight foot one yeah. uh, floors. There's not the building. Any representation that we see of the building at this point is not anywhere near fact, as mentioned by project sponsors, council, and uh, I, I don't know if it was mentioned by the, the appellant, but I, that, that, that to me is really a, a, a pitfall in our review, is that we look at a picture, when is a picture not a real picture? That's a, so the picture that we look at today with, with a column that looks like a building that is represented with eight foot, one inch, um, ceiling heights is complete complete fiction for 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 points of our conversation today because that's where I see our, our, our pitfall is here that we're we're looking at abstract and interpreting it as fact. Well, I think I think it's you, you have to be careful not to be trying to interpret the analysis in the same way, manner you would be interpreting what an actual proposed project is because oh. they're not they're not trying to propose a, a real project in right. in this exercise right that's not the point of the exercise so that's not the attempt that they're making so that that frame of mind isn't even where we are when looking at that at this kind of theoretical exercise because it really is just kind of a numbers game to determine what's the de development potential of the site so we're looking at a math problem and whether you did it right or not Basically, is I mean, it is. It, it is. To, I mean, at its base, it is a math, a math equation. Yes. Yeah. Um, one, just one technical question, because we haven't, since uh, Commissioner Trezina hasn't, is, in in my recollection of his tenure, nor have the other two commissioners had this question raised. I don't think. So, if we were looking at a. Uh, a, a, a building, and somebody said, "Well, they're above their their space utilization uh, uh, allowance," and they and they point to the elevator uh, mechanic or mechanical or the HVAC mechanical at the top of the building. Does that does that count or not? Towards gross floor area? Towards, yeah, towards whether, because I, I, I remember this thing that we had, uh, was, and I need clarification. This is part of mm -hmm. my refresher course and, and maybe their learning curve. But I remember we had a building down near Fishman's Wharf, and it was an issue of height, height limit. And I see. And it, it was, at whatever, I'll pick 32 feet. But there was a, a, a potentially a four-foot mechanical box on top which 
at that the appellant was saying, well, it's not 32 feet, it's 36 feet. My right. numbers are all wrong, by the way. And and so it's it's not eligible to be right. built. Do, does mechanical count? Does an elevator top does that stuff that you're saying yeah. on the roof don't worry about does that does that count or not how what is right that? and that that question the way you're framing it is really related to what's permitted to go above the height limit um, because we have you know we have height limits for all the properties in the city so for example this build this property is on for 84 feet in height so if you had a building that was designed where the roof was right at 84 you're going to typically have things above the roof level right you're going to have maybe stair penthouse maybe an elevator penthouse, maybe some parapets, maybe um, um, some mechanical enclosures. And so to your point, yes, the planning code calls out some very specific features um, per certain parameters that are exempt from the height limit. And we would not use that in the height calculation, right? They're exempt from the height limit and the height calculation. So most projects come in, new projects come in built to their height limit with things like penthouses and mechanical enclosures above that, and that doesn't essentially get count against them. That's not how we measure the height. We just measure the height to the roof level. Right. So in that context, is is the are those things part of gross usable square feet in your calculation, which I think is the discussion here? Right. I and I would say company. the vast majority of those are, are not included in gross floor area. That was that was my, my question. I wanted the commission to hear that. Thank you very much. Okay. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. We are now moving on to public comment. Is there anyone in the room who would like to provide public comment? Please raise your hand. Please come up, and if you could start lining up against the wall, or someone come up to the speaker, please. And then after we take public comment from the people here, we will go to the people on Zoom. If you're on Zoom and you want to provide public comment, please raise your hand. If you called in, you may need to press star 9. Thank you. And if you could move over there, just because it's a fire safety hazard by the door. Thank you. Hello. Uh, my name is Al Fontes. I am the president of the Telegraph Hill Dwellers. We're a local neighborhood group of about 500 members representing North Beach and Telegraph Hill. Um, I'm here representing our planning and zoning committee and the entire THD membership. Uh, we sent a letter of support uh, of the appeal on December 4th. And as mentioned, we agree with, with the appellants that um, this, this eight-foot floor-to-floor measurement is just not realistic. We don't, we don't build buildings that way. And there are several projects in the area on, for example, um, 425 Broadway, um, 1196 Columbus, so forth. And they all, they all have 10-foot floor-to-floor. Um, Another thing we want to point out is that um, the existing building we really believe is three stories. The top, it's, it's a parking garage, and the uh, top floor is used by uh, Waymo, which is a self-driving automobile company, and the whole, par the whole parking lot is used. It's been recently refurbished, and um, the assessor's report um, that I have a little copy of here listed as three stories. So they're paying taxes on three stories. So it seems to me it's three stories, right? Um, so basically because of this, you know, the, we've, you know, we discussed it before, the numerator is too low, the denominator is too high. And so, you know, we, we agree. So thank you. You have 30 seconds if you want to finish. Yeah, you have 30 seconds left. No, no pressure. I think I've said enough. I if you could fill out a Thank speaker you. card, um, 
uh, for the, for our record, uh, a speaker card. Ma'am, you can come forward. And if you, sir, a speaker card, just so we spell your name correctly when we do the minutes. Ma'am, you can come you. forward. And you have two minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Constance Dung, and I am a neighbor of the proposed project. I'm just uh, representing myself, so I'm actually not part of Telegraph Hill Dollars um, or the Waterfront Action Committee, although I very much appreciate the work they're doing. Uh, I'm just a passionate neighbor who's getting very confused about the nature of this project, and it strikes me that the developers are really being a little bit disingenuous and maybe using confusion as a strategy here. So uh, I don't purport to have any of the answers, but a couple of the threads that I'd like to untangle around my confusion, you know, first of all, in on, on technicalities, in August, the planning department issued a written opi opinion um, that the denominator of the buildable gross whatever was 165,000 square foot using, and then, you know, later issued an opinion on their current numerator, which clearly exceeded the 20% threshold, and then reissued uh, their denominator opinion when they came up with the numerator. And so, you know, that was a surprise for me. Um, the other thing that seems confusing to me is, you know, making a theoretical determination on uh, this, like, 11-foot office building when what's really being proposed as being built is a 114-foot residential, all residential building, and again, 80-foot for 84-foot zone in a historic district. And, you know, I think we've seen some proposals where the building is even larger and more egregious and out of line with the historic nature of the district and all that. But, you know, uh, again, I, I appreciate everyone being here before the holidays and for all the committees that have done a lot of work on this. It's not our full-time jobs, obviously, and, uh, you know, trying to pin down a moving target, but being really passionate about just the preservation of thank the you. nature That's of our fine. neighborhood. Okay, thank you. Next speaker, please. And ma'am, if you could fill out a speaker card. Thanks. Hello, commissioners. Uh, thank you again for being here, and happy holidays to you guys. Uh, my name is Nick Ferris. I grew up on Telegraph Hill and continue to live there. Uh, and this project deeply worries me because the calculations presented by the city are inaccurate and highly misleading, whether intended to or not. Um, what has been laid out by the Waterfront Action Committee and the Telegraph Hill Dwellers shows that the numbers used by the planning department are fudged to push this project through. Um, on top of that, there is the top floor of the garage, which for decades has been in active use and seen as a separate floor for the county assessor's office, as has already been mentioned. Um, the planning department is now leaving this fact out uh, in their calculation to further fudge the numbers to seemingly suit uh, the developer's wishes. It's not fair, doesn't add up, it's not right. Um, all of us here, I think, on both sides of the issue want more housing built in San Francisco. However, fundamentally changing two historic neighborhoods using ordinances that don't apply to justify that outcome is unacceptable. I urge this Board of Appeals to overturn the ruling of the Planning Department of its acceptance of the Home SF Ordinance for 955 Sansom Street. Thank you very much, and happy holidays again. Okay, thank you. Is there anyone else present in the hearing room who wants to provide public comment. Okay, we will move to Zoom. Teresa Flandrich, please go ahead. You need to unmute yourself. 
Teresa Flandrich. I see your hand is raised, but you are muted. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. I think you have another device on. Okay, please go ahead. Uh, yes. Okay, do you have a computer and a phone open? Because there's some feedback. Can you turn one of them off, please? Yes, we'll do. Thank you. Okay, you ready to go? Uh, no, it's not working. Um, There's an echo. So do you have your phone and your computer open? TV. The TV? Can you turn your TV down? Um, I have the computer actually off. Maybe you could put it on mute. Okay, I didn't mean for you to mute yourself. Just mute one of your devices, please. Because we can't hear you now. And now can you hear me? Yes, but there's still the echo. So can you tell me what do you have open right now? What are you, are you on your laptop? Uh, yes. And what else do you have? Is, uh, and my phone. Your phone? Why don't you hang up your phone and just stick with your laptop? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Do you want to try Thanks again? Thanks so much. Okay. Perfect. Um, you have two minutes. Okay. I am calling um, as a uh, leader here in North Beach as the North Beach Tents Committee, and I am um, asking you to please listen to the response in terms of this not being an appropriate um, nor nor legal. Uh, site for this project. I do know that we had over 6,000 people apply for family housing just across the street from this build from this site, uh, at it being affordable housing. So 6,000 people applying when there were only 120 units available. So the need for housing that is actually going to fit this community's needs, especially with a school just around the corner, um, is it, it's just an inappropriate project, as well as has already been stated, the calculations are incorrect, and this should be denied as a home SF project. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Is there any further public comment? Please raise your hand. If you're in Zoom, you need to raise your hand. Okay, I think that concludes public comment. So we will move on to rebuttal. And Mr. Drury, you have three minutes. Thank you. Um, just in rebuttal, I'd like to emphasize that the main problem with the zoning administrator's analysis is that it ignores the plain language of the ordinance. As the lawyers on the committee know, you start with the plain language. And the plain language says the numerator is the developed area. It doesn't say gross floor area. The third floor is developed. It's been in use for 50 years. They're paying taxes on it. It is developed. Without that, the whole argument goes away. And as far as the denominator goes, the ordinance says it has to be a buildable floor area. Eight foot one inch floor plates are not buildable. There is not one shred of expert evidence in the record that says where any expert says that you can build an eight foot one inch floor, even if you use seven foot six inch ceilings, which is possibly allowed by the code. You need um, at least 16 inches for the plumbing, 
the flooring, the I-beams, the electrical, the HVAC, et cetera, which gets you to nine feet. Um, and on that point, I'd like to um, turn to Dr. Karp because he is a, an expert. And I want to emphasize the city has to have substantial evidence to support its determination. There is no licensed professional who has said in the record here that eight foot one inch floor plates are possible to build. The statute says it has to be buildable. Eight foot one inch is not buildable. It will fall down. Dr. Karp. As I started to say, uh, <clears throat> um, the, the uh, height that they claim, uh, the, the developer claims that um, he can build uh, of eight foot one inch from floor to floor leaves, uh, leaves seven inches for structural framing and all utilities. The, the framing and the flooring is part of what a permit would have to be obtained from the building department <clears throat> to uh, construct this building. It, 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 they don't allow theory and letters from developers saying that this is all we have to do. You have to have calculations and you have to uh, uh, have uh, licensed professionals who will sign drawings that, that um, show th th that the building is viable. And uh, well, without that, you can't build anything. Uh, you know, somebody coming here and saying, oh, you can use uh, uh, post-tension slabs. You know, they don't understand what a post-tension slab is and it won't fit in seven, uh, in seven inches. It won't work. Um, if, they, if, if they thought it could work, they should produce a, a design. Thank you, that's time. You can finish your sentence. Okay. Okay, we have a question from Commissioner Lemberg. Uh, this is for council. Um, I see the part in the planning code uh, that discusses buildable area as part of the denominator. Can you point us to the specific code subsection um, that speaks as to what you were saying uh, where the numerator does not in involve gross floor area? Because I do not see that. Yeah, the, uh, it's the same, actually the same sentence of 206.4, B as in boy, the number nine, um, where it says that the... Um, Lot, in these lots, the lots principally, um, let's see, the, where the existing buildings are developed to less than 20% of the lots principally permitted gross floor area, as determined by Heitlim said. So it's where it's developed. It doesn't say where the gross floor area is less than 20%. It says where the building is developed. Now, they could have used gross floor area, but they didn't. And you know, a controlling language of statutory interpretation is you use the plain language of the statute. 206.4B9, I don't see a B9, subsection B9. Uh, I believe that is the, the provision. You can show it on the overhead. Um, sure. Uh, this is from my brief. Um, I don't have the ordinance with me, but um, I believe I've got it quoted here. How do I turn this on? Overhead, please. Okay. 
this is um, the verbatim ordinance language um, where it says if it's located in you know this area basically uh, on lots of greater than 12,500 square feet then home SF only applies if quote the develop the building the existing buildings are developed to less than 20% of the lots principally permitted buildable gross floor area so it has to be buildable you can't build eight foot one inch there's not a single expert who has said that you can build eight foot one inch floor to floor because it'll fall down um, as dr. Karp said you can't have a five inch concrete slab unless you have I-beams supporting it it will fall down under stress and that doesn't leave any room for the plumbing the HVAC the electrical even the fireproofing that's required is, is, is several inches um, it just can't be built and so the zoning administrator has ignored the plain language of the of the ordinance um, if you and even if you use seven foot six inch ceiling heights you need room for the the structural integrity to make it quote buildable and according to dr. Karp which is the only only substantial evidence in the record that requires at least 16 inches of concrete duct work etc fireproofing flooring ceiling so now that I'm seeing the code section what I'm seeing is that it it refers to existing buildings uh, the calculations are as to existing buildings not the proposed replacement building which is what we're talking about here um, but the existing building is the parking garage not the proposed project um, and so all of the things regarding the seven foot six ceilings I mean I assume that the current parking garage has ceilings higher than that I don't know but I don't know how much it matters um, because it only says where existing buildings are developed to less than 20% of the lots principally permitted buildable gross floor area yeah, correct it certainly a mouthful the the so the numerator has to do with the existing building what is there what is developed on the site not the gross floor area but what is developed on the site the denominator is what could potentially be developed or what could potentially be built but it has to be buildable you know if we were I don't know if they were I don't know if anyone saw being John Malkovich where they walk into the building and everyone's like it's half height and they're all they're walking around that's not buildable you couldn't get a permit to build that you know four foot ceiling heights you just couldn't do it and this this is not buildable this is a being John Malkovich building they've proposed here okay thank you we have a question from Commissioner Trisvino thank you and I just want to follow up on this very point I think at this point we're talking about two different aspects of the of the of the case one is the third floor the the third level of the of the parking area whether that counts or not and there seems to be a very dis difference of view and then the second is the issue of in the future project the seven foot six but on the first half of that where you've described pointing to 204, 206.4 B9, you, you say that you focus on the word developed, and in your view, it's developed because it's something other than a bare roof. However, it continues to say that developed to less than 20% of the lot's principally permitted buildable gross floor area, and it seems that's the gross floor area 
is the part of the definition where the department says that the roof doesn't count. I'm trying to reconcile two very well presented definitions of the same language. And, and is that is that where the dispute is? Not so much over whether whether the roof is has anything on it or whether it may be on it, it's on it, but it doesn't count. Well, I think the, the statute uses two different terms. On the numerator, it says developed. What's developed on the site? On the denominator, it says what is the buildable gross floor area. So we have to assume the legislators did that intentionally. Um, I do a lot of work under the Clean Air Act. It's like under the Clean Air Act where you look at what's the potential to emit versus the actual emissions. Here you're looking at the actual, what's actually on the site and what could potentially be on the site, the maximum. Um, and it's the same kind of analysis. They're very different things. For some reason, the Board of Supervisors used different terms for the numerator and denominator. It's not for us to ask why. It's for us to read it and interpret it and apply it. And they've used those. We have to assume they use those terms differently intentionally. And the, the numerator says what's developed on the site. The denominator says what's the maximum buildable gross floor area. But here, the zoning administrator has essentially confounded those terms and has used them backwards, using gross floor area for the numerator um, and using potential uh, uh, developable for the denominator. So there, it's, 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 we believe, entirely backwards and upside down from what the plain language of the ordinance is. Thank you. Okay, Commissioner Epler? Um, going to the, the denominator, um, you know, I'm still struggling with the word buildable and figuring out how it modifies things. And, and as I struggle with that, I do read further that you know, we're looking at what's principally permitted buildable gross floor area as determined by height limits, rear yard requirements, and required setbacks. Why doesn't the as determined by limit the definition of or, or how buildable modifies, you know, the gross floor areas? Why isn't that the exclusive list of what's considered when you're considering what's buildable? Um, I think those definitely do modify what's buildable. So if there were setbacks, it would reduce it. Um, here they've chosen something that doesn't require setbacks, but it's still, it doesn't eliminate the requirement that it must be buildable. But, but, but that doesn't that modify what, what's under consideration in terms of buildable? It doesn't say, you know, it, I mean, it's, it's an exclusive list. How, what other considerations should go into buildable? The ordinance doesn't say that buildable means setbacks, et cetera. It qualifies the gross floor area in the case that there are necessary setbacks or rear yard or, or height limits, which there are here. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't qualify the word buildable. I don't think that's a plain language reading of, of that sentence. All right, thank you. Okay, thank you. No further questions, thank you. Thank you. So we will now hear from the attorney for the project sponsor. Mr. Kaplan, you have three minutes. Thank you, commissioners. On this point that we're talking about right now, I think what, what uh, the, the arguments being made by the appellants is that we should measure the existing building 
by a standard that is used nowhere else in the code, is defined nowhere else, and they've on the spot created a new measurement, which is developed floor area, which is something that I guess we're developing on the fly, the definition of on the fly, as opposed to every other reference to building floor area in this code is gross floor area and occupied floor area. And as, as Mr. Teak said, occupied floor area is really more of a technical term when you're calculating bike parking and, and some of the other provisions of the code. Gross floor area is what we use. So it's a, it's a little odd that they would create a brand new type of measurement for the building. It's also odd that they would say, let's use the numerator as the developed floor area, which includes an open roof, but for the denominator, the, build, the, the, the theoretical floor area don't include that roof, even if it's got parking on the roof or it's got a roof deck on the roof. We want you to use a different standard for these two things to measure these two things together. Doesn't, it just doesn't make reasonable or rational sense. Moving on from that, though, and getting back kind of to the, to the original point, um, President Swig, I appreciate your comments. I, in my, in my uh, first you know, uh, discussion of the case, I said one sentence about the actual project because, and, and I, I hesitated to even say that because the actual project is not here. The actual project doesn't have seven foot six floors. I would expand on your math equation. Maybe it's not two plus two, maybe it's X plus Y equals four, right? What is the X and what's the Y? And did Corey, uh, excuse me, Mr. Teague do that uh, correctly? And he's uh, done a pretty good job of, of, of providing a basis for that. I'll also mention the project, the project which folks are concerned about. It's going to the HPC, it's going to go to the Planning Commission, and within 15 days it can be appealed to the Board of Appeals, and we can be here and you all can see a, the project when it's relevant and at issue. Um, so I just wanted to emphasize that point. The, the Planning Commission's approval, not just the permit, but the Planning Commission's approval um, will be coming. Well, you would expect it to be coming to this board. So thank you, Commissioners. I'm here if you have any other questions. Thank you. Commissioner Trisvenia? Thank you. Um, your, your point about the project doesn't exist. It's theoretical. It's going to change or it's going to go back to us. The letter of determination refers to the project. So if we don't know what the project is or everybody has a different view and it seems like everybody's calling it fiction, then how would uh, – how do, how do we – how do we read the letter of determination that the project uh, meets Home SF when we don't know what the project is? Because this eligibility criterion has nothing to do with what the actual proposal is. It has to do with what the site is. One of the other factors that's, that's in here, it says lots equal to or greater than 12,500 square feet. has nothing to do with what our project is. It's just this, it, it, this is only allowed on lots of... Uh, larger than 12,500 square feet. That's an easy checkbox because we know how to measure, you, you know, we've got the lot area, right? So whether this site is bigger or less than 12,500 feet has nothing to do with the project we're proposing that's in the middle of the process and that will be coming back here. And, and, and the, the second part of the sentence is the same thing. What's existing today divided by what is theoretically allowed by the building code, or sorry, the planning code determined by height limits, rear yard requirements, and required setbacks completely divorced from what the actual project is. Once we check the box on this item, then we get to come in and pro actually propose the project. So um, the, the seven foot six floors, nothing to do with the actual project. It's, 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 it's a more complicated factor than the site has to be at least 12,500 square feet. Thank you. Okay, 
Thank you. No further questions, we'll hear from the planning department. Okay, good evening again. President Swig, Commissioners, Corey Teague, Zoning Administrator. Um, just a few quick things. Um, nothing was fudged for any purposes. I think I have a pretty good record of annoying both sides of the spectrums with my determinations, um, and I'm sure people could testify to that effect. Um, I do wanna be clear that we actually have a definition of story in the planning code as well. It very clearly does not, you know, it has to be an enclosed story in a building of a certain height, et cetera. So, even from that perspective, we would never consider the rooftop level being used as for parking as another story in the building. I can show you that um, definition if you like. Um, and, um, you know, because there was no discussion, like if you go back and watch the hearings where the Board of Supervisors talked about this, there's no detail. There's no indication that there was some special way they expected this to be measured or some special criteria. It was none. It was basically just a 20% soft side analysis per what's like the zoned development capacity of the site. That's really kind of it. Um, and so we're not given that guidance. We use standard and typical practices and language that's already in the code. And to the specific code language, I do want to put this up on the overhead if we can get this. So to the point that was already made, the term, um, let's find this that the buildings are developed. Um, that's really talking about the state of the lot. Again, one of the eligibility requirement here is that it could be vacant lot and have no other requirements. This is saying that the site is developed to less than 20% of the gross floor area. So developed is the state of the lot. Gross floor area is the unit of measurement to see how developed it is. So I don't think we're using different terms or different uh, concepts here for the numerator and denominator. I think the language very clearly just lays it out as you would only use gross floor area. There's no indication that we would use anything else. Um, and to the project sponsor's point, if we were gonna use something else, we'd have to make it up out of thin air because it's not defined in the code and that does not seem to be called out as the intent from the Board of Supervisors. And then um, Commissioner Epler, to get to your concerns about the kind of the term buildable, I think what may be helpful here is that, you know, it says that it has to be developed to less than 20% of the, I think it's important to note that principally permitted, principally is modifying permitted. That means it's permitted without additional entitlements, et cetera. And then buildable gross floor area, as in like it is permitted in the sense that not that it doesn't require entitlement, but that it fits within the permitted envelope that could be developed on the site. So I think that's what's creating that that um, kind of language issue there is because you have principally permitted buildable Thank board. you, that's time. Thank you, I'm available for any questions you may have. Thank you, President Swig has a question. Um, so you told us the story about what is a story, uh, but what is the story about the assessor's office uh, regarding this two-story as you claim, a three-story, and what is that something that we should be, are you worried about it? Should we be worried about yeah. it? Because, I, I mean, it, it, it's brought up. I mean, in short, no. We, I mean, 
the assessor's determination of property and what factors they use to calculate how they tax property has no basis on how the planning code is applied to a property. So we often get situations where the information the assessor has for a lot is wildly inaccurate or is using terms or methods that are completely irrelevant to what we do under the planning code. So in short, that, I don't think that has any relevance here. Okay, and um, with regard to the question of, uh, of a project, what is a project a project? And is this a project or is this a concept? And is the concept, uh, is basically what is being proposed, the concept being proposed is, is stipulated by a bunch of rules. I like, I, I like what Mr. Kevlin said, you know, X, X plus Y, equals four. I think that, thanks for that. Um, so is, it, is this a concept that goes forward if X plus Y equals four, and basically you've come to the calculation that X plus Y equals four, so you think the concept should move towards a project? Am I characterizing it? Yeah, and I think that is a more accurate way to put it. I appreciate Mr. Kevlin putting that out, because that is what we're, we, we know what the four is. We know the 20% limit. It's just a question of what is the numerator, what is the denominator, and how do you calculate those things. So that is a better way to consider it. Um, and I, you know, I'd love to find a perfect analogy to kind of get at separating the actual project that's proposed to be built versus this you know, theoretical exercise that's required as part of an eligibility requirement just to get to the actual project. We have this problem with state density bonus projects too, where you have to kind of grow through a base project process the base project has nothing to do with the actual project. It's just a calculation requirement. So I know that can be really challenging, but it's just it is really inherent here that this determination and all the information included in, in my letter has basically nothing to do with what's actually being proposed in the project to be built. Right. So so addressing uh, Commissioner Josvina's question, um, what we have what we're asked to do tonight is to uh, determine whether your x plus y equals four, metaphorically, uh, allows this concept to fit into the parameters of, uh, of, a, of a standard that allows it to go forward as a project. Is that what we're doing here? Yeah, I mean, this is an eligibility requirement, right? right? So like either, you're, either you meet this eligibility requirement and you can move forward as a project and go through that process, which as was mentioned, will probably you know, end, back, end up back before you again, sure. or it's not eligible and it's not available to take advantage you know, of this program. It's purely just this binary yes or no, does the project meet this eligibility requirement? Thank you. Sure. Okay, thank you. No further questions. Commissioners, this matter is submitted. And as a reminder, the standard of review is error or abuse of discretion. Commissioner Epler. Thank you. Um, first, I want to start off by you know acknowledging the concerns of the neighbors of, of this project. Uh, unfortunately, we have entered into a little bit of a brave new world when it comes to development with bonuses and baseline thresholds for bonuses and theoretical projects in order to make that threshold. And you know, we see it in, in my neighborhood. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it is outside of character because they are bonuses and they are outside of what the planning department had originally set. And so it's a, it is a difficult and different thing. Um, but when it comes to what's in front of us tonight, I think it's actually a very, very narrow question. And that narrow question is how we interpret this math problem that we have in front of us. 
And, you know, I think that when we parse this and you take a ratio, I mean, common sense is a ratio, the units of the ratio in order to get to a percentage have to be the same. And I think that, you know, that aside, if we look at this language, we have, you know, we have a lot of a certain size where buildings are developed and those buildings are less than 20% of the lots principally permitted buildable gross floor area. And so it's obvious, I, th I mean, I think it's relatively obvious that when it comes to the numerator, its units need to be the same in measurement as the units of the denominator, and that that would be the gross floor area, the defined term, the one that we have that's useful in the planning code. Um, so that, that's the numerator. The denominator is trickier because we have this word buildable, and it's either redundant, um, but it's there anyway, and we have to figure out what buildable means. And I find that, that the code, again, gives us some help because it says what's buildable as determined by three different things. And those three things are fortunately all within the planning code, height limits, rear yard requirements, and required setbacks. We're not referring to other areas of the code like the building code, even though, you know, in practice, that's what we would do, but this is a theoretical exercise. It doesn't refer to, um, you know, tax assessment. Um, you know, we, we've got different areas of the code, and they define things differently. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of that example of, you know, solid hazardous waste doesn't have to be solid hazardous or waste in order to qualify as solid hazardous waste. We're dealing with these definitions that are, you know, not what's sensible, what's logical, what, you know, might happen in practice. We're dealing with what's written in the page in the code. And, and that's, you know, my, my interpretation of this. The buildable, buildable's the hard one, though. Buildable's the, the softest point on this to me. Um, but that's that's how I'm thinking of it right now. Uh, Commissioner Lindbergh. I somewhat begrudgingly concur with Commissioner Epler's analysis on this. Um, I, I, I think Mr. Teague had the unenviable job in this case of interpreting a code section that was frankly very poorly drafted um, by the Board of Supervisors. And, um, and, and I think, you know, I, I definitely hear the appellant and all of the neighbors' concerns, and I think they're valid. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this project, because it is so nebulous in its current form, has, you know, I, th I think the neighbors and the appellant have the right to be concerned about this project uh, for a lot of other reasons. But I do think what is in front of us really is just this math equation. Um, and, you know, I, I think... Mr. Teague has given a reasonable explanation as to how he, how and why he came to the answer he did. Um, you know, again, it's one of these situations, I might have come out some other way. I, I might have done that calculation differently myself, but that's not what we're here to decide necessarily. We're here to decide whether, uh, as the standard of review is, is whether Mr. Teague erred or abused his discretion um, as to this formula. Um, and, and really what we've got here is, you know, this very, very poorly drafted ordinance passed by the Board of Supervisors that didn't have sufficient review. Um, I n noted that Mr. Teague uh, admitted to watching the Board of Supervisors hearing to see if there was any guidance given, uh, and his uh, determination is that there was not, um, which 
unfortunately isn't terribly surprising, but also uh, I think speaks as to the lengths to which Mr. Teague went to try to do this the best way he knew how. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely in, uh, I, I, I think I'm, I'm into the corner of, of denying the appeal uh, with obviously the caveat that there are many further steps of review to come with this project and we haven't even seen, you know, drawings for this project yet and those haven't been presented. So uh, there's much, much to come in the future. Would you like to make that a motion before Commissioner Tresvigne um, adds further comment and I do myself? Uh, I'd like to hear what Commissioner Tresvigne has to say first and then I can make a motion. Okay, thank you. Thank you, President Sigan. I want to thank everyone uh, for the presentations. I, I share the discomfort of, of, of my colleagues and um, I think to each side, each presenter, including some members of the public, are describing this as a fiction. And I didn't sign up for fiction. <laughs> for the members of the public and the members of the neighborhood and the community, this is a real building. It's going to be a real building. It's going to have a real impact on the community. It's also going to provide real housing for people who, who need it as well. But it seems to me that this is based upon, this eligibility is based upon something that doesn't really exist and 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 I I, I think we're, we're trying to we're trying to we're struggling with getting an understanding of what of what uh, 2063 b8 uh, means and then also be uh, and also be b9 uh, and while we can say well the Board of Supervisors could have done it better I assume that when they're when they're meeting they've got a deputy city attorney in the room they've got the relevant departments maybe not in the room but nearby and and it seems like we're we're just passing along this 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 as this as an exercise, and it gives me it gives me a lot of discomfort. Uh, I I I hear my colleague talk about the how section eight B is defined and permitted buildable gross floor area as determined by height limits, et cetera. I read it as the gross floor area is determined by the height limits, rear yard requirements, and required setbacks, but buildable may be a different word, uh, hanging, hanging differently than gross floor area. Uh, but in, in, in any situation, we are, I, I think there's virtually zero um, uh, connection to, and, and no, nobody has faith in that this theoretical um, construction is actually gonna happen in the project. So uh, when the letter of determination written by the department, it's a letter about the project. This is the project must meet the apl applicability requirements. And right now we don't have a project. We don't have, a, we, we have various ideas of projects, but the project doesn't exist. And to that extent, I, w I, would, I would say that the, that uh, I, I feel that the letter was premature because the project was not, was not defined and had the department picked a picked one, then they could have said either it meets it or it doesn't. Uh, the only good thing I can say here is that I think we're going to see everybody back here at some point in the future. <laughs> so while, while while I think the vote's going to come out um, uh, not in not in in the favor of the of, of the appellants tonight, uh, I, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the overall process, uh, whether it's legislative or otherwise, 
Uh, but I do think we're going to see you all again. So thank you. Um, so I do not think that the uh, zoning administrator erred or abused. Uh, I agree with all, all the things that you all said. I think, um, Mr. Chosenia, you should run for supervisor and, and uh, so you can make sure these guys draft things correctly. But we are dealing with ambiguity and we're dealing with abstract and we're trying to make it real. You, I think that's what you just said, which is, uh, um, which is impossible at this point. Uh, and but the error abuse, uh, Mr. Teague did the best he could given the um, uh, the issues that were brought forth by Commissioner Epler and, and Commissioner Lemberg. Um, I'm I'm comfortable in allowing it to move forward because I know, and it doesn't my my crystal ball, which is permanently getting fixed in the repair shop, and I can't look into it, but I just know that uh, there will be a lot more scrutiny as this concept moves into a, a real proposal with drawings and stuff and measurements and analytics. And I know it's going to be reviewed uh, s several times. And I am going to guess that most likely uh, we're going to have a revisit on this given the amount of public scrutiny and um, and energy that will it will exist. So uh, I don't. Uh, I, I'm I would I would not regret uh, allowing it to move forward by denying the appeal, and I'm comfortable that it's not going to slip through the cracks without a, a whole bunch of scrutiny, analysis, and public comment, which is most important. So um, I would support uh, Commissioner Lemberg's anticipated motion unless uh, somebody else has a further comment I, I do have a further comment if I could and that is uh, to say that if I find on this matter or any other matter an abuse of discretion or error by the department it is in no way casting any aspersions on uh, the, the the fine work that the department does Tina Tam and, and, and DBI as, as well. And I, I know that's not what you were saying, but I do know that now people watch these videos and I wouldn't want someone to go back and say, well, there's there's some question. I mean, somebody used the words that the, the numbers were being fudged. I don't think they were being fudged. There's honest disagreements as to what goes in the numerator, what goes in the denominator, uh, honest differences of, dif of, of, of definitions. Um, but so I, I just want to, I just want to, uh, make that clear. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I would move to deny the appeal on the basis that the zoning administrator neither erred nor abused his discretion in uh, issuing the letter of determination. Okay, so on Commissioner Lemberg's motion, Commissioner Trezvina? Aye. Commissioner Epler? Aye. President Swig? Aye. So that motion carries four to zero and the appeal is denied. We, we take a five-minute break, please? Yes. And, President Swig, before we go to break, I'm just wondering in terms of the order, since we lost the Lake Street items, we now have a tree item and then permits on 23rd Avenue. I think the tree people, um, there is a lot of public comment. Should we switch the order, or do you want to just go with what's on the agenda? Yeah, I, I see your point. Uh, yeah, it, um, I, I think that we switching it would be 
Okay, so we will hear the 23rd Avenue cases first when we come back from our five-minute break. Thank you so much for your patience. Thank you. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
Okay, ready, President Slick? Okay, welcome back to the December 14, 2022 meeting of the San Francisco Board of Appeals. We will be hearing items 6A and 6B next. These are appeal numbers 22-076 and 22-077. Uh, Kieran Maher versus Department of Building Inspection, subject property 146 23rd Avenue. Appeal number 22-076, permit description, uh, appealing the issuance on October 5th, 2022 to Thomas Monahan of an alteration permit. Add structural beam and structural piers, replace existing wood column and piers, replace existing slab and reinforce foundation. It's permit number 2022-0913-2353. And appeal number 22-077, appealing the issuance on October 31st, 2022 to Thomas Monahan of an alteration permit. Structural upgrade to beam and structural piers, replace wood columns and piers, replace existing slab, reinforce the foundation, minor plumbing and electrical work, excavation of two feet for additional head height in middle section to comply with complaint number 2022-96964. And this is permit number 2022-1028-5449. And we will hear from the appellants first. Mr. Emlidge is representing the appellant, and you have 14 minutes. Thank you. Uh, good evening and happy holidays, commissioners, um, and, uh, and Julie and Alec and the esteemed Mr. Givner. Um, I'm Scott Emblidge. I represent the Maher family. Um, as you will see, they are longtime San Francisco residents who until now had nothing but good relations with their neighbors. Um, this appeal about is about one straightforward issue. Should a permit holder who excavated next to and beneath the level of a neighbor's foundation without providing the legally required notice, without getting the, uh, the required permits, be allowed to continue work even though the permit holder has covered up the unlawful work so that neither the neighbor nor DBI can inspect the prior work and make sure the neighbor's foundation is sound and been properly protected. I sure hope the answer to that is obvious. No, the permit holder shouldn't be able to get away with that. The Maher family saw last August that a substantial amount of excavation was occurring next door. They could see that excavation, that the excavation was on the property line and that their and that it appeared to be quite deep below the uh, beneath their foundation. Uh, as you've you've seen the video, you've seen photos, but here's one overhead, please. Uh, one photo showing uh, sort of shockingly deep excavation that they observed. So what did they do? They tried to resolve this issue um, in a neighborly way. They asked the permit holder to make sure that he had proper permits. Uh, they asked for plans so that they could be uh, confident that their foundation wasn't in danger of being undermined. They were brushed off with sort of don't worry comments from Mr. Monahan. But Mr. Monahan realized that he'd been caught, caught red-handed. So he did two things. First, he piled dirt up where the dangerous excavation had occurred to hide the unlawful excavation. Second, he applied for a permit which was issued in October. But that permit falsely stated that it was uh, just for strengthening an existing foundation, not excavating and creating a new one. The Mahers appealed the permit. DBI, quote, determined that the scope of work was misrepresented on the plan. Excavation of the footing on the south side has undermined the foundation. Notice of violation has been issued. Now, Mr. Monahan, an experienced developer, then tried to circumvent this board's stop work notice 
by applying for a second permit, which I think DBI acknowledges should not have been issued while this appeal was pending. So here we are. We know that Mr. Monahan excavated adjacent to the Maher's foundation without providing notice or obtaining permits. We know he covered up that work before it could be inspected. From the limited information the Maher's engineers were able to obtain and observe, they believe the foundation may have been undermined. All the Maher's want, all they want, is to see what Mr. Monahan did unlawfully and determine whether any danger exists to their, to their foundation. The permit holder's brief is really nothing but obfuscation. It doesn't explain why Mr. Monahan failed to comply with state law by giving the Mahers notice of proposed excavation so the Mahers could make sure that their property was protected. It doesn't explain why Mr. Monahan engaged in substantial excavation and foundation work without permits. It contains statements from professionals about work Mr. Monahan hopes to do going forward. That's fine and good, but nothing from any professional about the unlawful work that was already done and whether anything was done to protect or shore up the Maher's foundation. Instead, the permit holder suggests that the Maher's are not really concerned about their home, but rather they're extortion artists, endangering the permit holder in order to get a payoff. They say the Maher's demanded that the permit holder pay um, the Maher's $50,000 or more. In fact, I drafted an agreement that merely asked the, um, Mon Mr. Monahan to reimburse the Mahers for expenses they incurred um, with, our, with uh, engineers and attorneys, and I put a cap on that of $50,000. Look, I've negotiated dozens of these kind of neighbor agreements. Um, this is a standard type of provision. This is, this is the provision, which I know is too small for you to read, um, that provides for the supposed extortion. I've blown it up here. As you can see, it doesn't put a dollar in the Maher's pocket. It asks for reimbursement of expenses that they're going to have to incur to try to understand what this unlawful work, what unlawful work was done and how it can be fixed. I even made it clear in a comment in the margin that I'm not asking for a payment. I'm asking and I'm putting a cap on the reimbursement expenses. But again, this is obfuscation. It, it diverts attention from the real issue. The real issue is unlawful work that needs to be inspected. The Mahers are a sweet family. Uh, they, they are good neighbors and they are victims here. They are simply homeowners who woke up to find out without any notice that their neighbor was apparently undermining their foundation. Please grant these appeals. Don't let work go forward until Mr. Monahan does the right thing and provides access to the Mahers engineer and DBI. I'd like you to now hear from Kieran Maher. Good evening. My name is Kieran Maher, and I'm proud to say I'm a local San Franciscan born and raised in the city. And I had the pleasure of growing up in the Richmond district of San Francisco at 144 23rd Avenue during my teenage years and beyond. When I was a young kid, I saw my parents struggle to save every penny they could to buy a house for our family and so that we could grow up on 23rd Avenue. The Richmond District was truly a wonderful community to grow up in. We had many kind neighbors that cared for one another on the block for more than 15 years that my family has lived there. Over the years, my family have developed so many beautiful relationships with our neighbors and community. 
We, took, we, we looked after the elderly on the block when they needed help. We babysat many of the neighbor's kids on the block. My mom bakes the neighbor's treats during the holidays, even to this day. We taught kids on the block how to play sports. And, evenly I'm, and even I'm currently coaching two middle school basketball teams in the city. Unfortunately, I'm missing one of our games tonight to be here in court. We have had great relationships with our last four neighbors on both sides over the last 15 plus years. We have house-sit our neighbors' houses when they're on vacation. I even dog-sit and house-sit the next-door neighbors at 146 23rd Avenue for the old owners, Jimmy and Christina Adams. I moved back home during the pandemic because my mom is handicapped with multiple sclerosis, and she was in and out of the hospital during the pandemic. So I moved back home to take care of my two senior citizen parents as a caretaker. Unfortunately, during the pandemic, our neighbor at 146 23rd Avenue, Jimmy, died of a sudden heart attack. I remember that day vividly. I woke up that morning to several missed phone calls and text messages. When Christina and Jimmy Adams, friends and family, came over to console Christina after her sudden loss, I was the first neighbor they called. They called me to watch their puppy after Jimmy had passed away that morning. I took their puppy for a long walk that day and picked up a bunch of pastries and sandwiches from Angelina's Deli around the corner for everyone grieving their loss at 146 23rd Avenue. My family and I truly care about our community and next door neighbors. So when Christina sold her house, we hoped to have a similar positive relationship with the new neighbors. But we received no introduction to our new neighbors, and the first interaction we had with them was the unpermitted excavation of their garage and foundation on August 16th, 2022. Since that day in August, I have spoken to Mr. Monahan as a concerned neighbor with a simple request to do their project with permits, follow regulation, and do it by the books so it does not damage my family's home. My family have tried to extend the olive branch as neighbors to Mr. Monahan for months, and we still are. But are pleased to do the construction by the book by not damage, damaging the two neighbors' foundations has fallen on deaf ears for the last five months, and that is why we are here today. My family and I are simply asking this board to help us find out what work was done without notice and without permits next to and under our foundation. If Mr. Monaghan will remove the dirt, this work, this work so that our engineers can make sure that our foundation has been protected, then we can all live in peace. So please do not let Mr. Monahan resume work until our engineer and DBI can inspect the prior work and make sure it was done by the book. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You still have four minutes and 40 seconds. You're fine? Okay. Okay, thank you. We have a question from President Swig. Uh, Mr. Emblich, please. Um, w would you detail as specifically as you can uh, the, the, the needs of the Meyer, Meyer family? Uh, and you, you said we need some stuff done to ensure that no damage. Can you specifically detail what steps you want done to ensure that that family is, is comfortable? Right. When I hear this, the purpose, I'm, uh, reason I'm asking for this is one, I want my fellow commissioners to hear it. And, and second, when DBI comes to the podium, uh, I want to ask them, is this a reasonable scope uh, in consideration if we find that in fact uh, there is evidence of truth, and I'm not doubting it, 
in, in your testimony. Uh, so we, we have some natural steps to move forward if, if, if need be. So if you can right. detail exactly what steps need to be done to make uh, the, the appellant uh, comfortable. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm gonna ba back into that. What I mean by that is, let's look at what should have happened, all right? What, what happens throughout the city, this is a city where there are buildings right next to each other, somebody wants to excavate, that's fine. They give notice to their neighbor, um, that gives the, the neighbor the opportunity to, in advance, know what the work is going to be, have their own engineers come in, examine the plans, the engineering specs, and if necessary, take steps to protect their property. And what so frequently happens is lawyers get involved to draft an agreement, and that agreement says, for example, uh, the affected neighbor, we will survey their property, we'll take okay, I, I, I don't want you to testify again. I asked you a very specific question. I'm giving you an opportunity here. I know, I know you've already testified that notice wasn't given. Right. You've also testified that you think, and we'll get that confirmation from DBI, that a, a permit was not applied for or issued for work that was done uh, a little too soon, mm -hmm. okay? So, we, we, and we know that there is fear that from the property owner that they, that their, their, uh, uh, that their house may have been undermined. We, we know all that, all right? And I'm, so what I'm specifically asking at this point, mm -hmm. based, you know, we've heard your testimony, what you said, we need some things to get done to make sure that everything is okay. What specific things do you need to get done and referring to your own document that will in cost not exceed approximately $30,000? Right, so um, sorry if I wasn't being as specific as I should have been. Uh, since we're trying to undo what has been done, first we need the, uh, the dirt removed um, so that DBI and our engineers can go in and see what was the scope of the excavation? If it was in fact below the foundation, what work was done when they shifted the scope of work to make sure that the unlawful work did not undermine the foundation? Was there underpinning? Uh, was underpinning necessary? Engineers will tell you that, not lawyers. Uh, if, if not, was there grouting or other infill that was done so that engineers can tell the Maher family it's okay? It, maybe they jumped the gun, maybe they didn't do it the right way, but it's safe. So you want engineering review, that's one. And, and, if, and if the engineering review says it's not safe, then a collaborative effort between Mr. Monahan's engineers, DBI, and our engineers to institute a, uh, uh, an underpinning program to make sure that the Mahers Foundation is safe, and then they can go forward with their work. Thank you very much. Mr. Trezvina, I'll yield to you. I think I just have a brief question. I appreciate the the uh, answer to to President Swig. Uh, what you are requesting obviously relates to your client and your property. Is are you aware of of the the extent of any of the work on the 150 on the side of the of the property that abuts 150 23rd Avenue? Are you aware of either that is greater or less than what is on the other adjoining line? It appears to be greater from what DBI found. And the property owner is here uh, to testify in public comment. 
Oh, so great. it's I then mean, I'll then I'll forego the rest of my questions for for that person because because I, I was not aware of that person uh, uh, position right. and I'll I'll happy to hear from the one fifty twenty third Avenue property owner. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We will now hear from the permit holder. And you have 14 minutes. Thank you. Thank you, honorable commissioners and the executive director. My name is Michael Betts from the Allen Mackins Law Firm. I'm here honored to represent Lauren Monahan, also a Bay Area native. What was supposed to be a dream come true of buying a home in San Francisco became a nightmare due to a bully neighbor seeking to take advantage of this appellate process, knowing that it'll stop the construction. In short, after she bought her home, she learned of some foundational issues with her father. Working with her father, they try to correct it. Any of the corrective work they have done will not pose any threat to anybody's property. In fact, quite the opposite. By securing her property and the foundation, it'll secure the neighboring properties. And you've heard zero, not one piece of evidence, that any of the work that has been done or will be done will present any problem. The neighbor seized on this process, the appellate process that we all know about, filed appeals, and you're right, sought $50,000 initially from the initial agreement that you didn't see. And if we pay that $50,000 at the end of that agreement that he partially showed you, they'll go away. That's what this has all been about. Lauren took the high road, worked with DBI and the neighbor to try to fix everything, and we've been an open book since the very beginning. Permits have issued. There's been zero argument or complaints that the permits that are issued, which we're here for today, have any problem whatsoever. There's speculation. There's complaints about what something happened in the past. And there's two pages on that brief that you saw that take shots at their family. This great family that you heard about, that's all they have done. They've taken shots and insults at the Monahans. And when this all didn't work out, meaning we didn't pay, they, bull they threatened to hire an attorney that has apparent influence over the board. They have made threats that she and her family will be harmed uh, if they don't make the payment to them. There's been arguments that, uh, that they blocked her driveway, they've taken pictures of her. Um, all these things that have come down, nothing that has to do with the permits, but if we pay that money, then they go away. We urge and respectfully submit that San Francisco wants people, like Lauren, that want to come back to the city, build their properties, and work with the city. You'll next hear from Lauren, her father, our expert, and then Ms. Chase to conclude some of our issues. We very much appreciate your time. Hello. Thank you for your time this evening. My name is Lauren Monahan, and I am the I am the owner of the home at 14623 Ave, which I purchased in July of this year. It is my primary residence. The home was built in 1916 and needed repairs, which I was aware of from the inspections report. We put a new roof on and I painted the house. Uh, what the inspection report did not disclose was the failing of the foundation of the home. It said further inspection was required, which we did. Professionals were hired, plans were drawn, and they were approved, not only once, but twice by DBI. There has been no evidence presented that shows any harm has been done to the appellant's property, none. Every claim that they have made is speculative. I'll let Tom and John speak to these items in greater detail. Since having purchased the home, my safety has been jeopardized and I have been harassed by the appellant. I have already experienced one significant earthquake while in my home due to the appellant's delaying the retrofit. 
and knowing the state of my foundation at the time, I genuinely feared for my life. Furthermore, the appellants have continuously used intimidation tactics, harassing me and workers who have been hired for work unrelated to this appeal. The appellant threatened to sabotage my reputation and relationship with the neighbors on the block because they know everyone. They threatened to lawyer up with an influential attorney if we didn't agree to the settlement, which was completely extortionary in nature and did demand that I pay $50,000 and require $10 million of insurance for a 400 square foot retrofit. They also threatened to delay the project and keep this going for multiple years. They have repeatedly taken unnecessary photographs during unrelated work, such as painting and landscaping, and they refuse to stop when the workers ask not to be personally photographed. They also have moved paint buckets and items that are my property, blocked my driveway with their car just last week. Despite trying to be accommodating to the appellant's concerns, they have not been cooperative. When we met with them and offered to show them the plans for the project, they didn't want to look at them. In fact, in a face-to-face -face conversation, they told me that they didn't care what I did to my house. So these appeals came as quite a surprise. <clears throat> Considering we have redrawn the plans and altered our scope of work to cater to their concerns, I do seriously question the appellant's motives. However, every time we address their problem, their concerns change and now they are mostly monetary. I do not have $50,000 to give the appellant. I don't have $30,000 to give the appellant. This project is already more than I budgeted for. I spent my life savings trying to buy this home. I would ask that this board reinstate the secondary building permit so I may complete this retrofit without further delay. I do not want to live in fear in my own house. The appellant has painted a picture that we are doing something wrong here. Every action that we have taken has been in good faith. I am simply trying to do the right thing in repairing my home. An authorized building permit and approval from licensed professionals should be sufficient in trying to update the foundation of my own home. Please do not allow the appellant to continue to delay my ability to live in safety and enjoy my home. Uh, thank you, board members. I appreciate your help. My name is Tom Monahan, and um, I'm just gonna kind of give you my perspective on what happened. Um, obviously, I'm Lauren's father. She bought this house in the summer. Uh, the inspection report that was done by the seller is the inspection report that she relied upon when she purchased the house. Uh, she knew it needed a new roof. She got a permit for that work and had a new roof put on. It also needed painting. And there was a minor reference in that inspection report about cracks in the foundation that required further inspection. I did not see the report before she bought the house. After she closed escrow, I went and walked the, the uh, basement property with her and saw that the cracks that were referenced uh, in a minor way were much, much more substantial. And I said, this really needs to be reviewed. Uh, when they went to review it, it, it turns out that the structural slab was two inches thick, had no reinforced, no rebar in it, the house was built in, in 1916, so it's over 100 years old. And back then, those foundations were not properly um, uh, reinforced. So the main structural beams, which were on the, not on the perimeter of the property, but in the middle of the property, those posts were very unsupported and bear substantial weight on, on the property. So uh, uh, in, uh, 
an effort was made to try to explore how bad how bad those foundations were, and some digging did in, did involve that. There was some destruction of that small slab, and as soon as we got into that work, we realized that this is much more substantial than we thought. There was never a cover up. There was never an effort to do anything uh, incorrectly. It was an exploratory phase of the work. Once we and that was in August, and they worked for about a week before they figured out what was going on. It was at that point that we realized that we needed to get a, a basically a replacement for the foundation uh, that was failing and sought to do that. And a permit was issued in October. Uh, licensed professionals were hired. I'm actually a licensed architect, have been for 40 years, but it was something that I wanted um, additional professional help on. And so we called in a consulting architect, John Egan, who will speak to you soon, and a structural engineer and a soils engineer to come in and evaluate that. And you know, on Lauren's behalf, I have a little bit more expertise in that. And we said, yes, we're going to need to get a permit. We did pull a permit. And that permit sought to support her. This is a tiny little less than 400 square feet project. It's a very, very small area that we're talking about. and. Um, uh, a permit was 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 designed. It was issued, and the building inspector came and we explained everything that was going on. He said, "Yes, it all looks fine." He suggested we talk to the uh, mayors. We did. We knocked on their door, spoke to Mr. Mayor Senior, and he said, "I'm fine with everything that you're doing." And we said, "Well, would you like to see it? Here's a set of the plans." No, I don't want it. Everything's fine. We said, "Okay, good. We're going to resume work." which we did, and a couple of days later, he uh, was worried again and filed an initial appeal. That appeal said, revise the permit, uh, seek for a new permit within five days, um, pull a permit within 15 days, and complete the work within 30 days. That's exactly what the notice of violation said. I can show you a copy of it if you'd like to see it. So we scrambled and within five, five or six days submitted a new, a new permit, which brought in the perimeter work to the inside of the, of the perimeter, five feet away from either property line, which our engineers and everybody said, that should solve the problem. That's not gonna undermine anybody's foundation. And uh, modified the permit and got a second permit with a, with a more limited scope of work. And that permit was, was reviewed. I went to the building department and sat with the building inspector for hours and went through that whole process. They were okay with it. Um, we issued, that permit was issued. We paid for that permit. We, we uh, explained to the mayors that we had modified the permit, gave them copies of that. So we've done everything that we can think of. We met with their engineer. They had an engineer that they came out. We offered to have our engineer speak to his engineer. They did that. We understand that, that from that conversation that their engineer was happy. We actually did not excavate any significant work under the mayor's side of the, of the property. It's five feet away. And what was done was small potholing to determine where the footings were. We did not encounter their footings. We did not go across the property line. So all of their concerns are all very speculative. So uh, I think that we are uh, acting in good faith. We have acted in good faith. And you know, I would encourage the board to reject the appeal and allow Lauren, right now her house is being supported with temporary bracing and she's very concerned that uh, she wants to complete the work. And we're trying to do everything uh, 
with permits above board. There's no uh, hidden agenda here. This is, uh, I think, a big concern and a big fear, and I think that there's really no actual damage or ch chance of damage. You, I think in your packet, you've got letters from our structural engineer and from the soils engineer. So I'll turn it over to John Egan, who is a consulting um, architect helping us on the project. Thank you. Happy holidays. Um, my name is John Egan. I'm an architect in California. Uh, and Tom asked me to consult uh, with him on this project. Um, the revised scope of work that Tom is describing is that in the initial permit that he did pull from the city uh, had foundation work that was uh, underneath his existing foundation and the revised scope of work, he moved that work five feet away from the property line. Uh, now, to explain that, why that's significant to you, uh, Tom's talking about a roughly two foot deep excavation. And if you think about going back five feet and down two feet, it means that the forces from any adjacent footing are gonna go well underneath that. There's no, uh, it's, again, it's a force of gravity. The house comes down, the forces go at an angle, he's five feet back and two feet down, which means that uh, that work will no longer have any uh, physical effect on that location. Uh, the one thing that we would recommend to do, which uh, is not currently on the revised uh, permit, uh, is to uh, have the soils engineer who came out to the site uh, uh, confirm the compaction of the soil at the location where he did the exploratory work. So Tom went and looked at the foundation to see what was there. That's a pretty standard practice in the industry that you would do what's called potholing, where you dig down and you look to see what, what is that foundation made out of? Is it crumbling? Is there a major problem? Uh, and at those locations, uh, they should compact the soil back and that compaction should be checked by the geotechnical engineer that uh, Tom has. Uh, 30 seconds. Uh, that's standard practice. Other than that, uh, I would suggest reinstating the second permit on the premise that Lauren's house is currently shored up uh, and all of this work is now occurring well within the property and not at the property line any longer. So that would be it. Okay, thank you. We have a few questions. President Swig and then Commissioner Lemberg. I think I'll ask counselor, uh, uh, to counsel to come to the podium. So you can answer on behalf of your client. Sure. My name is Michael Benson. This is Carolyn Chase. We're both co-counsel. Okay. Um, before, the, it, 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 we, we have seen evidence, it has been claimed, that work was done without a permit. Was work done without a permit? You're under oath. Yeah, yeah. that's what I said. I don't know. Yeah. All right, so then, we then, then the, Ms. 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 Is, counsel, sit down, please, because oh. th this is where lawyers get in my way. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, Ms. Monahan, will you, will you, Ms. Monahan? Ms. Monahan. Hello. Hi. Did you do work without a permit at your home? We did some minor exploratory work, which I understand okay, is you. typical. So, all right, thank you. Sit down. You did work without a permit. Uh, thank you. Sit down. Uh, counselor, also. You, you, you've made me upset, I have to say, because you implied that lawyers have influence over this board. No. There isn't a lawyer in the world that has influence over this board, and that would imply that we are corrupt. 
and we are not corrupt. If the mayor of San Francisco, who appointed me, walked in this door and said, Rick, I want you to really look at this and, and look in this direction, I would look the other way. So uh, I just want to let you know, nobody is influential over us. The words you that, can sit down. The words I said, you no, I need to correct, sir, I didn't say you were. I'm gonna, you can no, sit I down. I, what I'm we were sorry. told is that they hired someone that had that. I have no way of said that or accused it. What we were told is we were threatened that they're going to hire an attorney I'm that has influence. I'm just informing you. I understand, so you I'm not be, saying that. So you can be I'm, comfortable that, that we are not influenced by anybody. I agree. And we are not corrupt. And, and any implication by that council or the, your council or any council that walks in this room and implies that we can be influenced is, is a very upsetting thing to this person who is a volunteer who has sat here for nearly 10 years. And, and I want to tell you something. Nobody influences me. Can you I, sit down, please? Well, I can't be sitting down. No, I'm can you say, sit down, please? It's not what I said, and I'm going to be on the public record say it's not what I said. We were told that they were going to hire someone that could. That is what I said. I have never said that this board could be influenced. I don't Look at say the tape. It. Thank you, Mr. Lemberg. Thank you, President Twig. I, I very strongly agree with everything you just said. I also want to... Uh, ask a couple of pointed questions. You, you kind of asked one of them, uh, which was, was work done without a permit? That was my first question. The answer is yes, um, as we've already heard. Uh, the second question, and, and obviously I believe DBI will speak significantly as to this because uh, the notice of a violation that was issued was actually for the property on the other side of the property from the mayor's property, um, which was not super clear from the briefing, but um, uh, what was my question? I lost it. Um, no, you were not the one who upset me. Um, what I haven't seen in the response from from the prop, from the permit holder is any addressing of the notice of violation from the Department of Building Inspection and its merits, which are quite clearly laid out more so than usual in an NOV. Uh, for the property. Can you, any of you, speak as to uh, why the NOV was issued the way it was uh, and, and why there was, there's an allegation from a neighbor on one side of undermining uh, who appealed it and then a finding by DBI on the other side that it was in fact undermined? I can, I can speak to that. Thank you. Uh, so the situation you have is, is that you have a notice of violation that there was work occurring without a permit. And so the owner drew up plans, discussed it with structural engineers, discussed it with architects, submitted the plans to the city, and attained a permit for the work. That is a typical response if you're given a notice of violation having done work. And this could be any type of work. I mean, in this, you know, times it's, in this case, it's, it's you know, work in a, in a basement and it's adjacent to, to neighbors and people are very concerned and so we tried to address that. Uh, other times it's where someone says you're only allowed to have a three foot six fence in the front yard and you put up a five foot fence and you get a notice of violation to get, to get a permit. Uh, so the Monahans went and got a permit. Uh, that's a normal response to that. Uh, and then when it was uh, rejected and, you know, there was a, uh, and it was put on hold, they revised the permit and tried to resolve that by moving the work away from the property line. 
uh, again, that's a fairly uh, typical thing that you would try to do because they want to try and button up the project as fast as they can. They're not looking to have a really prolonged process occur where they've got a house short up. Uh, it's not a good situation to be in. So they said, look, let's just move the work away from the property line. Let's try and make everybody happy and continue. Uh, and that was the second permit. Uh, I think now we're here because, uh, you know, we're construction experts and, and we understand how to try and resolve things. Other folks aren't necessarily, and we're trying to be as accommodating as we can to explain why this is okay or why this should be acceptable. And that's why I was saying that the compaction report along the property line really should solve the situation because that's basically saying the soil has been put in place at a compaction level that is appropriate and supports the condition. Uh, should take care of everything, so. Thank you. Thank you, we have a question from Commissioner Trisvenia. Uh Thank you, and if I uh, could call you back first, uh, sir, uh, Mr. Egan, correct? Right. Yes, uh, so, uh, but I wanna say broadly that I, I wanna share, I share President Swig's concerns over both the statements tonight and as also some of the, some of the things in, in, in the brief, uh, but for my question for you, um, I I believe you or others have described this as a very small area. It's only 400 square feet. Right. Can you be a little bit more clear as to are we talking four by 100? Are we talking eight by 50? What are, what are we talking about? Uh, how, how do we get to like how do we get to 400 like 20, square feet? It was the 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 shape of the garage is say this piece of paper. Okay. Uh, you drive your car in, and then there was a little, halfway through the garage, there was a little two-foot retaining wall, and that, so the, the soil was a little higher. And behind that parking space is where there was three posts in the middle of the garage. Those are the ones that Tom is saying uh, were sitting on this unreinforced slab of concrete. They started it, they were taking that out to see if to underpin it. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, realized they needed to get a permit um, based but on the, I, 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 yeah. And my so, question so, so is, it's, how, it's, this, how, it's the rear area here on the back of the house. It's uh, roughly 20 by 20 all right, space. Okay, so, but now, so, it's even, now it's even smaller, because now they've moved it in five well, feet for, for, uh, Let me just say, I, 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 for yeah. a garage, I wouldn't consider 20 by 20 a, 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 a casual or small, all small area. Second question I have for, for you is, so now that you've moved the work five feet, have you evaluated any impact on the original work on the neighboring premises? Well, that, that's, that's from, so where they did their exploratory work, uh, Tom filled it in with uh, concrete, which is stronger than the surrounding earth. The con the, there's compacted sand is, the sta is what's there now. So the concrete is stronger than that. Uh, and that was, you know, two foot little areas where he explored. Uh, and then in order to get to that exploration, he had to basically scoop the earth out in front of it. And what I'm saying is, is put the earth back and compact it properly underneath the observation of a geotechnical engineer. That is the right way to do it. So, so based on your assessment, the, there is no right. lingering that, that, impact or current impact of the work that was done as, as on, long as that earth is, as long as the earth is confirmed as having been put back at the proper compaction by a geotechnical engineer, then there is no effect that, that has occurred. Uh, and, and to do that is easy. We would just note that on the drawing. 
he would have to resubmit it to DBI to get to have that approved as a note on the drawing. Uh, so ha have you done that assessment, or are you saying that the, wouldn't be part of what you would do in the future? Well, the, the geotechnical engineer came out to the site as part of this process because I was saying to everybody, I was like, hey, you know, we want to make people happy here and resolve the issue. The idea so, is, so is to resolve you're it. You're not answering my question. I'm sorry. So go ahead. Well, so have you, have you or the geotechnical engineer assessed that there is no damage to the neighboring property. The, I believe the geotechnical engineer reviewed it in the field and had a, a letter that he wrote noting that. So the, the answer is yes. Yes. Great. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And the question I have for the attorneys. Thank. Thank you, Mr. <coughs> Egan. Okay. Uh, for I, I believe is Ms. Case or Chase, you wrote the brief. Yes, sir. Yes. So you mentioned um, that uh, your client had to suffer through. An earthquake that occurred that where she was risked her life. Can you elaborate on that earthquake in San Francisco? Sure. So it wasn't in San Francisco specifically, but it was felt by our client in San Francisco. I think it originated in San Jose. And as a result of that earthquake, she became more concerned about the status of her foundation. Thank you. And uh, has she had to vacate the space? She has not. She has not. Okay. And um, you mentioned in your brief about extortion, other intimidation tactics. Have have you or anyone filed any police reports on that regard? No. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. We will now hear from the Department of Building Inspection. Uh, good evening, Commissioners. I'm Matthew Green, representing the Department of Building Inspection uh, tonight. I'd like to just go over the timeline of the permits here, if you don't mind. Um, on October 5th, the permit ending in 2353 was issued for some structural upgrades. Um, it appears the work did start prior to the, work, the permit being issued. Um, we, we did not receive any um, complaints uh, on that matter, so I cannot... Uh, comment on that, but it does appear that work did start before this permit was issued. October 11th, DVI did receive a complaint alleging work beyond the scope of the issued permit. On October 14th, the site visit was performed by our district inspector, who uh, it, it appeared to him that the work was going on according to that permit. On October 20th, the second site visit was performed, and then an NOV was issued for work beyond the scope of the permit, including unpermitted excavation. Uh, we issued a stop work order that day, uh, asked them to backfill the lot and compact the excavation. Um, the owners were also required to submit an engineer's report um, addressing the uh, compaction and uh, the structural integrity of the structure. Sorry, the integrity of the structure. Uh, co coincidentally, DBI received a notice of appeal from the board of the same day as the second site visit and NOV issuance. The NOV we issued was uh, as a result of our complaint investigation. It wasn't related to this appeal. Um, it's just a coincidence the permit was suspended and the NOV was issued on the same day. Um, as of 4 o'clock this afternoon, we have still not received an engineer's report for the compaction, uh, which we required to be uh, submitted within five days of our notice of violation, which, as I recall, was November 20th. Was when, so we should have had a report by November 25th. We still not have, have not received one. Um, a second permit ending in 5499 sorry, 5449 was issued on October 31st for a very similar description of work plus the addition of the excavation and bringing the excavation in 
five feet from the property lines. Um, I can't say if this permit was obtained in good faith to comply with our NOV or was an effort to circumvent the previous appeal. I, I will say we should have received the engineer's report for the compaction and confirmed that the compaction and backfilling was done before this permit was uh, issued. I believe we did issue this permit in error. Um, if this permit had not been appealed, I would have suspended it until the result of this hearing was known. Um, on November 3rd, there was a site visit by senior inspector uh, who verified that the um, area had been backfilled as ordered. Um, in another coincidence, we received the appeal notice for the second permit um, on the same day as that site visit. Um, I would say I hesitate. Um, they've asked that the second permit be upheld and the, the work, there was work done on the first permit that needs to be inspected. Um, so I hesitate for one permit to be um, revoked and one permit to be upheld. I, I do say we still have a um, order requesting the uh, engineer's report. We, we have not received that. Um, the property at 150 um, 23rd Avenue was undermined and there is a notice of violation that we issued against that property, uh, asking them to, um, advising them that the property had been undermined and asking them to get an engineer's report for the um, integrity of their property and to make repairs as necessary. Uh, we, that is pretty standard um, procedure. When a property is undermined, we do issue a notice of violation against the property um, rather than the property that caused the problem. That way there's the, the, the unsafe condition is at the property 150. Um, I, I'm a little, I'm a little um, conflicted about what to recommend to you here, whether the, the appeal should be upheld and be a brand new permit with um, uh, full uh, geotechnical analysis or not, or to allow both permits to be um, moved forward uh, with the addition of the geotech um, assessment. We can easily add uh, geotech requirements to the special inspections requirements for this project that would confirm that the, um, the, the, that the, um, the excavation is done safely. Um, I'm available for any questions you may have. President Swig. Thank you. Um, so just to confirm, so when you come across, as you reported that you testified that when you came to the property, you saw that there had been work done in advance of, of getting proper permitting. Uh, just because it was, there was no notice of violation, that doesn't make it any less illegal, correct? It was still a correct. illegal that the work was done prior to a, a, a permit being issued. You should get a, a building permit for exploratory work as well. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, uh, f furthermore, uh, what you're testifying is that the, the work uh, that has been done um, required some reports within a certain specific time period and, uh, and, and also exceeded the scope of uh, the terms of the permit. And so both of those uh, can be considered illegal acts? Um, the notice of violation we issued asked them to submit an engineer's report within five days. Right. There are special inspections attached to the two uh, issued permits that um, need to be submitted by um, special inspectors or structural engineers prior to the completion of the permit. Um, the legal act, I, could you rephrase that question? I'm not so, quite sure. So by virtue of the fact they didn't come up with the report as, as was determined condition of, of the notice of violation and the issuance of the permit, that they, they, are, they are acting with, outside of a legal scope. How is that? They are not in compliance with our notice of violation okay, at this thank time. thank you. 
and then there, furthermore, I lost track after that. There's a there's the was a third notice violation, but it's uh, uh, the neighbor's property at 150 uh, 23rd Avenue right. was undermined by the work at this property. We've issued that created an unsafe condition at 150 23rd Avenue. So we issued a notice of violation to that property owner. Right, but I don't think that we can, uh, as much as I would like to <laughs> talk about that as far as, that's not our scope tonight. Our scope tonight is the, the, the permit at hand. Correct. Correct? Okay. Um, I'm going to look at the, so that, that it's a coincidence that there happens to be a notice of violation on the other side of the property, but that doesn't necessarily have any influence on our decision tonight, correct? Um, or does it? Um, no, it, it, I need some rules. <laughs> yeah, you're right that you're not considering the the work on, on 150, but I, I think it's fair to ask for context to understand the entire scope of the project. Great, thank you. Now, yeah, go ahead. I, I wouldn't say it's a coincidence. It was a direct result of the work being done beyond the scope of these permits. Okay. I just, I, I just don't want to dabble talking about one permit, uh, which, is, which is not in question. We, you know, we sometimes drift from sure. our scope. So um, in the past, I think this is your, your first under your replacing Mr. Duffy, that we have had an undermining um, foundation discussion. And, you know, uh, I remember uh, one, I think, in Pacific Heights. I remember one on Sacramento Street. I remember one out in the avenue somewhere. And, and the testimony is always the same. Uh, is our house going to fall down? I mean, that's, that's basically, the neighbor comes in and says, oh my God, they're undermining our, our foundation from next door, and we had no idea, there is no permit. Is our house gonna fall down? We're scared to death. That, that's the consistent testimony, okay. At which point, we sit here and we say, okay, how do we make them feel more comfortable about this as we go through the process, the, the legal piece. So can, can you tell us and also tell the appellant um, the steps that DBI, Joe Duffy did a great job, I, I, you know, now, now's your chance to, to sit on the big stage. Uh, how DBI protects uh, citizens who have those fears, citizens that are subject to their neighbors doing illegal work on foundations and potentially undermining their next door neighbor's foundations. What, what does DBI do? What steps are, is DBI going to take at this point to protect, forget whether the, the, the appeal is, is valid, found validated or invalidated, but what is DBI going to do to make sure that, that uh, the appellant is, is comfortable and protected? And for that matter, the guy on the other side too. Well, we, we did it. We wrote a notice of violation. We noticed that one foundation was undermined. Um, as work proceeds, inspections will be um, done by district inspector. Uh, there will also be uh, reports submitted by the structural engineer for the project for the foundation. Um, if we notice any um, uh, um, undermining of the neighbor's foundation during the inspection process, we'll we'll um, we'll, we'll issue a stop work order and notice of violation. If there's any um, complaints um, 
We're not there all the time, obviously. The neighbor is. If there's any complaints, we'll investigate. And um, uh, and what comfort are you going to offer? Um, I'm not challenging. I'm just because uh, uh, Joe Joe had a, a great. Um, he reassured us on a constant basis with detail on, on, the, on the process that DBI goes through to make sure that's, that a neighbor's house doesn't fall down because their, you know, their foundation has been undermined. So, you know, what, what steps uh, can these folks be assured will be taken that you'll, you, you have this project under scrutiny to make sure that, that further, that any damage, I'm not saying any damage has been done, but potential damage is, is not done. Well, like I said, we, we will be doing regular inspections of the work. Uh, before anything is covered up, our inspectors will uh, observe the um, work being done and, and the adjacent uh, property. Okay. Any, any, any concerns, we, we will um, we'll stop the work and have it addressed. We, we don't want any unsafe work covered up any more um, than the neighbors do. And um, one of the, uh, the requests of the appellant was an engineering review. I, I would fully support attaching that to these permits having an engineering review for the work that has been done, and then um, uh, before any work proceeds, the engineer, we can, um, I don't know if you want to put monitoring on the neighboring properties to see if they're undermined. Um, I think that they, they did start this process prior to the permit being issued. It did, does not look like they gave the proper notification to the neighbors. I don't think that would be excess, excessive to have um, monitoring period the adjacent properties put in place prior to any further work starting and um, and and I don't recall so I'm not this is not a setup question this is honest I don't I don't remember stuff um, but in the aforementioned cases that um, you know that I recall that this same thing happened um, sorry for not being you're not unique guys uh, uh, there were other there were other issues related to the same thing. The the neighbor said, "How do we get our guys in there to make sure that you know to give a, a, a opinion that we're paying for or that we're initiating instead of the the people who uh, took an illegal act?" I I can support that concern. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, w w what what steps should the neighbors uh, who, who the appellants be expected to take to assure that uh, that they're seeing with their eyes that everything is okay, or they should should they leave it to you? What about expenses regarding um, their hiring of of uh, their own engineers, their own specialists? How does that 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 fit in? Unless the um, the city the city attorney also about the you know, who who pays for that. Uh, does the does the neighbor pay for it because they're concerned, or do they leave it to to DBI? Can you comment on that? I don't. I, I, I can't comment on who's uh, responsible for the, the um, expenses. Okay, uh, but is it, it is it is it reasonable and customary? Again, I I don't remember. No, I I, I, I that, don't think that they bring in their own their in or is that or or would you assure them that that's not necessary because DBI is going to make sure that everything's going to be okay. Um, well, we would re we could request uh, reports from the engineers. It'd be public record. We'd be happy to share them with the um, neighbors. Um, I can't force the permit holders to allow access to the property. 
as private property, but any you know any any um, work product uh, generated here by engineers would be public record. We would share we could share with the uh, okay. So they they should be comfortable that that uh, the reports generated by your engineers to assure their safety should be mm -hmm. satisfactory, and that your due diligence and efforts to make sure that mm -hmm. uh, the project uh, is finished in a legal and compliant mm -hmm. fashion. Uh, is okay. But you mentioned something about our engineers. You know, I, I would be happy to bring a DVI engineer to do a, a, a site visit. Uh, we, we, could, we could do that and submit it to both uh, the board and the, the permit holders and the neighbors if that would ease anybody's concerns. Uh, uh, I wouldn't object to that. I think that would make the, the appellant feel, regardless of how we, we go, I think that would make them feel far more comfortable if I were them. So, okay. I, I'd be happy to be, do that if that's. Okay. Uh, can I ask the city attorney, where, where, um, where, where, do, where do we, again, I, I can't recall when somebody is asked, a, an appellant is asked to bring in their own folks, who is that, that, does that become a civil matter that's outside the jurisdiction of, of this uh, commission, or is it just something that they have to do if they want it done? to satisfy their own uh, curiosity. Uh, Commissioner Swigger, are you, are you asked, if you're asking who's responsible for payment, I'm actually, like Mr. Green, not entirely sure okay. off the top well, of my head. Be, be, because we saw something put up on the screen that, that, that there, were, there was an agreement, uh, uh, there was agreement requested, and I don't know the answer to it either, and I can't recall. And it seems like, it smells to me like a civil uh, a, a civil situation which should be outside of our jurisdiction. Well, certainly the, the, the negotiation and proposed agreement about the cost sharing between the two parties is a civil matter and, and not within the jurisdiction of this board to, to determine. Uh, that's exactly what I wanted to clarify. Thank you very much. Uh, Commissioner Lindbergh, sorry for hogging the, the <laughs> microphone. It's all right. I have uh, three questions for you, Mr. Green. Uh, number one, uh, I wanted to ask if you could confirm something Mr. Emblidge stated earlier regarding uh, any time that there's a permit for ex ex excavation work to be done, that there's a requirement that um, that the neighbors be consulted. Is that can can you speak a little bit as to what that requirement entails and? How that process works? Uh, that's a state law that's referenced in the building code. They're supposed to notify within 30 days. Um, that's to allow the affected neighbor to to um, um, underpin their own foundation if they feel that's necessary. Okay. Gen and gen general practices that if I say I was uh, going to excavate, I would you know agree to underpin the uh, neighbor's property for them at their. So just to clarify, that is a, a legal prerequisite to obtaining an ex excavation permit in the state of California. It, it, it's the 30 day, you're supposed to give a 30 day notice prior to the excavation starting. We will give the excavation permit today. You would, it, it, you would be expected to notify the neighbors okay. 30 days before you start. So it is not a requirement to get the excavation permit. Thank you. Um, question number two. Uh, obviously, the NOV uh, that was issued spoke to the fact that there was under, uh, undermining of 150. Um, it didn't speak as to undermining under the appellant's property, 144. Has the Have the inspections that have occurred so far, uh, it has, 
And is, is, is it still possible that the, the, the work has also undermined 144 and that just hasn't been determined yet uh, and could be determined by further inspections or has it been determined that there was not uh, uh, undermining under 144? It was obvious that it was undermined on 150. It wasn't obvious at the inspections. So there was uh, excavation done that shouldn't have been done. We asked them to backfill everything and, and start over, basically. So it, it, it is possible the work might have been covered up. I'm not saying it was. It, it, it's possible. Okay, it's possible. Okay, uh, and then question number three. Uh, as a practical matter, if we as a board were to revoke both permits, what extra layers of scrutiny would be added at the DBI level uh, to ensure compliance with all of these geotechnical experts and all, all of these, these different experts we've been talking about, uh, what extra layers of scrutiny would be added at the DBI permit application level to ensure compliance with all of these laws we've been talking about? Um, I, I would have to use an internal method we have. It's an address block that so no permits would come unless, no permits would be issued unless they came through um, my desk and I could uh, make sure we meet any requirements you had. Excellent, thank you. Okay, thank you. I don't see any further questions, so we'll move on to public comment. I believe there's somebody here in person who would like to provide public comment. Welcome, you have two minutes. And I see a few people on Zoom. So my name is Nina Lysenko, and I own 150 23rd Avenue. I knew nothing about any construction until I received a violation notice that was dated October 20th of 22. So I went and I knocked on the door because I was going to ask Christina, who I thought was still the owner, what's going on, and I noticed that the house was totally empty. There was nobody in the house, there was no furniture, nothing. So I looked up the address on Zillow and found out it was sold in July. Now, I don't know the new owners. I've never received any notices about any work. I was never contacted about excavation work, although I'm very concerned with it because apparently the foundation was undermined. My family has owned the house since 1967. I'm 73 years old. I lived there until I married in 72, and I came back and took care of my mom when she was terminally ill. I lived there again. And my family has always had good relationships with all our neighbors. The Mahers have always been really nice and kind to my mom and myself, so I don't believe at all that they ever would threaten anybody. And uh, I'm kind of concerned about my house because now it seems like I didn't know I was supposed to do anything because I didn't know what was going on. And uh, now I received this notice that I'm supposed to fix my house when we didn't do anything. That's kind of all I have to say. Do you have any questions? Okay, I don't see any questions at this time. Thank you. Okay. We will now hear from Susan, who's on Zoom. Please go ahead. You need to unmute yourself. You're still, you're still muted, Susan. Okay, we'll come back to you. We're gonna hear from Bradley Solomon. Please go ahead. You need to unmute yourself. Yes, go ahead. You have two minutes. Hi, 
Thank you. My name is Brad Solomon, and I am the Maher's neighbor on the other side of the Maher's house at 140 23rd Avenue. And I am compelled to speak with you folks this evening. I want to say, and I don't say this lightly, that the Maher family, who have been our neighbors for over 15 years, are literally the kindest, gentlest, least intimidating family that my wife and I have ever come into contact with. And we know what happened here. The Mahers have been victimized here. And I think it's particularly rich for the builders to say, after illegally doing work unpermitted, to say there's only speculative concerns and no evidence as to the damage that's been done to the Mahers. Do you know why it's speculative? It's speculative because the work has been hidden and the Maher's engineers can't see what's taken place here. I want to implore this commission to do everything within its authority to revoke both permits, to make the Maher's whole again, to allow them to inspect the damage that may have been done and to ensure that any future work does not do damage to their property. I wish it was within your jurisdiction and authority to do more, to award civil damages. And I don't see the Mahers as being a family that would ever pursue civil damages. 30 it's seconds. Not, not their nature. So they are going to be harmed here regardless because of what's already happened. But this board cannot do enough to grant the appellant's appeal here, revoke both permits, and do everything within their power to make the Maher family whole again. They are victims. Please do the right thing. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Going back to Susan, your, I don't see your hand raised. Do you still wanna provide public comment? If so, raise your hand. Okay, I, I guess not. Is there any further public comment on this item? Okay, seeing none, we will move on to rebuttal. Mr. Emblidge, you have six minutes. Thank you. Um, I want to make sure it's clear that what was spoken to by the permit holders is their plans now about what they want to do now. Um, their architect talked about those plans and how it's been moved back from the property line, and that should be good and fine. That's probably right. If this, if if they had started with a project that was. Uh, excavating away from the property line, we wouldn't be here. What we are here about is what was done in the past, what was done without permits, what was now has now been covered up. And you haven't heard anything or seen anything about that. The architect said, well, no, an engineer uh, uh, looked at that and, and told you that it was compacted. Look at your engineer's report. The engineer's report attached to their brief is all about what's going to be done in the future on the, new pro on the new project. It doesn't tell you, I'm an engineer, I've inspected this, and I can assure you that it was all done fine and it's been compacted fine and the Mahers don't have anything to worry about. That hasn't happened. Um, Mr. Monahan himself said this new work that they're proposing will solve the problem, okay? Yeah, it will solve the problem in the sense that it's, it, that new work isn't going to undermine the foundation, but it doesn't solve the problem about what has already happened. They claim that there's no evidence that this is all speculation. Um, I appreciate the speaker who said, well, there's a reason it's partially speculative. It's because we can't get in there to see what's happened. But you have an engineer's report 
of what has been observed by the engineers who have reserved the videos, seen the photographs, and had limited access to the property. And they have said, um, the soil excavations that we observed during our own site visit and through the photos and videos provided to us by the Mars indicates that the prop Mars property line footing may have been compromised, i.e. undermined by the work at 146 23rd Avenue. Uh, uh, I, I want to be clear in, in your questions to Mr. Green about, well, you know, will DBI just go in there and do inspections now and make sure it's okay? That's great. But part of that needs to be inspecting what happened at the property line before. We got to get that stuff moved out. We have to have our engineers or DBI's engineers go in there and see what was done to backfill it and was it done appropriately. As Mr. Green said, if it had been him and he was doing this work, he would have approached the neighboring property owner and, and underpinned their foundation so there wouldn't be any question about this. That wasn't done here. Um, I don't know what to say about the $50,000. I just find it offensive. Um, <sighs> the Mahars haven't asked the Monahans for a penny. The only thing about $50,000 is in an agreement that I drafted. I showed, it, showed you the language. It's about reimbursement for expenses um, for the Monahans to say that, or actually it wasn't the Monahans, it was their council that said, um, this is all about $50,000, and if they wrote a $50,000 check, this would all be over, is, it's very disturbing. Um, that's all I have, and, you know, unless you have any questions. President Swig. Uh, first of all, on the, on the last point, um, uh, you understand that, uh, that this board um, can't do anything about anything related to a claim for Cost. That's a civil matter, and so we, some of us, may be sympathetic, some maybe not sympathetic. But we can't. If we were most sympathetic, we couldn't do anything about that anyway. So it's uh, understood for, for us. It's a moot point, and I hope you have understanding on that. Understood, and, and I didn't even ask for that. that. Right. Um, so my the core of my question. Um, you you heard uh, from the building department that from DBI. Uh, that they, one, they will do significant scrutiny now, and, uh, and that detail of that was, uh, was made clear. Furthermore, um, that they uh, will go to the expense and activity of getting a engineer out to m ensure that the property is not, not only on your client side, but on the other client side, I'm sure, uh, that the, the building is not causing, not at risk and not causing an at-risk situation to either neighbor. Um, is there anything besides that significant scrutiny and inspection process or uh, the DBI engineer to, I am sure, get in there and do everything that you want done and we, we'll, we can have that further conversation. I will ask the same uh, later. Uh, during the DBI section, uh, is there anything else besides that inspection process or the initiation of an, of a, an engineer's inspection that uh, you find necessary to put your clients uh, at comfort? Well, I, um, yes, my clients would like to have their own engineering review. Um, and, and I've, 
I don't know why any neighboring property owner would not want that. What we want here is assurance that, this, that there's not going to be damage going forward. The Monahans should want that. You know, they, don't, they, don't, they should not want there to be a possibility of some civil action in the future for cracking walls and cracking foundation. As I said, I've done this dozens of times, and neighbors cooperate. Right. I understand that. My favorite speech up there, up here, and I'll, I'll repeat it again. Uh, folks, you got to live, uh, maybe Ms. Ms. Monahan will occupy the property, or maybe she won't, but regardless who lives there, uh, they have to live in peace with their neighbors and vice versa because that's just quality of life stuff, you know? Um, uh, I, will, um, I will ask DBI uh, the protocol about um, the engagement of a private engineer along side by side with a DBI engineer to ensure comfort. Uh, the, the cost coverage of that is not the purview of this uh, of this body, uh, you'll have to take that up in a civil, a civil situation. But I will ask DBI about the protocol related to that that potential activity. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Commissioner Lemberg. Uh, one further question, just because it was brought up so significantly in the permit holders' brief, I kind of want to ask this question to put it to bed. Um, you did show us the uh, the agreement that you drafted. Um, what was the proposed consideration uh, for that agreement, uh, for the cost sharing in, in in said proposed agreement? So it's there is about a four page agreement. It provides for monitoring, um, setting a baseline, and taking measurements so that going forward, as the work progresses, we can see if there's movement. Um, having the engineers perform that monitoring uh, in exchange. Uh, we, we would withdraw our appeals and not object to the new scope of work. Uh, and we would be reimbursed for the costs incurred in doing that monitoring and engineering confirmation. Thank you. Thank you. OK. Thank you. So we will now hear from the permit holders. You have six minutes. Thank you. A few points to follow up on. In terms of damage, whether damage has been done, again, we respectfully submit that there's been no evidence that the work caused damage to the appellants. And I understand the argument or claim that uh, the property was backfilled, but recall that that was a condition or it was required from the city, I believe, was to backfill it. Um, the second issue is that I don't think that there's been any testimony or evidence that the actual permit that's being challenged and has to be revoked has anything wrong with it. It's more about concerns. Um, in that vein, we do respectfully request that the permits be upheld with these additional conditions about a geotechnical report. In terms of further engineering review, there's the, the, my clients have always offered to have, uh, to show them the plans. You heard about that, and that hasn't been refuted. But we've always been operating with an open book and offered to have DBI or whoever look at the engineering work that has been done. So for those reasons, uh, we do respectfully request that the appeals be denied, and I know others have some few comments. Okay, you have more time. Thank you. I think okay, thank you. Good evening, Caroline Chase, also with Alan Mackins. I wanted to mention two things in the context of these appeals. The first is that we heard from DBI, I think that there are two paths here for this board, and one of them is to 
deny the appeals. I heard the, the request to actually uphold both permits because some work had been conducted under the first permit, although I think it was only a matter of a few days. So uphold the initial permit and the revised permit with the condition that a soil compaction test be prepared by the soils engineer. And that's something that Lauren has already agreed to do and is more than willing to include that as a condition to a revised version of the second permit. So in terms of the actual appeals before you, I think that that should be the focus procedurally and we just respectfully request that you deny the appeals and uphold the permits with that condition imposed um, primarily because there is a concern in terms of Lauren's safety um, currently living in a home without proper reinforcement and this is a seismic retrofit project and we would hate to see this further delayed. I would expect that if the appeals are granted and the permits are not upheld, that we'll be back before you with another appeal and that will only further delay the work that Lauren really needs to have done in the interest of her own safety. Um, in terms of the condition I just mentioned, the condition that was recommended both by DBI and at least from what I understand, recommended by DBI and the architect on the project, John, um, it sounds to me like that would address the prior work that was actually required by DBI in terms of backfilling the soil that was removed to do the exploratory work. And so by providing that compaction report, that would confirm that the soil has been properly compacted back so that's just something to consider that would address the prior work that there's been some concern about. Thank you. Thank you. We have a question from Commissioner Lemberg, then President Swig. Uh, my question's for Mr. Betts, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Mr. Betts, I, I heard you testify just now that, um, or state, not testify. I heard you state that there was no issue with the permits as they were issued, um, That and is that, a correct view of your position? Sure, my understanding is that the actual permits, the required work and the scope of work don't have issues. It, the concerns that I've heard, I believe, is about what has been done in the past and what may happen in the future. That is, that is what, that's, that summarizes what I said. How do you respond then to the fact that DBI came to the property and issued a notice of violation based on the fact that work had been done outside the scope of a permit that had already been issued? So my answer there is the permits per se that are being challenged are okay. There's questions about whether they complied with the authorized work. And to remedy that, we're offering to do these compaction reports. But an, a permit that's issued has to include, by definition, all of the work that is to be performed. Is that, am I, am I wrong somehow there? I'm, I'm, perhaps I'm not answering <laughs> the question or misunderstanding it. My, my issue is that the actual appeals, I mean the permits that have been issued, there's no problem with those permits. The question that seems to be challenged is what was done in response to those permits. And therefore that's why we think that the permit should be upheld. Okay, thank you. 
And, and you did raise an issue before about the, the agreements. If you want to see the agreements, I'd be delighted to show you the full scope of the agreements and our revisions to that, if you had questions on that. Okay. Thank you. We have a question from President Swig. Ms. Monahan, please. Ms. Are, are you currently living full-time in the home? Yes. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so we will now hear from the Department of Building Inspection. Mr. Green, you have six minutes. Um, thank you, sir. Um, I, I'd like to comment on uh, um, something Mr. Embley said about um, that I would have done underpinning. Uh, that was just a general statement. It was not specific to this project uh, itself. Uh, I didn't want to imply um, that I was referencing this specific project, that if I was the contractor, I would have done the underpinning. That was not what I was trying to say. It was just in general, it could be done. Um, also. There was some allegations that the work was covered up. It was covered up, but we ordered them to backfill it because they, they, they excavated, our um, uh, inspector estimated over 50 yards of soil, and we asked them to backfill that and get a, a permit to properly cover that uh, scope of work. So uh, the work was covered up, but it was done by our order. Um, the, the, the permit that they, um, the second permit here has reduced the scope of that excavation. It's less than 50 yards. Uh, 50 yards is a bit of a threshold. It would have to go to planning for um, um, a CEQA evaluation and stuff like that. But so less than 50 yards, uh, it, it's not. So the, the second permit as it stands now, it, it would not need to go to the planning department for, for review. And, and it didn't. Um, well, I was saying, um, if you do decide to uh, uphold these two permits, I would like to add the compaction um, uh, reports from the geotech engineer, but I also would recommend uh, monitoring of the two neighbor, two adjacent properties to see if there's any any um, movement. And uh, that would be a surveyor putting some points there and then surveying them or monitoring them uh, as the work goes on. If there's any movement, you, we would know that it is a result of the work being done. Um, I'm available for any questions you may have. I'm, I'm a little confused on one thing. Uh, we had testimony in public comment from the, from the neighbor on the other side who said she got the notice of violation. Did, yes, so. So, um, so she got the notice of violation for doing nothing. Um, so how, how, do we, how do we cure that problem which was created by her neighbor? How does that work? So the, the unsafe condition on 150 23rd Avenue was created by the work done at one, sorry, 146 23rd yes. Avenue. So but the, the notice of violations go to the property, not, not the actual person doing the work. So they so go to the, but who is the property owner at 150 uh, responsible so for, for curing that notice of violation as caused by her next door neighbor? So we, we issue these, we could call them a, a friendly NOV. Mm -hmm. uh, it is um, ammunition for any civil, civil cases uh, moving okay. forward. They, they have documentation from the Department of Building Inspection saying that their, their property, their foundation was undermined. So um, that's an informal term, which is a friendly NOV. It, it just it documents that there's an unsafe condition at their property. So we, it's we really will not, we will not pursue the code enforcement process for that. Okay, so it's 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 really up to it's not for this commission to deal with, but uh, the advisory. I just you, you have a neighbor who goes, what just happened to me? 
you know, I got hit by a truck, and but I'm being, I'm being, I'm being, I've been be giving in the notice of violation after being hit by a truck. How did that work? Uh, how does, how does she, how does she move forward? Well, well, I would have hoped that the building inspector who gave you that notice of violation would have explained everything. I'd be happy to talk to you after this, this, please this do. Meeting. He's, 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 he can help you a lot. Yeah, I, I'll. I'll stick around and we can discuss afterwards. Thank you very much for that. Um, so, um, in in these cases, we've seen many of them. Um, it is generally unwise, uh, even though uh, non-compliant or illegal activities may have occurred. Um, uh, it is unwise to. Uh, continue a situation where there might be uh, risk uh, to a neighbor on either side, and 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 even the neighbor who may have perpetrated uh, the the illegal act. Um, and so, because all you're doing is creating a, continuing a problem. So, what do we do tonight? What is your recommendation to do tonight to um, get? get what was supposed to be done in the first place legally, which was to fix the foundation, while also protecting the interests of the neighbors on both sides. I like the monitoring idea. I like the, the city um, hiring its, uh, or engaging an engineer to uh, look at both sides, actually. I think that's mm -hmm. a, dil a, a diligent move. And, and I also like the uh, requirement that um, although they may pay for it or they may not, that's not our, our, under our purview, uh, that the, the neighbor, the, the appellant have the right to engage their own engineer um, to go side by side if necessary with the city engineer to be comfortable that all is, all is okay. What else? Well, what else do we do to, to, you know, to seal this wound and move this this forward? So I don't know that I actually have the authority to force the permit holder to allow the neighbor's um, engineer on on site. Okay, um, that's, I, in, that's code, important for us to know. The, the okay. building code does allow me to access um, and uh, DVI staff if there's um, concerns. Okay, um, if they're willing. I don't know if the permit holders are willing to agree to that set up the a, a, a joint inspection yep. with our uh, DVI engineer and their private engineer. Um, happy to accommodate if if they are. Um, I I do recommend uh, thinking about it during this hearing that we you uphold both permits with the condition that the uh, monitoring be placed on either either adjacent property and demanding the uh, geotechnical um, investigation and report about the work that was done prior to proceeding. Okay, and a, a report which will be public information and shared with the next door neighbor on both it sides? Will be public information, yes. Okay, anything else besides that? Uh, well, before work starts, uh, we'd want to start work in, um, in inspection with, with the district inspector to lay for exactly what's going to happen moving forward. Okay, because I'm 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 asking you basically uh, to give the conditions uh, as we move forward to resolve the situation. So I'm asking, you know, uh, uh, Ms. Rosenberg to take down this list one, two, three of the of what might be potential conditions to resolve this case uh, 
I'm taking notes, but we still need to hear from Commissioner Lemon. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we're not there yet. So I just, I'm just <laughs> anticipating and and becoming informed what's what's possible and what's not possible. What I found is not possible unless there's a a, a willingness, which I don't understand yet, for a, a third party engineer to join the the city engineer. That's the only. Th that's why I asked the question. You know, anything else uh, that that would no, you I, think make make the department comfortable and also make the appellant comfortable? Um, that would make the department comfortable. I, I can't speak to if that would make the appellant comfortable. Well, you've heard the testimony. Yeah, I, I, I think while well, reading the, their first brief, they were asking for the geotechnical report. Okay, yeah. then that's going to happen. Um, all right, super. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Lemberg. Um, kind of a follow-up to something President Swig was just asking. If, if we were to uphold the permits with these conditions, as you were talking about, would, uh, and, and you did mention the, uh, the condition of, an, uh, of a DBI inspection occurring before work be allowed to resume, um, apart from that condition, would work otherwise be permitted to begin again immediately after that inspection? Or is there some other waiting period or some other condition precedent that would have to occur first? Um, no, it would be able to start. Now, the excavation is back from the um, property lines, so um, the 30-day notification wouldn't be required. The 30-day notification would be required? Would okay. not be required. Okay. Um, and then uh, when DBI... Uh, issued the order to uh, to do the backfilling. Was the backfilling on both sides, both property lines, or just the 150 property line? It, it was the entire uh, scope, uh, work area. So yes, both. Both, okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I don't see any further questions. Commissioners, this matter submitted. If we, if we have a conversation that leads to uh, our intent to um, uh, uh, sustain these these permits with condition, uh, do we we find for the appellant and and issue the permits with the following conditions? Yeah, you would grant the appeals and issue the permits on the condition that they be revised to require. I just want to, now you guys can, any comments? <laughs> yes. All right. Um, sorry, I'm try, I should have gathered my thought. I'm going to let Commissioner Tresvina go first. Uh, thank you. I just want to uh, observe that while we have focused, obviously, on the appellants at, at 142, uh, I want to make sure that whatever uh, remedies are provided are, are equally to 150, and and I, I, I agree in as a public interest, none of them should live in an unsafe house. Not Lauren, not not the not the two neighbors. So the 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 qu the, the quicker all three can live in houses that are have strong foundations, the better it is for. Each one individually for the neighborhood and 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 for the city. So, I'd like to, as we fashion a remedy, to make sure that that is the end that is the end goal. I'm I'm con and I'm concerned that the original work 
that, that we're not sh that we we need to establish that the original work has not left either house neighboring house um, uh, in worse shape than it was before, and then also whatever was done and on on the on the current uh, on the current uh, uh, work. So uh, want to make sure that we move get this through quickly. So that, that the work can be done, the inspections can be done, and that all of the, the both sides uh, are 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 secure and satisfied with their safety. Um, taking into account what Commissioner Tresvenia just said, which I think is very wise, uh, it's a good framing to put this in, um, and I think probably the only reason I wouldn't uh, be recommending that we grant both uh, grant the appeals without any conditions. Um, uh, I think if we are to uh, grant the appeal and then issue the permits with conditions, um, uh, there's one additional condition I would like to uh, impose in addition to what Mr. Green was saying, which was the monitoring requirement, the geotechnical engineering uh, reports, uh, and the inspection by DBI before work begins. Uh, and that the fourth condition I'd like to propose is uh, that work cannot begin again before the end of 30 days, even if the inspection occurs at that point, because that is the period of time uh, that both uh, neighbors should have had from the very beginning to hire someone to underpin their properties. Um, so. Uh, I don't know when the inspection will occur. It might be tomorrow. It could be, you know, it's almost Christmas, so who knows what's happening with the holidays. Um, and in fact, now that I'm thinking about it, it's December 14th today, uh, and everything shuts down for the holidays. So I might even say 45 days rather than 30, uh, because it's hard to get professionals out uh, between Christmas and New Year's. Um, so that's that's my suggestion, and uh, unless other commissioners have comments, I would make that motion. Uh, I'd just like to ask DBI a question. Right. When you go when you go back and do the inspections, um, are you going to reinvestigate or investigate the illegal work? The, the work that was done prior to any uh, permit being issued. And that's, that was brought up by Commissioner Trezvina, and it would be, what, what is, you know, we want, we want to make sure that, the, that, that inspections taken into consideration, yes, the two permits, mm -hmm. even though one is, a, uh, is, in, is under appeal, but both permits, but also, most importantly, the the initial uh, metaphorical car crash, that is, the work that was done uh, outside of a legal scope. Would that would your inspections include the review of that, or should we detail that as a, a condition in moving this forward? Well, we still have an active notice of violation to uh, comply so with that notice of violation. Okay. Any, any so that, that will be resolved in in uh, in the notice of violation. Correct. Activity. Cool. Okay. Thanks. Uh, sure thing. Um, I move to uh, grant both appeals on the basis that the perm. There, there's two. Yeah, we have the two different permits. Yeah. Uh, I 
move to grant the appeal and uh, uh, now I lost my train of thought. Um, uh, grant the appeal uh, on the basis that uh, both permits were improperly issued and uh, condition the permits uh, or what's the right language here? Julie? Grant Sorry. the appeals and issue the permit on the permits on the condition that they be revised to that, require. Then you tell that me. they be revised to require. Uh, full geotechnical engineering reports, uh, monitoring, uh, bleh, monitoring requirements uh, by DBI, um, a full in site inspection, uh, including inspections on illegal work done uh, before any work begins and no work may begin uh, prior to the expiration of 45 days from today's date. Uh, that's my motion. Thank you. Yes. I, um, was there something I missed with the engineer? Okay. Okay. No, I did say it. That a geotechnical engineer would be retained uh, with President Swiggy's slight amendment there. Thank you. Okay. I just wanted to clarify a couple things with DBI, uh, Mr. Green. Uh, or based on, uh, the, is the site monitoring, you said it was be, would be required by DBI. Wouldn't that burden be on the permit holder? Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, yes. so the permit holder provides site monitoring, and do you want to specify when that should be starting? Uh, what, I, I have... Um, Why don't you ask the recommendation of DBI? What's the recommendation of DBI on that, please? <laughs> But what could we do the normal process of a special uh, conditions permit that they would attach the um, th um, th those requirements? Um, when you right, I just want to clarify a couple points. One, the site monitoring, that would be uh, the, per the permit holder would be required to do that when the... Correct. That's, okay. a, that's, that, that's a normal requirement added to, to many, many properties. Okay, for both adjacent properties. And two... Um, the DBI inspection is for the entire property, both sides. And would that be a DBI engineer who would be going out? Would you be still doing the soils inspection? Or would this just be a regular inspection related to the NOV? I mean, what, what do you recommend? I, I just want clarity on what. Well, sorry. I, I was recommending that I would have one of our DBI engineers go on site. Um, is it possible here now to get agreement from the permit holders that they'd allow the neighbor's engineer to accompany us? That would be a wonderful thing. I agree. Um, I don't know if that can be part of a motion, but we can certainly ask, right? Ask. Uh, is that the permit holders? Is that something you would be willing to, to do, is to allow that inspection? Um, well, I'm speaking on behalf of Lauren. I, I don't have a particular objection to that. We've already had their engineer on the site. So we don't object to that. I do think the notion of waiting 45 days kind of goes contrary to the idea of getting this work done as soon as possible. So I would, you know, I would be happy to have their engineer accompany the DBI. That, that wasn't my question. I just wanted to get the one, the okay. one question answered. Thank you. Great. Okay. So we have the permit hold. The conditions are one: the permit holder would 
Uh, the question is, when should that site monitoring begin? I mean, after the decision is issued, which would, if there's no, if the decision, um, there's a 13-day, 12-day period in which a party can request a rehearing, so on the 13th day we would issue a written decision. So at that point, they would have to, should we impose a deadline in terms, like within the next 30, within 30 days of the decision or something? Like what? Uh, For site monitoring, to the obligation on the permit holder. I, I might have the problem of not understanding fully what site monitoring entails. It monitors the movement on the property. Okay. So, so if the building it, it starts provides shifting, a benchmark to measure against, I mean, I'm not I, an expert. We'll can, talk. I, can I recommend that the uh, site monitoring be in place at the time of the uh, start work inspection by the DBI? That would be a wonderful That's idea. Perf that sounds perfect. Okay, okay perfect. Okay, so site monitoring uh, in place at the time of the DBI inspection. Uh, and the it would say... Uh, an inspection by DBI prior to work starting, and a DBI engineer will be on site uh, to investigate the entire property. And then um, we... Can I just clarify, the start work inspection would be something separate from our... Um, soils? From our, from our DBI engineer. So there are two I, I, I would recommend that we, we'll go out with our DBI engineer and, and um, the neighbor's engineer and the permit holder's engineer if they like. We could do that as, as response to the notice of violation, and I could get that arranged early next week if that's possible. Okay. okay. So I, I would leave that off the uh, conditions of the permit. Okay. Because there is of the existing NOV that there isn't is existing, going anywhere. Okay. That's correct. Okay, and then the other requirement was that the permit holder provide provide a soil compaction, or do a soil compaction test, um, and share the reports. So moved uh, by the time work is, uh, or I, I would say also by the time the DBI inspection occurs. So when you said, can I, work, can I just make one clar clarification? Sorry. So the the, the the compaction is a result of our notice of violation. So I, I would hate for oh, you that, to stop okay. any the compaction work to, from being done. That, that was a, um, a condition to comply with the notice of violation. Um, the work being done is wh what we asked them to do is backfill the lot, compact it, and then in all essence start all over. So, right. So that that work on these permits, I, I would request the start work inspection. I still would like them to compact it now to comply with the notice of violation and so that when they do start the work we know that it's a safe condition at the at the beginning of the work okay so can i add the caveat to the whole motion that work can continue only to remedy the uh conditions noted in the notice of violation the notice of violation was only on one side of the property right no, it doesn't address the other side i think no no we have a notice of violation on 144. okay there that Oh, there is? Yeah. Also? Well, I'm okay. sorry. I, I, I get, we have a notice of violation on the permit holder's property. We have another one at the adjacent property. We do not have one on the appellant's property. Okay. So do you want to specify that the compaction work can go, f that no, the compaction work has to be completed to DBI's satisfaction before other work is done on the property? Yes. That sounds right. <laughs> okay, I will thank try. You for, thank you for working. <laughs> with this is a little mess. This is messy. Okay, so we have a motion to grant the appeals and issue the permits on the condition that they be revised to require uh, a DBI inspection prior to work starting. Um, this would be a full site inspection, including a DBI engineer. Um, 
and then also uh, that the permit holder do site monitoring for both adjacent properties at the at the time on or before uh, the DBI's inspection, and be in place. Be in place on or before uh, the time of DBI's inspection, and then we have uh, the requirement that the permit holder provide a soil compaction test uh, and prepare that with the soils engineer and share the reports. And lastly, that the compaction work be completed prior to, to the satisfaction of DBI prior to any other work being performed on the property. And this motion is made on the basis that the permits were not properly issued. Okay, or maybe they ensure the safety of the site or work. The, the latter is very good. Okay. I mean. That they, that they ensure, okay. Sorry, I thought that had to be the standard. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> they ensure the safety, um, improve the safety conditions of the properties. Uh, yes. Okay, so All three properties. on that motion, Commissioner Trezvina. Um, I had a question. Okay. You wanted to turn your mic on. <laughs> Regarding the 45-day waiting period, is that part of this motion now? I didn't hear it included. I don't think it is because we didn't want to delay the work, and the whole point is to get the compaction work going because it's a safety concern. And there's going to be time anyway, and they've had notice of all these issues anyway. That, I mean, yeah, I think my opinion changed on that during the course of what Mr. Green was saying as well. Um, Right. I, I mean, my, my, my concern was I wanted uh, I, I agree. I mean, I, if I, we don't need to discuss it. If you if you have withdrawn it, I didn't hear you withdraw okay. it. I heard Mr. Monaghan raise a legitimate, legitimate objection, and I just want to clarify, it's not part of our motion. Correct. Thank you. Okay, thank you. No. No. Right, it's going to start. It will be in place. Is that that's what we're going to say? So, thank you. Okay, so on that motion, I have Commissioner Epler. Aye. President Swig. Aye. Okay, so that motion carries uh, four to zero. What about Commissioner Trasvinia? I he I, he already voted. Oh, he earlier. Okay, then sorry. Then he asked a question. <laughs> okay. So thank you, and we have all the information. Are we uh, okay to move directly into trees, or does anybody need a Can break? We take five minutes. Sorry. You want five minutes? Okay. Can we be back here at ten minutes of nine? Okay, we're going to recess for five minutes. Thank you for your patience. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
Okay, good evening and welcome back to the December 14, 2022 meeting of the San Francisco Board of Appeals. We are now on item number five. This is appeal number 22-079, Joshua Clip versus San Francisco Public Works, Bureau of Urban Forestry, subject property 401 Parnassus Avenue, appealing the issuance on October 20th, 2022 to UCSF of a public works order, approval to remove 28 street trees with replacement. UCSF will demolish an existing hospital building and the new hospital building will require extensive health care specific utilities, which will require removal of the trees. This is order number 207226. And as a preliminary matter, Commissioner Epler has a statement for the record. Uh, yes. In the past, I served on the UCSF Community Advisory Group. I stepped out of that role in March of this year. I have discussed uh, my role with the Community Advisory Group with the City Attorney, and he has confirmed that I do not have any conflict in this matter. Okay. Thank you. So we will now hear from the appellant. Welcome, Mr. Clip. You have seven minutes. Thank you. I need just a moment to bring up my <clears throat> to bring up my screen. Just let me know when you're ready. Yeah, just just a, just a second, Alex. Okay. Oops, Jesus. Sorry. Let's try this. You ready? <clears throat> Here we go. Good evening, commissioners, members of the public. The question tonight is whether the underlying tree removal permit was issued an error, and the applicable standard of review is de novo. This means that the board owes no deference to any prior decision made regarding these trees. This also means that Public Works had no authority to assure anyone that UCSF would be able to remove these trees before the end of the year. That authority rests with this board. The department has assured the public that it does not approve tree removals for construction. If a tree is in reasonable condition, removal will be denied. Here's a clip from a hearing held on October 5th of this year. If these were three uh, trees in reasonable condition, our, our decision-making here would be a denial because we're not here to evaluate the whatever construction may be taking place. Our reasons for approval are based on tree health, not uh, whatever work is taking place on site. Here, UCSF applied to remove 28 trees that it incorrectly identified as all New Zealand Christmas trees. The reason for removal was demolition and construction. In reality, these 28 trees are quite diverse, and 22 of the trees are in reasonable condition or better. The combined diameter of these tree trunks is nearly 45 feet. If you stacked up the trunks, they'd be about as high as a four-story building. Here's a brief timeline regarding the removal process, and I'd like to highlight a few dates. <clears throat> First, the department approved the trees for removal on July 25th. The department didn't inspect the trees, however, until a week later. The removal hearing was held on September 26th. On October 5th, the department reiterated that trees are not approved for removal for construction. 15 days later, the department issued a decision approving the trees for removal based on construction. A quick note that San Francisco has the smallest urban canopy of any major city in the United States. And according to a 2021 city report, our city plants less than half the number of street trees that we need to keep up with the rate of removal. Additionally, our climate action plan created in response to our climate emergency declaration calls for 25% more street trees by 2040. Unfortunately, in FY22-23, the city set aside $0 for street tree plantings. 
Accordingly, if the department is going to ignore its own policies and remove trees for construction, it would seem they might at least try to get the maximum amount of tree planting funds out of this that the law allows. So what does the law allow? <clears throat> According to the Public Works Code, if a tree remo removal permit is granted, the department could require trees of equivalent replacement value to the removed tree. If anyone wonders whether these massive, healthy Monterey Cypress and New Zealand Christmas trees are more valuable than a handful of saplings, you will need to keep wondering because the department did not conduct an appraisal of these trees. Additionally, a subsequent code section also requires a tree for every 20 feet of property frontage for new construction. Under this provision, UCSF acknowledges it would be required to plant 28 trees, yet UCSF offers to plant only 14. UCSF has noted that the department can modify or waive this requirement essentially for infrastructural conflict. This is true. UCSF also says, however, that they won't know what the infrastructure conflicts are that exist until construction plans are complete in 2023. For all we know, this number could end up being less than 14. UCSF seems to suggest they can choose which code section applies to them, but this ignores the fact that they aren't constructing a new building, just constructing a new building. They want to cut down 28 trees to do it. UCSF also proposes to plant trees in the surrounding neighborhoods. <clears throat> to date, not a single planting site has been identified. They promised to issue an RFP in September. They promised that a planting partner would be introduced in November. And here they are in December, hoping to rush through this process so they can cut down everything before January. So not only did the department grant a massive tree removal based on construction, they conditioned it on a tree planting plan that simply doesn't exist. This imaginary plan, 56 baby trees in exchange for at least 22 large healthy ones, in theory sounds okay. In reality, UCSF would remove 531 inches of tree trunk diameter and replace that with, possibly at some unknown time in the future, around one-fifth of that. Our climate action plan calls for a policy of putting back in as much tree as we take out, so even at its best, this imaginary plan would plant 80% less trees than what our climate action plan mandates. Additionally, UCSF asserts that by the end of construction, it will have planted a total of 85 trees. <clears throat> the reason this number mysteriously jumped from 56 to 85 is because UCSF has now applied to remove even more trees for construction in a separate application that remains to be adjudicated. Also, a reality check on promised tree plantings. Last January, this board approved my agreement with BART regarding tree removals and replacements. It's been almost a year and Public Works has yet to identify a single planting site for that agreement. In October 2019, the board upheld a tree removal permit for Tesla on the condition that six new 24-inch box trees be planted in the Civic Center or Tenderloin within six months. Yesterday afternoon, the department informed me they planted some trees in the Tenderloin last August, nearly three years after your decision, and would designate some of those as the Tesla trees. Finally, UCSF offers the expert opinion of Dr. Clark that based on UCSF's construction plans, the existing trees won't survive demolition and construction. Since UCSF planned years ago to build all the way out to the property line, I would suggest they didn't need an expert to tell them this. Dr. Clark's opinion, however, doesn't change the error of permit issuance. His opinion is dated November 19th. The department's decision is dated October 20th. The department could not have relied on an opinion that didn't exist at the time they made their decision. What did exist prior to this decision was Dr. Clark's January 1997 co-authored article entitled, A Model of Urban Forest Sustainability, including this table regarding managing urban trees. Dr. Clark's article states that, policy not enforced is low performance that preservation required for projects is good performance, and that integrated planning for conservation and development is optimal performance. If UCSF had applied its own expert's 24-year-old opinion from the outset of this project, it's possible we wouldn't even be here tonight. In conclusion, the permit on appeal was issued in error and must be overturned for three reasons. One, 
it violates the department's policy on not removing trees for construction. Two, it fails to adequately apply the code. And three, it relies on an imaginary and unenforceable plan. Additionally, it fails our urban forest plan and our city's climate action plan. Thank you. Okay, are you finished? Thank you. Commissioner Trasvini has a question. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation. I have three, I think, brief questions. Uh, first, Mr. Klippa, you quote Article 16806B3D2 regarding the, uh, the uh, requiring one street tree for each 20 feet of street frontage of the property. Is it your view that all of the replacement trees must be at the property or can they be anywhere? I think that that would be a question better posed uh, to the Department of Public Works since they are in charge of enforcing that law. Well, I, I want to get your view because I, you seem to object to uh, the number of trees that are going to be replaced on the, on the, uh, on the site. Sure. Well, um, <clears throat> if, if that is the requirement and there are infrastructural conflicts, it seems to me that in a city with the lowest tree canopy percentage of any major city in the United States, surely there are other locations where those trees could be planted. So the numbers should not be reduced. It should just, you can put them elsewhere. Okay. And my second, my second question is, uh, and I will also ask this of, of uh, the UCSF, is that um, they describe in their plan that the trees, the trees, the replacement trees are to be planted by a local nonprofit volunteer partner. Does that give you any assurance that Trees will be built, will be planted. Um, I've been a volunteer planting leader with Friends of the Urban Forest for over 12 years. Um, I have a lot of confidence in Friends of the Urban Forest. I do not share that confidence, unfortunately, with uh, the applicant in getting that work done with uh, Friends of the Urban Forest. Okay, and finally, um, if we grant um, your appeal, what would you, um, <coughs> what alternative uh, is there? that you are proposing? Well, my appeal seeks to overturn the permit, which would, I think, necessarily mean that the permit process would need to start over again. However, I think uh, President Swig has enough experience with me personally to know that I have always been open to uh, creative and innovative solutions. Thank you. President Swig. Thank you. Um, uh, Mr. Clip. As always, uh, a very solid and balanced presentation. Um, I, I did, uh, full disclosure, I uh, was equally as concerned as you were with regard to the quote-unquote Tesla trees. And uh, I did, uh, upon reading your brief, uh, contact um, Buff and uh, ask them, were your claims true? And they also told me that they, although be, albeit they were late, um, they uh, they they did plant the trees, and um, and and I share your concern that they were late, but they did plant the trees. Um, so last week uh, we closed our meeting with a solid presentation as well from Mr. Buck. And he talked about, and I'm going to ask Mr. Buck to address this question so I don't have to repeat myself. 
uh, and, and I believe he said when a tree is, a mature tree is replaced, uh, it has to be replaced um, based on a measurement of its trunk. Um, because I think the question that was posed was yours, uh, coincidentally tonight, which was if you have all these magnificent mature trees and you plant little weeny immature trees, that really doesn't quite match up to what was there in the first place. So um, uh, what would be in, in anticipation, I don't know what we're gonna do tonight, I never do, especially the tree stuff. Um, but in if some or all, I don't know, one tree were to be replaced similar to those that you showed uh, just now, um, to get a true replacement, um, what, 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 in your view, is the replacement tree ratio? Given that, let's say those trees will be replaced with 36-inch box trees, which seem to be the go-to uh, tree when replacement is is done. How many trees would you say is is um, appropriate to replace? the mature uh, trees that are, are, are being uh, asked to be removed? I, I think the best, the best gauge for that is what's laid out in our climate action plan. Um, and so I would refer back to that. <clears throat> and I think, you know, um, Chris is a, he's an arborist and he can talk about, you know, what exactly does that um, mandate in the city's climate action plan mean? So I would, um, respectfully, you know, defer that the definition of what the uh, the meaning behind that mandate, what that means from an arborist perspective in, in answering that question. Yeah, I mean, last week, and I'll ask him to address this, he said, well, and I, I may have got, gotten this wrong, Chris, so sorry for my bad uh, paraphrasing, but he said, basically, you look at the girth of the tree, and um, and then you replace it with, with a number of trees with estimated like, like girth. Um, sorry for probably botching that, but um, but how do you how do you go about that? If you have a mature tree, like we saw, do you put in? Is that a three to one ratio, a four to one ratio, or or what? I'm asking your opinion, and I'm asking at the same time, uh, Mr. Buck, to address it during his testimony. Yeah. So my understanding of the word basal basal refers to stem, and in this instance, the stem of the plant is the trunk. So if you're going to take out a tree that is 20 inches in diameter, and, and again, I am not an arborist, so you know, please somebody correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, but that's just what the dictionary says basil stands for. Um, <clears throat> so if you're taking out a tree that's 20 inches in diameter, then you need to replace that with 10 trees that are two inches in diameter to equal 20 inches. Yeah. So that would be that would be your idea of minimum standard if if any trees in this case are going to be replaced, correct? That's what the climate action plan calls for, and I would agree with that, yes. Great, thanks. Okay, thank you. We will now hear from UCSF. Mr. Vice Fauvel, will you be presenting? You're on mute, okay. Uh, yes, I'm gonna let uh, Christine speak uh, at first, and uh, I will speak after. Okay, thank you. 
Hello. Let me just get my screen up. Can everyone see that? Yes. Okay. Hi, uh, good afternoon or good evening, excuse me. Um, my name is Christine Buckley. I am a director here on the new hospital project. Um, wanted to give a little bit of background of just why we're doing this and uh, give a little background about the new hospital at Parnassus Heights. Um, we are needing to build out a new hospital UCSF to meet our state mandated, mandated seismic requirements and also to increase our bed capacity. Um, to meet the growing number of needs of inpatients. Um, so that's the genesis of the project. Um, there's some facts here about just the number of beds and programs, but I won't get into that. I think that I wanted to highlight a little bit about just our community process. Uh, we did start that process back in July 2018 and reviewed our plans and what, you, what you'll see later in this um, presentation. And we included comments about our EIR, the street tree removal is contemplated and is part of our EIR, and that EIR has been approved um, as of May 2022, and our project is fully funded through the regions. Wanted to give you a little background of the actual site. The um, new hospital is located right next to the existing hospital at Parnassus, so these plans have Parnassus Avenue on the north of the site. We are constrained to the east of the site by um, Medical Center Way and Sutro Reserve. And our intention is to make it one hospital. So we have connections on basements and other levels to the Moffitt Long. So new hospital is connected to the current hospital. So um, as you can see, we're a little constrained, extremely constrained on a site. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of highlight that. I was gonna go ahead and turn it over to Morgan and he can talk a little bit more about the actual trees. And I'll pause on this in case you had anything else to add, Morgan, on this um, particular slide. Thank you, Christine. No, um, uh, yes, I think we can we can um, we can go to the next slide. Um, uh, so we're just going to see basically the same tree that you just we just saw, and uh, those are um, you know just a section of a, a number of the trees. Those are just the biggest one that actually we have to remove, and you can see the locations like just like leaning over into the foundation of the building itself, of the non Porter building that we have to, uh, we have to demo uh, for that construction project. So we're gonna to go to the next slide. Um, so as uh, Christine just talked about a little bit about it, uh, just like we we in a design constraints, you know, in space, and uh, we need to do the state modulated seismic requirements, um, and so we have to have those 300 bed, and so every square inch is important to us. At the same time, then during the, for during the construction, we also um, have to keep. You know everything going in uh, basically at, at campus and with for the Moffitt and Long Hospital operations, with vehicle coming in and go and going during the constructions. Um, as you see, uh, medical center way in the future is going to be switched out a little bit in the future, so we and it will go through that building itself just for a small period of time. You know the construction is going to take 10 years, so that's why when we look at the survivability of the trees themselves, we knew long, we knew that most likely they will be contained. You know, uh, you know, there's just not, especially for the duration of the project, which is going to take us 10 years. You know, uh, 
So um, there's no way that we'll be able to protect the trees uh, with allocations uh, and the size of the, the, the building and the constraints around it. Um, uh, also, I want to add also that some of the species of the trees that we see, uh, you know, like the Monterey cypresses are actually um, not uh, a species that can take construction damage or it's, it, it just don't do well in construction in general. So we're going to move to the next one. Uh, so, you know, um, already part of, uh, part of the NHPH, but also the renovation with, uh, with Parmesan site, you know, we, 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 we've been meeting with uh, and giving some commitment about the path to peak that uh, we've been uh, working on with planning and real estate to connect all the peaks through the campus from Montsutro to the campus to the parks. So we already, we already had a greeting project on going on. So we talk about, you know, the street trees, we, we are going to be adding 14 street trees in the streets uh, that we, we already know. Um, that's going to be our number, you know. Um, and also there's uh, additional trees that it's it's actually not in the streets. It's going to be on the sixth floor. As you saw in the picture earlier, we also going to add trees on the, on the, on the sixth floor um, heating garden that will be access to, to patients, but also to public. So um, those trees are not, those 23 trees are not part of the comp that we talk about. Um, so we basically committed to, you know, winning and really just want to replace two trees to one tree, which is 56 trees in total. So we only know there's about 14 trees that was going to go in the streets. And, and, and we know that it's not going to be a lot of room to put those straight street in the street. And the reason why we know it's because of design and also most likely, you know, there's all those uh, regulation and card of where you can put a tree, how far it has to be off the road, how far it has to be to utility box, a sewer line. Or, so, you know, you can imagine that the whole sidewalk is going to get demoed. So everything is going to be new. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we talk about 14 street trees. That's the number that we were confident that we'll be able to put it in, you know? So we had that, made, that, that told us like we, we couldn't put all the trees that we wanted to plant in Parnassus Avenue because of the, the, it was not possible to add more trees, you know, even along the site. We already have trees. We are going to be adding more trees in the future, but there is no, not enough room. Uh, so that's why we wanted to engage with our neighbor and our community relations with us. 30 uh, seconds. All neighbor. I'm sorry? You have 30 seconds left. Uh, okay. So uh, so we, we basically had a huge community outreach. We, we, we outreach with all our neighbors and to see what they were thinking about it, if they were... Uh, that's something they they were willing to let us plant trees for them around the community. Uh, we we move to the next slide, please. We they actually decided where they wanted us to plant trees. Um, I think yeah, that's, that's yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, we can go to the last slide. So thank you. We, You'll thank have more you time that. in rebuttal. Your time is up though, but we do have a couple of questions for you, President Swig, then Commissioner Limberg. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask, before I ask my question, I'm going to preamble, uh, a little preamble, but uh, Mr. Clip, could you, could you put up that slide uh, that showed 
um, the uh, the UCSF uh, professional who you know the how to do it how to do it very right and how to do it kind of right and how to do it not right at all slide you know what I'm talking about sorry for going back to another speaker but he had such a good slide that uh, can we get that up Alec? Um, so, uh, while, while we're seeing if that's possible, um, f first of all, um, uh, for, speaking for myself, I, I respect, um, thank you, I respect UCSF tremendously. I respect the, the contributions that it has made to the city of San Francisco uh, and, um, and making it a, a, a center of, a world center of healthcare. Um, uh, literally a world center of healthcare and and benefit our community so tremendously uh, the commit the commitment of of uh, uh, time capital and uh, uh, and to, uh, to improve those already good services is is very much appreciated I think by uh, myself and and our community in general and we appreciate that and respect that uh, tremendously um, so if we give you a hard time tonight it has nothing to do with uh, 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 any disrespect for your project, or uh, or or the organization for which I hold it in my highest uh, esteem, and so is my 92-year-old mother, whose life was saved in that very building, uh, and I appreciate that. Um, so, but we have this slide, which is in front of us: a model of urban forest sustainability application to cities in the United States, and and th this is. This came from one of your guys, and what what it, what bothers me here, and I'd like you to address it, is uh, we have uh, we have experience on on this commission where it's trees as an afterthought, or the last thing that we worry about is trees. This is what we see a lot. Sorry, not how the commission feels. It's how what what we're presented with. Um, I think at the beginning of the year. There was a, a really wonderful housing project um, that is out in um, where, Julie? Um, Julie? I'm sorry? Where was the project? Uh, uh, huh? Or Sunnydale. Sunnydale. Yeah. So there was a great there's a great housing project in Sunnydale, and and. And it was presented, it was wonderful, it was marvelous, new housing, great for the community. Oh, by the way, we got to kill a couple of amazing, how, how old were those trees, do you think, Chris? A hundred years old? Yeah, but they were pretty mature. And, and the question at hand was, and it's the same question here, um, y'all were building this marvelous building for, you know, with this, with this, justifiable view, which may be considered myopic, and I'll, uh, I'll render the same opinion here. And, and then as an afterthought, oh, gee whiz, we're going to have to kill these, you know, these 40-year-old trees. Um, and unfortunately, um, the, the, the commission, from my view, the commission um, uh, agreed that they had to be taken out. But why, with your, your own advisor uh, creating this wonderful model of urban forest sustainability. Why is 
why do I get the feeling that everything was about the building, everything was about your new development, and then as an afterthought, oh, by the way, we got to kill all these trees. Why? And, and then also, why we're here in December, and there's the, um, we didn't have the statement today, but it seems to be the implication that, man, we got to get going on this, we got to get going on this development real fast, and we got to take care of these trees and remove them very, very fast. Why was, why was there, there not more intention and, and conscious effort to sustain these trees and to design around the, uh, these trees? Just out of interest, because it happens all the time. Well, somebody want to address that? Um, Morgan, I don't know if you want to say some words to that, but um, we got cut off a little bit on our slides, but we were going to show some of the um, original concepts, which included our Park to Peak uh, initiative. And so um, Josh, uh, Josh mentioned that um, we added a number of trees um, to our brief, but the fact is, is we always had trees planned on our property. And so there's a section of the building on that sixth floor that has always included the greenery and making that a very green space and making that a public space. So it wasn't that we added trees. We've always contemplated on having those trees. We just didn't feel it was right to put that in this, um, in the original conversations because we were really focusing on what we could do for street trees. And that's where the initiative came up. And, it, and we agree it's really unfortunate that we, we had to do this. Those trees, if you actually look at them, a lot of them straddle the property line. And so um, it just becomes very difficult in that site and constrained spot. And so that's why we came up with the initiative of instead of just doing the one-to-one, -one, we would do a two-to-one and get them back into the community. As Josh said, he's, he acknowledged that there's a little bit, you know, he understands their site constraints. And so it's not necessarily feasible to even put 56 trees in front of um, the Parnassus, but we are doing that as our initiative. Morgan, I don't know if you want to add to that and if that answered your questions. Oh, and the timing, um, I think that has a little bit to do with the um, wanting to get that EIR approved and submitting the applications. I hope um, that UCSF has been 100% transparent on our schedule. That is my understanding at the community meetings we've met at. We've always explained that, you know, when our demolition was going to be taking place. And so um, hope that was just part of the transparent process. Um, are, are you aware that uh, San Francisco is down, what, 20,000 trees, uh, Chris? Did I listen to, did I recall? Your, yeah, uh, last week we had the, the advantage of having Mr. Buck make a wonderful presentation to us about the state of trees in San Francisco and, um, and, and what are the criteria about uh, tearing out trees. So we're, you know, we're armed and extremely dangerous on the, on the subject as a commission. Um, but the, you know, the canopy is well below its, its, uh, its potential or its goal and, um, and it's uh, at least 20,000 trees short. And so, uh, do, you under, do you understand and what steps has UCSF done to recognize the fact that the canopy is 20,000 trees short and that the, the, the thought of one-to-one -one or two-to-one, uh, which probably is going to amount, again, to the replacement of very mature trees with 36-inch box trees, which will take... Um, a long, long time to replace environmentally the the, the positive environmental impact. Uh, uh, do you have any sensitivity around that? And is is there a better option um, 
in, in your mind or willingness from UCSF to expand uh, the scope of replacement? I'd like Morgan to talk a little bit about sure. stewardess and Sutro and what we do um, as far as trees. If that's Yes, I can uh, I can answer that. So we UCSF we are you know aware of the lack of canopy and also the lack of canopy funding in the city and county of San Francisco. Um, so uh, that's one of the the reason that actually we wanted to do two to one and start planting tree around our neighborhood. So. You know, because we were going to plant trees, as you see, part of the design, and and so we knew that there would be trees here now. But you know, by planting in the neighborhood, in the neighborhood, and using you know IFP, which is in process, and it's it's ongoing, you know, and obviously because it's uh, it's a uh, we cannot just say who's the winner right now. We're not we're not yet into it, you know. But it's uh, we are ready to plant the tree soon as we have the winner of the RFP, and it means like we'll have tree planted in in you know soon as in the spring, you know. So we are aware of the canopy loss. I myself manage Monsutro, you know, and we have a vegetation management plan since 2018, and we 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 we've been removing dead and dying trees since 2018 and replanting the canopy, and that was a real from our neighbor and our community and uh, and the citizen of the of the city that wanted to keep the canopy of Mount Sutro. And that's what we've been doing. We already planted about 1,500 trees. So we 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 really aware of this and we are aware that of the lack of canopy in the city, which is a lot related to general funding, you know, and 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 it's just we, we are now ready to replant trees and we have the funding set aside to do this right away. Um, so it's not like we didn't think about it, but it was in the back of our mind, you know, obviously. Um, and, um, you know, it, it just, uh, the way we, well, we, how we thought about two to one and, and that's how we went into it, you know. Um, and maybe uh, other organization can see also that, you know, maybe if you can fit all the trees in your area, maybe you can fit them around the neighborhood too, you know, uh, that's, that could be an example. Thank you, uh, Mr. Uh, Commissioner Lemberg. Thank you for um, all of your clarifications. Um, a couple of questions. Uh, one was uh, just something I noticed in UCSF slides, uh, was which regarded three years of health. It was not super clear what it meant in the slide itself, uh, so I just wanted to clarify what that meant, and uh, and just to make sure that the plan is not to only uh, maintain the, the yeah. replacement trees for three years after they're planted. Yeah, I can answer that. So. Um... So part of the plant for replanting the trees, it's not only you're just planting the trees. So the community-based group is going to be connecting with the people. We already did the work with Buff to figure out more or less where we have three well available on our neighborhood, you know. So there's still some site, site work to do, you know. And so... Uh, and to meet with the neighbors and, you know, there's, there's some of the community, you know, collaboration work that's going to be going on with that community group. 
And uh, so the tree are going to be planted, pick and choose. Um, I follow following up the list that is allowed in the city. Uh, and um, and so those trees are going to be maintained. And so we say maintained for elks means like uh, it's going to be it's going to be from the day of planting is going to be maintained for three years. Um, and they'll be watered and they'll be pruned when they need to be pruned. Um, they'll be fertilized and also um, if for any reason during those three years they actually damage or they die on transplant shock, they are also we have a we, we we have a program to replace them. So after three years, normally tree fall back under you know the under from Part E they fall back on under the responsibility for DB, DPW. Uh, that's why we set it up for three years a three years plan and and we know already with all the work's been done you know. Uh, that uh, you know, with with Buff and, and and even like friend of urban forest and other groups, that three years is the time to water the trees for 15 gallon trees to have the best availability. You know, uh, also I want to add, you know, by starting planting 36 inch box or 48 inch box, in that case, we'll we'll have to we won't be able to have a community group to planting those trees. In that case, we'll have to do a RFP to have actually a contractor doing this because a lot of those groups won't be able to do those things. They won't, they won't have the capacity to do that. And so the common size tree planting for the street tree, it's 15 gallons. That's why we decided to go for 15 gallons. Because if we start going to, uh, for 24 and 36 inches box, now we're talking about contractor that's going to have to do the work. No, it's not going to be a community Base, uh, you know, uh, small, small, uh, you know, small group that's going to be able, capable to do those kind of thing, you know. Uh, so th that's why it's all we, we we all thought about this. Now we just not only all thought about adding more trees, but who's going to do it and why we pick those those people to do it. You know, the RFP that we are doing right now, it's actually it's not a, at the lowest cost now because they are community-based group, you know, nonprofits. They don't have the capacity to do those kind of things in, in that direction. And we want the best product. So our RFP is based on, on, on best management and best product, not on the lowest bid, you know. So that, that's why, you know, our community-based planting is all based on that. We all thought about all those little details, you know. And, 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 you know, and the connection with our neighbor is important, you know, and, uh, and expanding the greenery around our campus is important. And that doesn't mean that in the future we can't continue doing this and expand more, uh, you know, and plant more trees as, as there is projects in the city or even UCSF as projects. We are going to be in construction for the next 30 years at UCSF. We are going to be planting trees in the future, you know. We are going to be moving buildings that are actually there and replanting and add corridors and 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 things that are not here today, you know. So it, it's uh, it's it was all thought about. We we took long time, uh, especially me. I took long time to think about it. Uh, how we can get engaged with the community. And uh, how can we do something like that? You know, um, how can we engage with with our neighbor? You know, um, follow up question. Uh, I also recall that a lot of these trees are supposed to be planted on the sixth or eighth floor, something like that. 
of the actual building, which I assume is being done as a uh, privately that, owned public uh, yeah, space. I forgot what the acronym is. Um, I assume that the maintenance for those does not transfer to DPW after the end of three years. Is that correct? Yes, and, and those trees are not encountered in a number of trees in total, you know, but yes, like the trees are going to be in the hospital on the sixth floor, you know, we are going to be planting them and we have um, a team, you know, we have a design team and things like that. Uh, and we yeah, are going to them. We, yeah, I just want to clarify that. It's really important. The 56 trees that we're doing are going to be on street property, not state property. Uh, we just were, we were asked the question about how we were contemplating greenery. And so that's why we brought up the trees that we're actually doing on our property as well, which we will own and, and maintain into perpetuity. Great. Thank you. Um, and one more question, which is, I, I've heard UCSF's commitment to replant the street trees two for one uh, of, of these trees that are being proposed to be removed. Um, and I might be projecting a little bit, but I think, you know, possibly the, um, you know, if, if this permit or this uh, DPW decision is upheld, those 28 street trees are for sure disappearing. Um, but I think one of the concerns perhaps of the appellants and, and of the neighbors is going to be what accountability there is for UCSF in replanting that two for one or greater ratio than that. Um, and so my question for you is what accountability is built into the system uh, in UCSF's internal processes, in, um, the, in <coughs> public facing ways that the public can make sure that these things are happening? Uh, I, I think, you know, something Mr. Clip stated uh, as to, you know, years, uh, years going by after decisions, even by the Board of Appeals and nothing happening for those years. Uh, so I just kind of want to hear what UCSF is going to do to make sure that not only UCSF stays accountable, but it also stays accountable to the neighbors and the public at large. I can answer that. Um, we don't have community relations with us, but they, work, they did a lot of the work for this. So soon as we have, you know, on board, we on board uh, with a contract because they are, we on board with uh, the non-profit uh, to the organization non-profit. We are going to be doing community events and says that we to to present the the, the to present the community uh, the community base group that's going to be planting the trees. Um, and um, what we can do and to make sure, you know, obviously it's going to be on contract. Now it's IFP. So, so we are going to be funding that group. So to, for them to plant trees, we'll be working with them in case of difficulties. You know, those, those are community-based groups, non-profits. They are not contractor. You know, so we, we know that we, we probably are going to be working with them. On, 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 you know, on all those levels, you know, to support them to do this. Uh, it's not that easy um, to do this. I think, like, we um, also, like, for example, for just to give you an example, because it's just uh, a logistic uh, part of the contract, because I don't want to detail too much of the contract, because it's still in process on the RFP. But, you know, like the tree well uh, concrete, when they're going to be cut, you know, we know it's very extremely expensive uh, to get the concrete out of it and recycle. So we are going to be recycling the concrete for those community-based groups because we know it's very extremely difficult and expensive for them to do so. 
So, um, so my, my, what we can do to make it my, my, make sure like the public is aware, we can do more community-based group and uh, you know quarterly given updates on where we at and how many trees we planted and what uh, what's our where are we to our goals, you know, on, on this uh, and uh, that's definitely something that we can do um, uh, and uh, we can put together uh, to make sure that. We are we're planting the trees. We say we are going to do, and um, and uh, and so everyone, the neighbors, and everyone in the city uh, can see that we we met our commitment, you know, and that we really this is something we want to do. Yeah, yeah I can't Thank you. reiterate enough that UCSF is a hundred percent committed to doing this. Morgan has already stated our RFP is already drafted and out in the community right now, and we have every intention of doing this, and we've already communicated that out with our community, and our word is important within San Francisco. Thank you. Commissioner Trezvina? Uh Thank you, and um, it's, it's unfortunate that you are not here in the room uh, with us tonight because our sound system is not of the highest quality, apparently, and almost every line I see on of the uh, of the text on the screen is inaudible. So I apologize in advance for asking you questions which you may have already answered. Uh, I just did not hear. Um, on the issue of the plans, and I hear I hear your commitments. I hear intentions. I can't I can't equate more UCSF with good health and 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 I and I a great deal of trust goes into this but can you tell me have you identified the locations of these replacement trees Yes so we did some work uh, in the beginning with Buff to see you know what locations were available you know and so they they help us out to see what and send us some some uh, some excess file. You say those are the tree well, and so but they have to be checked on site. So we, we just put a sample uh, in the brief on a, as an attachment, but we had a, we had more of them, you know, because we looked at some very large area in the beginning. You know, it's been a long process to figure it out. So, but do you, um, but do so, you know where the the fifty? I guess it's fifty six or forty. Uh, or 39 non-UCSF trees are going to go? We have the list, and part of the RFP with our community group, they are going to be working with our neighbor and connected with them and verifying that those tree wells are connected to a viable tree well. You know, and so they are going to make the connection, the site connections, you know. And so if there's not, some of those tree wells are not available for any reasons, you know, so it's so, you, so you don't have you don't have a you don't have the locations set. You're, yeah, we you're do telling have, me that you, have, they may or may, you're saying they may or may not be available. Morgan, let me just let me just. But, I'm saying we have the locations, but they still there's always a last check on site. You have to make you have to do. Also, you know, it has to be we have to make sure that we have the tree permits and the tree permits are no cost, and it has to be sent to Beth. All right, so you can't say tonight where the trees are going to go. So we have the, yeah, we just have the general, 
We just have a general location of where we're going to put them, what okay. neighborhoods. All right, that's, but that's fine. But as that's... part of our, but as part of our RFP, uh, we have a list of empty wells. But they, um, that group, that local group, will help us identify which ones are available. So that's part of that process. Okay. And what is your deadline to have the trees in place? We, we are aiming to do this as soon as possible. So unfortunately it is through an RFP process and it's a little slow right now because of December. And so we haven't gotten a lot of responses. So we're doing some outreach. And once we get them on board, we will move as quickly as possible. So I think Morgan feels confident that we'll have them in no later than this summer. We're aiming for spring. Okay. Thank you. And one, other, one last question is, um, what are the consequences? We know that if we if we uh, a, favor, a favorable decision for USASF will mean we're killing 28 trees, and 22 of which are currently healthy. What are, what is the consequences if we do not allow you to remove the trees? Um. The consequences of to not remove the trees. So I I, I think it's I, I I don't know all the detail because I'm a the, I'm an arborist, you know. So some of those questions of related to constrictions and planning and things like that, you know, that's already been in pro, pro in a progress and process um, with the city, you know, and the country of San Francisco. Um, I will say that, you know, like the benefits of those trees for the health, because when we talk of benefits of trees, it's also the it's benefits related to people, you know, and uh, and ultimately the hospital is also promoting the benefits of people. So um, it's very complex uh, and difficult decisions. That's yeah, so a hard. It's a hard to answer that because, as I mentioned, a lot of these trees actually straddle both properties, and so is the question: Would we move on with construction and just kill the trees inadvertently, or um, postpone our construction and redesign? Yes. Yeah. I, that's what I expect to have an answer. Somebody in your governmental relations office ought to be able to tell us this is so important that this is gonna have these consequences to this important new hospital project. It's gonna either take time, greater time, or there's no other place to put the trees, or it's gonna sacrifice the ambulance space or the bed space, something. And that's what I'm looking for. Well, we've heard, we, we hear compelling stories about the canopy and the trees. I think at this point we're talking about less than one-tenth of one percent of the gap. What I'm looking for is what's the what is the compelling need on the other side, and giving you an opportunity to describe what the impact to your um, construction is. Uh, Commissioner, if I may, I'm Charles Olson. I'm outside Land Use Council for UCSF, and I've worked on the environmental impact reports for the comprehensive uh, Parnassus Heights plan, as well as the new hospital EIR. And so this hospital design uh, has been worked on for the past several years. Initially, it was uh, the hospital was going to uh, 
have a footprint that extended into the Mount Sutro forest and would have removed trees. Uh, that, that has been changed. But I think that there was a site plan that was put up earlier that the hospital will be between um, Parnassus Avenue and Medical Center Way, which is a very narrow street running on, on the side, uh, will run between the Mount Sutro forest and, and where currently Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute and where the new hospital would go. Um, along with the, the, the hospital plan is a lot of work on Parnassus that's been part of work with the city planning department for the last 10, 10 years uh, since, well, actually since 2014, uh, including uh, curb cuts, uh, new hospital uh, entrance areas, uh, ambulance areas, staging areas, all of which will occur along Parnassus Avenue. But during the construction, which I think Morgan said, uh, is currently scheduled to commence in uh, next year, uh, and will be a six-year construction process. The work area that's available is primarily along Parnassus Avenue and, uh, and a very narrow street on Medical Center Way. There's the, the rest of the hospital site, the new hospital site, is surrounded by Moffitt Hospital and Long Hospital. There's no other way to access this site for this six and seven years of demolition and construction, new utilities, new curb cuts, new uh, ambulance, and other staging areas uh, without working uh, from Parnassus Avenue. So I think in answer to your question, it, it has been studied by the university uh, and it would it would cause a serious problem to the ability to stage and construct construct this hospital if there's not access along Parnassus Avenue. That's very helpful. Thank you, President Swig. Sure, I wanted to move on to Mr. Buck, but I, I have a burning question. Um, um, I I need some clarification. It keeps on the the RFP to replace the. I've heard a couple of things, and again, um, uh, Mr. Charzvinia is right. One of the dis disabilities that is created for us is that we, especially, uh, is it Vasefovel? Is a, am I butchering it? I'm sorry. Uh, you know, somebody with a with a heavy accent which I don't fault you for having, but boy, oh boy, when it comes over the internet and over a lousy sound system, it's hard to hear you and get every, every word. Um, so uh, please excuse if I, if I didn't hear something. Well, one of the things I, I, I did hear was that there was the intention of doing an RFP uh, to, to replant the trees, but I also heard, because Mr. Clip commented on it, that it was gonna be uh, Friends of the Urban Forest we're going to be the 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 community organization doing it. Um, the, how much are you spending on the overall hospital? How many billion? Has to be billion, right? No, no, no. I mean, uh, uh, maybe maybe Mr. Olson can can. Yes. Uh, how how yeah. many billion? President Swig, the the estimated construction cost for the hospital is several billion dollars. Exactly, okay. Yeah. So we're talking about uh, on a two, two to one basis, and I, I would advocate that it should be more, and I'm gonna bring that up to Mr. Uh, Mr. Buck, uh, but on a, on, on a four to one basis, on a 10 to one basis, to have a professional organization that has surety to put in 36 or 42 inch boxes um, in a, a multi tens of billions of dollars pr program, I don't understand 
Why are you going to the Friends of the Urban Forest or some community-based not-for-profit, as I understand your RFP is going? I don't understand. This is like penny-wise, pound-foolish. It, it, it shows, it just doesn't show the same priority. You're not going to go to a community-based organization to build your hospital. So, so why, why this RFP, as I am interpreting it, is going out to community-based organizations, I love Friends of the Urban Forest, but, but hire, hire a professional organization that can heavy lift and, and, and do the job. Why, am I getting, am I off base here? Or what's, would you repeat how this replacement process is gonna go and who's gonna do it? Or did I say yes. the right thing? Yes, I can repeat that. So I'll speak slowly to make sure everybody understand me. Uh, so the RFP is already in process. So no one has been chosen. Uh, Friend of Urban Forest is not chosen. You know, there's multiple organizations on the list of the RFP. What UCSF is using and is going to uh, an organism, a nonprofit, it's because we have this the way we've been doing it, this with more sutro, for example. We have we supporting the, the sutro stewards as a, a nonprofit nonprofit organization to help us uh, advocating build trails and also you know we plant native plants and run our native nursery at Mount Sutro. So we, 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 we are committed to our community, and it's one of the reasons why we pick to plant trees in our neighborhood to, to use a nonprofit organizations. There is multiple nonprofit organizations. There's just not friend on, and there's not only friend of urban forest in the city and country of San Francisco that operates. So that's 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 why we are we were we we were interested to go into using what we've been doing for so many years and to work with our community. That's mainly why we went in that directions. If we start planting 36 inch box trees in a neighborhood, we are not going to be working with a nonprofit, a community grassroots that's deeply need funding to plant more trees in a city. And naturally, there's no funding going to nonprofit to plant trees. There's not a funding going to them, uh, to the biggest one and the smallest one. I'm really sorry, but your your last 50 words, I have no idea what you said. It's just really getting difficult. And what I, I and it goes to the root of my question. Um, and the root of my question is, if there, if you identify, I'm going to throw out a number. Uh, 40 empty uh, street tree, what do you call them, Chris? Tree basins. Tree basins, thank you. In throughout the city of San Francisco to locate new trees. And, and you send the Friends of the Urban Forest volunteers to replant 36-inch box trees in, in these locations. This, this, is a this is not planting trees along a trail. I understand what you're saying. If I was planting trees along a trail, I'd call friends of the urban forest and we'll we'll do a you know a big outing. But this is this is heavy lifting, serious stuff. I I, I don't understand, and I ask you or to, again to to why why this direction when you are contemplating going out in in 
placing replacement trees of a sizable nature to replace mature, full-growth trees, why, why are you going the trail route versus a professional route when it comes to trees in San Francisco, which to my life is very important? UCSF, maybe not so much, but for my life and fellow citizens, very important. Why? I just answered just earlier. Um, so the reason why we're going for 15 gallons to plant trees in the city is because this is a standard to plant newly trees in the city, uh, especially using a nonprofit. We're using a nonprofit because we know they can handle the 15 gallons size streets, you know, and, and, and so why are we going to go to a contractor or not and, and instead to... You're, 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 not, you're, not answering my, you're, you're not answering my question cooperatively. Uh, you're choosing to continue your, your mantra, we're going to do 50, 50, this is what nonprofits can handle, and what I'm, what I'm telling you is if we yeah. go in a direction to mandate 36-inch, 42 inch or much larger appropriate trees, uh, your direction is, is, is failed. So we're on opposite w wavelengths here. So let's move it on because Chris is getting late, uh, we're tired, and Mr. Buck uh, has been waiting patiently. Unless Mr. Trezvine, you want to add something? Only briefly to ask you a question, President Swig, and that is, might it be appropriate, given the sound system, to continue this to a later date to allow all the sides to be here and to have UCSF reflect upon the various concerns that they have heard tonight from you and, and, and my colleagues to come up with either more complete answers and perhaps alternatives, plans uh, on, 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 on the tree replacement issue. I'm wondering procedurally, is, is that something that can be done Procedurally I, sorry. Uh, procedurally, I would suggest that we finish the hearing. We let Mr. Buck speak. We hear public comment. We get the, uh, we, we go for the rebuttal. And then if you feel the same way at the end of that time, I, I would be right by your side. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Let's go to Chris, shall we? Thank you. Good evening, Commissioners. Chris Buck with Public Works, Bureau of Urban Forestry. And um, before I start, I just wanted to say, um, you know, I really do respect Mr. Clip, um, Josh Clip, the appellant in this case. I respect his advocacy. Um, he's been effective and a real advocate for the urban forest. And I just wanted to start off um, acknowledging that and uh, respecting that. So uh, with that, I have just prepared a statement. I'll read through it, and that'll keep me as concise as possible. Uh, Public Works Bureau of Urban Forestry received tree removal permit application 792615 from UCSF Parnassus Heights in June of this year, which was after the Planning Commission and the UC Regents approved the MOU, the project as proposed, and the final environmental impact report, FEIR. The opportunity to advocate that the 28 trees remain uh, would have occurred during the public outreach process by UCSF to the surrounding community and during the publicly available EIR public comment period. Had our Bureau been involved when building design was still to be determined, the staff level recommendation would have followed our general policy alluded to, 
to deny the request to remove the trees if they are healthy and sustainable. It also helps if the project is not already approved. When the application was received and we researched the status of the project approvals, we reached out to Chelsea Fordham, a senior planning department staff member in environmental, to confirm if the project had obtained all necessary approvals and if street tree removals were contemplated and discussed in the environmental impact report documents. Our goal was to learn if the public had been involved with reviewing the project as proposed. The answer is that yes, UCSF Parnassus Heights has conducted extensive outreach about the project to the community, and this is well documented in all the project reports, and specifically within their UCSF Comprehensive Parnassus Heights Plan MOU and the CHP Final Environmental Impact Report. Only after reviewing and understanding these important project approval milestones did our Bureau concede that the opportunity to advocate that the trees be retained and the project redesigned to accommodate the trees had passed. We share Mr. Clip's frustration. The city has declared a climate emergency and many of the subject trees are very large Monterey Cypress trees that were clearly not considered for retention as part of the project. Um, I, went, I go into some other things about the timeline. I don't want to get, um, I, I respect Mr. Clip's brief. Uh, there was no intention to speed the process up. We actually, um, delayed the hearing process by a month um, through scheduling snafu through no one's fault of their own. So we definitely didn't speed it up, but let me cut through that. Um, the appellant did suggest that there was some fast tracking, but again, we, there was no fast tracking. And in fact, we delayed a hearing by a month. And then there was also no specific resulting decision promised in emails. This was very basic, typical communication with folks who have a large project and have a lot of people to answer to. The applicant has agreed to plant replacement trees on a two for one ratio. We understand that the existing trees proposed for removal are much larger and provide greater benefits. But this proposal allows us to have more trees planted within an area of the city that already has a high number of street trees per block when compared to other neighborhoods. Overall, this is a lower priority planning area for the city with far greater needs existing to the southeast area of the city and the western neighborhoods. UCSF has committed to plant these trees in 2023, although the project will take six years to complete. So it's a robust conversation on the timing, um, but I'm heartened to hear that there's already an RFP in place and they're actively getting lists of sites with our urban forestry inspector based on tree map census we have of potential vacant sites. So they're already um, sort of way out ahead in my um, neutral opinion on that. So that's, that's um, just some additional feedback I wanted to provide. The details of the eventual Parnassus Ave streetscape permit will not be known for at least three years due to the documented planning required for utility work approval. The current proposal is to remove 28 street trees and replace 14 street trees along the same frontage and 42 in the neighboring community. The trees in the neighboring community would be planted in 2023 and the street trees planted adjacent to Parnassus would occur in 2029 to 2030 when the project is nearing completion. We typically do not assess the in-lieu fees for tree planting until the project is closer to completion and construction is being finalized. The applicant has submitted a checklist form for tree planting and protection. 
and we believe they will be subject to any in lieu fees that are required to be paid for required trees that can't be planted due to utility conflicts. This relates to one of the parts in uh, Mr. Clip's brief, Section 8060 of Public Works Code. Public Works believes that approving the permit to remove 28 subject trees and the condition that they be planted on a two to one ratio, which exceeds the one for one requirement is reasonable. This will include the planting of approximately 14 trees in the Parnassus frontage and 42 new street trees in the surrounding neighborhood next year in 2023. Public Works will assume maintenance responsibility for the trees after the three year establishment period. We believe we are applying the code in a reasonable way and getting more trees than we otherwise would. And UCSF's commitment to plant 42 of the trees in 2023, six years ahead of uh, construction is relatively unprecedented. This is not inconsistent with what the code allows, um, but I have heard the conversations about replacement tree value and appraisal. And I think that's likely where the conversation may continue to uh, move. Uh, thank you. Um, so just to reiterate, Public Works, Public Works um, is asking at this point in time that the appeal be denied and the permit be issued. But again, I appreciate the conversation that's already taken place prior to me even reading uh, my statement this evening. Thank you. Last week, you, uh, you made a point that when it comes to mature trees, that are not uh, that are not decayed, that are healthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That uh, they're they're super highly protected, and you got to better be a, a pretty good reason why we're going to tear them out. Okay, and at, at the same, and also you stated that uh, there are twenty thousand trees short in the city of San Francisco's canopy, and the twenty thousand trees is not only a beautification issue, but it's an environmental issue. Trees make oxygen. Uh, trees uh, take away bad stuff from the air, blah, 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 blah. All good things, all positive, okay? So we have, in, in this case, and, and, and then thirdly, you said that when it can't come, in the case of a mature tree, uh, it, it, the, the replacement trees are based on the girth of the, the, the tree, and, uh, and then the replacement, number of replacement trees are, are measured according to the replacement of the size of the tree. So, so we have these mature cypress. You said yourself, boy, it's a drag that they're being torn out. Had we known, had prioritization been, which it was exactly the same thing in Sunnydale, and we've had it done before, that the, the, the tree dies. Oops, sorry, we could have planned around it, but we didn't think of that. And so it became low priority. That's, that, that's, that's the whole thing. You want to replace the canopy. You want to replace... The, uh, the, the tree girth with an equal impacted tree. So one, why two to one? Why not three to one? Why not four to one? Yeah, I know the standard's one to one, but that's one to one when you're replacing uh, teeny tiny street trees, not mature, majestic uh, uh, cypress trees. So w why is it only two to one? Uh, why isn't three? Why isn't four? Number two, the replacement. To, to, to let, with all due respect, friends of the urban forest do it, a not-for-profit potentially, who, who are only have the capacity to install minor trees, 
why not the requirement to, to replace them as we do in commercial locations with 32, with 36, 42 inch box, et cetera, yeah, as close to mature as reasonable. And you've given me some instruction in the past on why you can't replace gigantic trees, you know, and speed the, speed the plow. Um, so I know that it's going to be 36 or 42. Um, so why, why just because a not-for-profit can only handle a 50-gallon 50, 50 tree, why, what is that all about? The, the goal <clears throat> is to replace like-kind with like-kind and replenish the in, environment. Final question, why is it restricted only to the Parnassus Heights neighborhood? There are 20,000 trees missing in the city of San Francisco, and we all breathe common air. And, and so why is the restriction just to Parnassus? If you run out of trees, hey, come and plant them in, in my neighborhood or John's neighborhood, you. you know, or mm. JR's neighborhood. We, we got some empty basins there, I'm sure. So I, I don't understand why it's two to one. I don't understand why the restriction to a 50-gallon instead of a 36 or 42. I don't understand why the, it's only restricted to uh, a neighborhood, especially and, – and, and why it's being left to a not-for-profit who's not capable of heavy lifting necessary to, to plan a, 40, a 36 or a 42. Can you explain that stuff in the context of a multi-tens of billions of dollars development? I mean, it's chump change. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, and I appreciate the comments of all commissioners um, to both the appellant and the applicant prior to, um, to me coming up here. I've been listening closely to where the conversation's been going. Um, so. I think I don't know the the exact um, genesis of the community um, community urban forest uh, recommendation. I it could have come up in public outreach during um, that sort of outreach to the community. It could have been suggested by uh, local neighborhood advocates that hey, can you can you replace these with friends urban forest? That would be a really great thing. So there may be a very practical reason beyond what um, Morgan from UCSF was also pointing out. So it could have just evolved during a, a community process. One of the things I do want to I, I do want to um, admit to you know having there be some question regarding replacement value. So. Um, historically, whenever a tree is removed but can't be replaced, say for a, a garage, there's an existing tree, someone wants to install a garage, and they're going to remove it without replacement. We assess the appraised value for the loss of that tree. Very straightforward. We're losing that tree. We weren't also able to require a replacement as well. It was referred to as double dipping. So it was like, if it can't be replanted, we're going appraised value. Um, one of the, in our code under planting and removal by persons other than the department, it does say that um, the, the city grants a tree removal permit shall require that a street tree or trees of equivalent replacement value to the one removed be planted in place of the removed tree or imposed in Luffy unless it makes a written findings detailing the basis for waiving. Now, typically, we only until a few years ago didn't maintain all the street trees in the city. We couldn't mandate that people plant trees across the city because we couldn't, um, the fronting property owners were responsible. So that hurdle's been lifted as of um, Jan July 1st, 2017. A few years ago at ZSF General, uh, there was an appeal and the appellant 
requested um, either UCSF or SF General, depending on how do you look at the lease agreement, require 15 additional trees to be planted in the surrounding neighborhood. That was beyond what our code could require, but we could agree to it because we could maintain those trees after the three-year um, establishment has been completed. What's challenging about the code as written about replacement value is that it's very difficult to plant very large trees in an urban environment. And so very often when we require a replacement, as is occurring here, we're not doing the appraised value because they're at least replacing it. There is some question as to, well, can we, if they're replanting with a 24-inch box tree, can we do the difference? Okay, subtract the cost of a 24-inch box tree and get $20,000 for that much larger tree, or $35,000. I did consult with an advice attorney with Public Works today, um, having reviewed Mr. Clip's brief to understand how we would apply that in this case. There have been several cases at Public Works where applicants have gone above and beyond what's required. That can be confusing to the public because they just assume that just happens naturally. Well, sometimes that's a give during mitigation. Um, so to get back to answering that question on why the two to one, I mean, before a few years ago, we, that two to one wasn't even possible. We do have it written in our code that an applicant is required to plant replacement value. And that can be done two ways. One is the basal, which is the appraised landscape value of a tree. We have not conducted appraised landscape values of the subject trees. The total diameter equivalent of the 28 subject trees is 531 inches. 24 inch box trees are approximately 1.5 inches in diameter. That would be 354 24 inch box trees. I bring this up because this is not in our resulting decision, but I had a feeling based on Mr. Clip's appeal that this is where the conversation may lead. Um, how we get there is, is another question. Um, so regarding why things were restricted to Parnassus sites, again, we rather have replacement trees. Um, we're unsure how to apply this section of our permit if someone is replacing, how you also get the appraised value. But again, the logistics of planting large trees in an urban environment is very, very challenging. It's not Apple Park where you can just come in and, and plop them where you, where you wish. So that's regard, a little bit regarding two to one replacement. Um, that came up in this process was, well, you need to do more than one for one. And so in our hearing process, that two for one was was proposed. We recognize that it doesn't come close to reaching the, um, the uh, appraised value of the, the replacement value of those trees. The replacement trees could be expanded beyond that immediate neighborhood. And in, a, in a no way am I belittling that neighborhood. It's just per, per street block, they have more street trees than, than most neighborhoods. Um, I think I've answered those three questions and just try to provide a little more context on what our code can potentially require. And I think it was the, the, the final question was utilization of a not-for-profit using the excuse of the use of a not-for-profit that are only capable of, capable of putting in 50-gallon uh, uh, trees versus uh, what the real true need is. And uh, you, just, you just said, I mean, that... Uh, from a replacement tree standpoint, fine, two to one. Replacement from an appraised value, 
I, the, the math was significantly higher than, than yes. two to one. And then, and so what, what is the wisdom of, other than it feels good, other than, gee, it's nice to be nice to, to not-for-profits. I love not-for-profits. I have nothing to, against them. But if it, if, it, if it inhibits or compromises the quality of life for the 850,000 residents of the city of San Francisco because their air is less pure than it was before they, they tear out those trees, hey, uh, uh, we, we can take care of the not-for-profits in a, a different fashion r related to you know, uh, uh, the, the tree canopy. So give, us, give me a, a comment on that. Sure, so regarding you know, community-based urban forestry, there's a lot of value to that. There's a lot of research that shows that owners who are engaged in planting trees adjacent to their property are um, more apt to keep an eye on them and can care for them. Um, with that said, I think the, the perception is the value added. The value added, um, I don't, again, as we talk through this um, permit application, it, I don't see it as a limiting factor. Um, perhaps it can be complementary if there's, if there's some other recommendation that the commission goes in. Um, but it's, I, I perceived it as a very positive thing showing how dialed in and committed to replacement they are. So I, my feeling, I think, viscerally is a little different. It's one of trust and there's an RFP. And I, I literally did a double take when I realized they're saying they're going to plant these in 2023, not 2029. And I think that should be acknowledged. That's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, now, you might argue, well, what are you going to do for six years? You might as well get busy. So I agree with that. So there's, there's pros, but it hasn't been mandated per se. It's just the, the plan that seemed to evolve with UCSF. Um, I wouldn't say that that's holding back the replacement size requirement. Um, it's just the way that their mitigations have evolved and have been proposed in their process. Is there a, is there a potential hybrid compromise where uh, there's a two-to-one replacement uh, plus a, uh, a cash donation uh, to the city of San Francisco for the purpose of planting street trees as, uh, to mitigate the loss of the mature trees and to approach the the appraised value, which you know is the appraised values of those trees. I don't, you don't, you don't know the number, but you know it's a hell of a lot bigger than uh, a two to one replacement. Correct, Commissioner. I, I hear the feedback this evening that commissioners have inquired about um, both replacement value, both either as straight diameter equivalent replacement or the appraised value as defined in our code. Um, that wasn't part of the resulting recommendation, but it's something that we can do as an exercise. As a comparison point is appraised value of those existing trees. Um, and then this uh, the, the data I just gave you, 531 diameter, that's adding up all the diameters of the existing trees. If there were a few that need to be removed, then the value would be zero, but more or less a very high number, uh, well into the 500 range. Um, so hybrid is a possibility. I don't think that that um, who plants the replacement trees is a very a specific permit requirement that we're opposed to that changing or altering in any way. Um, but again, a trusted uh, community partner. Again, there's an RFP, RFP, and I've heard it said several times that it's still not issued. 
there's a process they need to follow. It could be uh, a nonprofit similar to an organization like Friends of the Urban Forest. Thank you, Commissioner Limber. Sorry. Um, first, I just wanted clarification. We keep talking about appraised value. Are we literally talking about appraised monetary value of how much a tree is worth? Mm -hmm. Correct. There's um, the guide to landscape appraisal determines a value on on trees. There's several ways to do it. One way that no one ever wants to do it is, is real estate value. You, you can't do that unless you're in the Central Valley. Right. You know, everything here is expensive, regardless if you have a tree in front of your home. The point is you can, based on species, condition of the tree, placement, if it's in a great placement, higher rating, you know, if it's planted in a terrible location, it's creating a lot of problems, it's going to be um, rated a lower value. But yes, there's a established appraisal process. It is established in our definitions, in our code. We've typically employed it when it's removal without replacement. But as an exercise, it could be done to understand what that would be for the 28 subject trees. Okay. Um, uh, okay, so I want to go back to the, the three-year maintenance. To me, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for UCSF to agree to maintain trees for three years when they are, by their own admission, about to start a construction project that's going to take 10 or more years. Um, and so they're going to plant these trees, and even uh, assuming uh, they plant them in 2023, as they say they are going to, um, we then, you know, are in 2026, and we have five more years of construction to go that potentially could still significantly impact the trees that were just planted. What are your I, I, what are your thoughts and opinions about you know the length of time UCSF should be maintaining these trees, knowing that there's ongoing construction? Uh, thank you, Commissioner. Um, I completely understand where you're you know you're questioning on this. So uh, the three year period, just in general, is a um, kind of an established period of time that it takes to establish a young street tree. So you plant the tree and you water it once a week for three years. And after about three years, it's developed enough of a root system on its own that it no longer needs any supplemental water. Um, it's established. Now it still might be a little smaller. Um, so at a minimum, we require that anyone who plants a street tree in the public right of way, not planted by us, uh, commit to a three-year maintenance sort of period. So that's where the three years comes in. After three years, it reverts to being maintained by public works. These trees would not be planted in harm's way. Um, these would be planted on different facing blocks, um, not likely to be damaged in any way during construction. So that's a little bit more about where the three-year comes from. Okay. It, it basically helps us get trees established in the city that we can assume responsibility for um, once they're established. That's very helpful, thank you. Um, and then I heard with great interest your, your number of 354 uh, box trees to replace the, the girth or whatever terms we're using here, um, which I you know did a quick calculation. It's between 12 and 13 to one uh, rather than the two to one um, thing. And I also have heard you say, and, and I understand as I, I'm very familiar with the neighborhood around UCSF Parnassus, that it's not really the neighborhood that's in most need of street trees in the city, um, especially considering that it's completely adjacent to Mount Sutro, which is 
I mean, basically one of our only urban greenbelt areas. Um, you've also stated that it's possible to mandate trees going into other neighborhoods that might be in greater need of street trees. So uh, my question for you actually is, what neighborhoods are in most need of street trees um, in the city? Sure, um, definitely in the southeast. So Bayview, Visitation Valley, Excelsior, Outer Mission, uh, Portola, um, I'm forgetting plenty. Um, also Crocker, Amazon, District 11. Also Districts 1 and 4, so the avenues, uh, Sunset and Richmond. So it, it's kind of um, center of the city is pretty well planted out. Higher number, not planted out, higher number of trees per block. Um, those are broadly some of them. The Tenderloin and, and South of Market uh, as well are in need, uh, great need of tree planting. Okay, thank you. Mr. Trezvina. Uh Thank you for your presentation. Can you explain or, or elaborate on why it's laudatory for UCSF to be planting the 28 trees or the whatever number of trees we're talking about in 2023 when they're removing them in 2023 as opposed to 2029 or 2030? I, I, I would seem that more expected rather than laudatory, so I'm hoping you might be able to explain that. Sure, uh, Commissioner, good, good question. Um, so typically re when removal, when projects are occurring, it's all on the current site, and you just aren't, we don't want to put trees in harm's way. So someone seeks to remove trees, we may be sex successful in protecting a few on site. Um, so you're protecting a few, hopefully you've removed some, and there's no, there's no opportunity for replacement um, physically on that site. So that is the case for the, the Parnassus Avenue frontage. No trees are going back there. It's they're going right. to be taking lanes. It's it's going to be, um, you know, steam shovel lane. So that's the first. That's the the typical scenario. Um, it's highly unusual to have. I'm just trying to think of other examples where anyone's tried to plant mitigating trees in, in surrounding neighborhoods. I mean, we did that for um, ZSFGH. Um, we planted 15 trees. We did it a year early. Their project isn't done yet, and we planted them in March for Arbor Day of this year. Another example of us sticking to the conditions of a permit from the Board of Appeals. So it's laudatory in a sense that I, you know, they they could, you know, who knows what they're doing during that time. It does make sense. It makes common sense. I hear you. Um, what I will say is the idea is that they're planning them in 2023 right away. And then those trees are growing for six years. So this idea that we're going to get a larger tree in the end by the time they're nearing completion. So that, that, I think that ties into like why a 15-gallon or a 24-inch box, why use a nonprofit, is like get those trees started now. And they are, you know, that is, it's still not coming to the true appraised value of those trees, but it is certainly um, uh, laudatory. It's, it's, it's commendable start towards trying to get that one-for-one true diameter replacement. Thank you. Okay, I don't see any questions. So we'll move on to public comment. I see a few hands raised. Irma Lewis, please go ahead. You need to unmute yourself. 
Okay, good, good evening, commissioners. My name is Irma Lewis. I wanna start out by saying I support the construction of the new hospital and surrounding cabin structures. I also assume that all parties have the best of intentions and I'm a member of the UCSF Community Advisory Committee focused on land use. With that being said, I do think that Commissioner uh, J.R. Epler may have a conflict because for the past six years, he has been um, intimately involved as a member of the five-person leadership team for uh, a UCSF investment in dog patch um, as a mitigation for land use development. And it, it, they gave this team $4.2 million in 2017. Five years later, this week, they are discussing with UCSF whether this funding reverts back to UCSF as per the, con the um, contract, or if this small leadership team will be allowed to move forward with more pre-planning pre, pre funding, or if it's going to go back to the community for a process. So I just wanna, I don't wanna take more time than that, but it's $4.2 million of the $10 million investment from UCSF. I respectfully request that this appeal be approved or decided on a continuance UCSF to close the large gap between DPW and the community. Why? I love, I, my hands are red from clapping during your um, your questions. Vis-a-vis -vis the UCSF and applicant briefs, it's clear that UCSF um, DPW relied on representations and non-binding agreements from UCSF. The greening of the neighborhood was introduced to- Thank you, that's time. Okay, thank you. Your time's up. We will now hear from KEH. Please go ahead. You need to unmute yourself, K-E-H. Okay, hi, that's me, Kathy Howard. Um, I urge you to support the appeal and overturn the permit. The existing mature trees provide shelter from the winds that whip in off the ocean. Mature trees provide major environmental benefits. New trees, even if they survived, would not provide wind protection or environmental benefits for many years. The best medical care in the world is not going to make up for the continued destruction of our environment. I'd like to mention that the response to the appeal talks about Mount Sutro Open Space Reserve and states that UCSF is going to improve the health of the reserve. The implication is that this is something magnanimous that UCSF is doing and somehow it balances out the proposed tree removal. That is not the case. The Mount Sutro Open Space Reserve is UCSF's responsibility and they've made a commitment to protect it. Protecting trees that you are already supposed to protect does not give you the right to cut down other trees somewhere else. UCSF says they will plant new trees in the spring, but promises are easy to make. UCSF also promised years ago not to expand their facilities on Parnassus, which they have since reversed. So if you decide on tree removal, please require that large trees be planted immediately in the neighborhoods and as a condition for the construction going forward. UCSF should pay for it, a small expense compared to the overall cost of $4.3 billion, not a couple of billion for this. 30 seconds. The RFP can be reissued. But for planting for in the future, seriously, will you folks be around to enforce planting new trees? So I think the safest thing is to deny the permit and support this appeal. Thank you. 
Okay, thank you. We'll, we'll now hear from John Nolte. Please go ahead. Go ahead, please. John Nolte, you're muted. Hi, I had an audio to uh, present, a video. Okay, please go ahead. Oh. No, I have a video that I sent you. Right, and Alex told you that you could share it during Zoom. Right, but I don't see that I'm... Uh, okay, we can promote you to a panelist. Can he share as an attendee, okay. Alec? No. Okay. No, you have to promote him. I just promoted him. Okay. Mr. Nolte, you're now a panelist, so you can share your video. Please go ahead. We can't hear you. Mr. Nolte? Can you hear me? Yes. You can go okay, ahead. Okay, hold on. So, so I have to... You click on the button that says share screen. Share. Okay. Where did that go? Share screen. Would you would you like Alec to help you? Yeah, I, I sent him the video, so he right. I, last time he helped you, you weren't satisfied with how he helped you. That's why we told you to share the video yourself. Well, but but the, the, he's willing to help to try to help you again. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. So it's just going to be a moment. And a word to Irma Lewis, who sent a message. You only had two minutes to speak, so your time was up. Thank you. You preferred the audio off, correct? Yeah, you just leave the music off. Okay, hold on. Okay, go ahead. Okay, uh, these are the trees that are in question. Um, as you can see, they are mature trees. Uh, there's a couple of issues I have with what's going on here. We have multiple uh, postings onto the trees. This is against the uh, 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 code for uh, posting of trees. Um, these these postings should have gone down for uh, the code in 70 days. They didn't. This, these were put deliberately up with uh, DPW's postings to confuse the community. Um, as you can see, these um, are very, you know, mature trees and see how thick they are, how big they are. Um, and, and, and it shows um, also uh, where they're at currently at, uh, on the on the campus and within the, the right of way. Uh, UCSF has been a, supposed to have been a steward from for uh, uh, for for the for uh, Mount Sutro that was given to the city uh, given to um, 
this is state by uh, uh, Otto Sutro, who was the mayor of San Francisco. Uh, these, as you see some of these things that are here, you'll see, you'll see more white postings versus the DPW's postings. So that's countering DPW's postings because they were supposed to post every tree, not um, uh, the, uh, 30 seconds. You see a SAF. Lastly, you're going to see at the end here, uh, uh, currently UCSF is, is uh, not watering their trees, and this is what a sign saying that. Um, so you can see that, that, that they, uh, lastly here, you see uh, the location of, 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 of the project, and they have all this back in the back here that they can be using this, the site to access to, and you also have trees Thank right you. along time. here. Okay, thank you. Roz Arbel, you have two minutes. Please go ahead. Hi there. Uh, I just want to say that uh, being someone who just recently had surgery, life-saving surgery uh, through UCSF, I do respect the institution. However, I do have to say that the UC um, system has been notoriously horrible, uh, horrible defender of trees, especially in the Bay Area. UCSF has been carrying on this tradition. Uh, sorry, guys, I just have to say this, uh, slowly deforesting San Francisco, and now we're onto these particular trees. Um, I wanna think about uh, how these trees enhance the experience of students and especially patients at the medical center. Saplings cannot replace this experience and they cannot replace the work that these trees drew, which is cleaning the air and providing shelter for birds and bees, of course. And I know you've heard it again and it bears repeating that San Francisco has the worst urban canopy of any major US city. And, um, you know, listening <laughs> for quite a long time now, um, representatives from UCSF talking about their plans, it doesn't seem to be very concrete um, and, I, I'm just, I'm kind of baffled. <laughs> um, you know, this just seems to be one of those plain old environmentally insensitive tree removals. Uh, these trees are- 30 seconds. Yes, save the trees, that's all I gotta say. Please uphold the appeal, thank you. Thank you, we will now hear from Michael Nolte. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Michael Nolte. I'm a native San Franciscan, and I'm appalled at uh, seeing uh, more trees being removed in San Francisco. Uh, I'd like to uh, uh, deny the uh, permits and uh, uphold the appeal. Um, I also want to say that, uh, you know, um, uh, UCSF needs to be good stewards uh, to all the things they do in San Francisco. You know, I, I'm sure we need a, a new hospital, but it's being mandated on you. Uh, the trees uh, have no say in this. The trees uh, were, have been there for many years and uh, they need to be respected. Um, um, and if you are gonna end up having to remove them, uh, I would like to see the 354 trees uh, um, come, into our, come into the rest of our city because uh, that's, the, that's, the good, that's the right thing to do in St. Francis. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We will now hear from Mary Clip. Please go ahead. 
Um, for, the, for the record, I'm Josh's mom. Uh, and for the record, I uh, have a work history at UCSF for which I am extremely grateful to have been with such professionals um, and to uh, see face-to-face uh, face -face the kind of work that they do. That said, I have great admiration for UCSF. It has state-of-the-art medical care um, and is up to date on everything in terms of the medical industry and um, research and, and those kinds of matters. However, I think this is a but they are also a teaching hospital. And I think that this is a tremendously missed opportunity for teaching, teaching the integration of environment and medicine. And I think that appropriately thought about and, um, and talked about and discussed with people who really know the business, I think that this could be something that would, that could be uh, nationally, a national model for a medical center and how it perceives itself in its natural environment and how it cooperates with the city uh, in terms of raising, raising the bar on environmental concerns. That's what I have to say. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Is there any further public comment? I don't see any, so will we move on to rebuttal? Mr. Clip, you have three minutes. Um, yeah, I want to thank the members of the public who waited five and a half hours to speak for uh, two minutes. I also want to point out that in terms of where the lease canopy is, uh, Soma has about a 4%. After that, it's District 4, and then after that, it's basically the southeast parts of the city. And I didn't say that this process was sped up. What I said was that Public Works doesn't have the authority to let an applicant know that their desire to take down all these trees by the end of the year should be fine after this hearing that we're having tonight plays out. Regarding a compelling need to start, um, a year ago, Bart came before this board and said the same thing, and you continued that hearing uh, in order for us to have time to reach a better result. UCSF has had years on this project. They could have put out an RFP in September as they promised to do. And the fact that they don't even have a number, they don't have a scope of the RFP. They haven't put a deadline for planting in that RFP, I imagine, since they don't have one uh, tonight. So I don't see how anything gets done in a year. I know from experience that FUF can take at least a year putting together a planting, and that's even when it has the money. And then there's the question of who's going to be taking care of all of these trees and how's that going to, how's that, who has the capacity for that? Because Public Works doesn't and neither does FUF. Um, and all of these numbers here I'm showing you, these are all just screenshots from all the various numbers have been, that have been thrown out. And these matter because this is what the permit is conditioned on. This is what the permit is conditioned on. So if every square inch matters for this hospital, then the same should matter for these trees. <clears throat> just a moment. I'm trying to get this to forward. Um, you know, you've heard by my generous estimate, I was thinking that this was going to be two-inch diameter trees, but now we're talking about 15-gallon trees. Um, that's even smaller. And I don't doubt the best intentions of UCSF here, but the numbers don't lie. And these are UCSF's self-reported tree, tree removal and planting numbers. So once the job card is signed, that's it. There is no enforcement mechanism. So what we have here is a permit issued against what we've been told is department, departmental policy relying on a plan that is at best stated out loud at this hearing and premised on the best of intentions without any measurable standards or enforcement mechanisms, which on its face would seem to violate the code our climate action plan and our urban forest plan. So I would respectfully request 
uh, that this permit was uh, be uh, denied because it was issued in error. And alternatively, I would agree to a continuance to discuss um, a more favorable and mutual result. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We will now hear from UCSF. You have three minutes in rebuttal. Does someone from UCSF want to address Sorry, the board? I'm trying to for gather my thoughts. Okay. I, I don't know, Thank Charles, you. Charles, do you have anything that? Uh, yeah, I, I would just um, say say a few things here in response to some of the questions. Um, I and Christine can speak to this. I as to where the trees are replanted. Um, I have a. I believe that the the suggestion that they be replanted in the Parnassus area is, came from community meetings and, and long engagement with the community. Um, you know, I'll leave it to others to decide if that was the right place, but I believe it is the, a result of a long dialogue with the community. Um, just to clarify, uh, the, the construction schedule be for the hospital itself would be from 2023 to 2029, and as Mr. Buck said, the replacement trees on Parnassus would not be uh, replaced until the construction was completed. The maintenance, the three-year maintenance for those trees would commence once those trees are uh, replaced there. The other trees that would be planted in 2023, that maintenance uh, requirement would, would kick in uh, immediately at that time. So, Christine, I don't know if you can speak to the community process at all or yeah, that was a good summary. I mean, definitely we the how we got to here was based on community input. And so um, I appreciate hearing everyone else's input as well. I, I, like I said, I was sort of trying to take it all in. Um, we are, I, I'm concerned that people feel that we haven't been clear in our process. Uh, we've been throwing out a lot of numbers and that was not our intent to be unclear. We are committed to those 14 trees in front of our property. Um, I understand the, the concern that we may or may not be able to get that many. And the fact is, is we actually have every intention of getting more. We went conservative with the 14 because we feel 100% confident that that's the minimum we can do in front of the hospital. So if we can do more, we will absolutely do more. Again, it's, as Charles mentioned earlier, to build this hospital, it's unfortunate and we want to support the, um, the city's uh, desire for the street trees. But to do this hospital and the location and our, our seismic needs, it is a requirement to, to remove these trees. We're trying to figure out how to make that, that better <laughs> by doing trees in front of our property, but also by doing trees out in the community. Our understanding was it was a one-to-one -one requirement. And so we were intending to, to do better than that as proposing to, to do two-to-one. This was a precedent that was set at, um, uh, ZGSF, and so we were following that commitment, which we thought was appropriate. And uh, so I say one, one last thing on the the data provided by Mr. Clip: the trees that were removed from Mount Sutra were dead and dying trees. It's part of the overall plan, so it's it's misleading to suggest that UCSF has killed off those trees. Those trees were dead. Thank you. That's time. Okay. Thank you, Commissioner Epler. Has a question. Sure. Um, just some clarity on the community meetings that led to the focus on the Parnassus uh, Heights area for the replanting. Uh, where did those uh, community meetings take place and what was the scope of those community meetings? Well, we had 
kind of two processes for community meetings. One was just the overall plan, um, and that was an outreach to neighbors and um, through the CAG and other systems. So that was in 2018. We kicked off very specific tree removal and replacement community meetings. And again, that was done through our CGR group, through emails, um, listservs, websites, tried to get out the, the, the word as much as possible and invited everyone in the public to attend those meetings. We had a couple rounds of the meetings. We did surveys um, through emails. Does that answer your question? Um, yes. Would it be, let me ask a slightly different way. Would it be safe to say that most of that outreach was centered around the Parnassus Heights neighborhood? I think that's a fair assessment, knowing those are our neighbors and those are the most vocal, and those are the ones that come to all of our uh, community meetings. Okay. Would, would the university, if uh, it did plant more trees, consider planting it in different uh, parts of the city that have less uh, tree coverage? Again, I'm pausing. I hate to speak for the university. I am just that yeah, person I can, today. I, can, I, can I, would th I would think so. I personally would think so. Thank you. Thank you. We'll now hear from Buff. Anything further? Uh, good evening, Commissioners. Chris Buck with Public Works. Um, just pointing out that the 14 trees that were to be planted at, along the Parnassus frontage, that would be a very obvious place where a larger box size could be planted um, when the project is at completion. Um, but no, was just listening closely to all the feedback, and I appreciate everyone's time. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Commissioners, this matter submitted. Commissioners, may I start? Please. So um, I'd like the commissioner's feedback on what I heard um, versus maybe what you heard. Um, but what I heard, and I, I, I must admit that I have a little chip on the shoulder because I've been through this before, where, where large projects build beautiful buildings, place their priorities in bricks and mortar, infrastructure, and all the good things that will make a great project. Oh, and then there's the trees. And it's always trees as an afterthought. So I, I'm acknowledging my, my chip on my shoulder. So, um, and so what I heard <clears throat> was all the years of planning that, that have gone into uh, this beautiful hospital, which I look forward to, and I, you know, somebody in my family is going to use it, maybe even me. Uh, if I'm alive that long, um, but but again, the, the the priority here was to build a building, and again, the environment. Uh, it was stated in public comment. You know, there's a teaching hospital. They should teach the environment sensitivity, which is good for health, along with uh, building a beautiful uh, building. So that's number one. Number two, there's no plan. Uh, we heard a two for one replacement. Where are the trees going to go? Oh, we'll put them in the neighborhood somewhere, but there's no plan. And, 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 and so we're going to be subject to your, uh, a, a promise without a plan. And then we heard from Mr. Clip. I don't know if it's true. I probably should have asked it to, uh, to UCSF, but there is an RFP, but there is no, that RFP hasn't been made public. We don't know what the scope of it is. It's intended at, at, at not-for-profits because that's a good way to go in, as according to uh, testimony. But the RFP, it's still coming and it's not there. Yeah, it's coming, We're gonna, but there's no RFP that's presented to us tonight, again, with any plan, with any scope, with any nothing. Um, second, uh, I feel <clears throat> that 
uh, again, Mr. Buck, you made a, a, a great presentation last week. That could have been the nicest thing you did and the biggest mistake because, again, we're armed and dangerous. But, the, the, you know, when, when, you, when you sit in front of us and you, you say, hey, mature trees, they get, they get appraised differently. They're treated differently than uh, a small street tree. A mature tree, it's all about the, the size of the, the tree. And then um, one of the, the commissioners goes and does the math and sees, well, that, if you measure the girth and number of inches, well, that's several hundred trees that should be replacing these mature trees. And yet, two to one? Two to one? Uh, I don't consider that uh, a clear assessment of the value of these trees, and, and therefore I don't consider it a fair replacement. And, um, and, and then in testimony we hear from uh, the US, UCSF folks, well, that's the direction that we kind of got, so we went with it, and we knew about the one-to-one, -one, and we thought two-to-one would be pretty good, when in fact the full story was not disclosed, and that the rules are different with mature trees, and in fact, the, the fee is larger or the replacement tree count should be significantly more, so that's problematic for me. Uh, and, and then, you know, overall, uh, the negative environmental impact. We're down 20,000 trees. We're, we're, we're taking these beautiful, mature trees that contribute wonderful things to our environment, and they're gone, and our environment uh, suffers yet again. So I think that I, there are two choices here, that we either deny the appeal because is it because I think the the whole thing was improperly issued for uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, or that we come back as uh, Commissioner Trezina said and and review this later and give UCSF the opportunity and Buff the opportunity to have a conversation together and and step it up, create a plan, get to get display an RFP. Uh, scope, get a, a, a better, clearer, more fair uh, replacement uh, tree and compensation uh, commitment. And, um, and that still doesn't take care of the depletion of the environment, but it's a good way to go. I'll defer to uh, Commissioner Le oh, Tre Trezina. Thank you. Th thank you, President Swiggin. I, I appreciate everyone who testified tonight. I, I prefer the latter approach of giving UCSF some more time to come up with a plan and a proposal that addresses the legitimate questions that members of the public have and, my, and all, all of us have here uh, tonight, and, and as, as, as well as Mr. Clip. Uh, as I understand the testimony from UCSF, these trees have to come down in order for the hospital to be built. It's not a matter of, of redesigning the hospital, cutting it back a little bit. It's this is essential for this hospital to be built. We're talking about lives. We're talking 28 trees. We're talking about lives. We're talking about, we, 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 can, we can say all we want. Oh, we love UCS, UCSF. We're, this is a world-class institution at the forefront of Alzheimer's research, at the forefront of so many different things. If we limit their ability, that is affecting lives much greater than 28 trees. If the city is down 20,000 trees... That's not UCSF's fault. That's the city's fault. 20, 28 is less than one-tenth of one percent 
of our shortage of trees. So another 28 has needs to be taken in the context of the 20,000. But I'm I'm not I I believe that UCSF could bring back more information, more more attention to the issues that have been presented. Perhaps a different team to get get a more complete team of uh, of experts uh, before before us. And finally, just just on the point that they've talked about about well two for one, three for one, they can keep their commitment to the Parnassus community of the number of trees that have been committed to and add more trees, add more trees elsewhere. So it's not an either or. I don't want us to be in the position of, of UCSF going back to the community and saying, well, we wanted to do it, but Board of Appeals said no. That they can do more, they should do more, and, but I do want to give them, because of the seriousness and the, the, uh, of this institution, I want to give them an, another opportunity to support the tree canopy and, and, and hear us out and, and hear the members of the community. So I would... I would, after our colleagues have spoken, I would move to continue this uh, for a time that uh, the, you determined, President Swig, um, for them to address the, the concerns that they've heard tonight. I will start by saying I'm, I'm on board with the continuance idea. Um, I think it makes sense. Um, but I also want to say that um, if we're talking, you know, I, I, I completely agree with President Swig. I, I think, you know, the replacement isn't sufficient. Um, and then it's a question of, and, and I also agree with Commissioner Trasvenia that it doesn't really seem feasible to keep these specific trees, however unfortunate that may be. Um, the question then is how many replacement trees are we talking about? And... Um, Mr. Buck gave us the number of 354, and frankly, I don't think that's a stretch. I don't think it's that much of a stretch. And um, while I support the concept of continuing this so that UCSF uh, and, and Buff can have a conversation, um, I kind of want to plant the seed that we could, you know, this body has the power to... Um, you know, kind of make an, <laughs> an extreme ruling on this and make, you know, make the, make UCC, UCSF really contribute in a very big and meaningful way to, say, the southeast quadrant of the city uh, that has been identified as um, an area of tree need. I even thought of boundaries, but uh, I'll leave that for the next meeting that we continue it to, um, where Trees can be, you know, even if it's not the three, the full 354, uh, whatever number, either the um, the parties can come to an agreement on or that we decide uh, on our own accord on at the next meeting we hear about this, um, I think is within the realm of possibility and should be strongly considered by my fellow commissioners. Thank you, Mr. Epler. Um, I concur with my fellow commissioners. Thank you. Um, I would um, like to ask two parties whether they have um, uh, they have the will um, to make changes. Uh, the UCF. Who will speak for UCSF when I ask the question? Uh, have you heard the points of view of this commission, and are you willing to come back? Uh, with a uh, refined point of view and direction 
uh, according to uh, the, the comments that you have heard from us tonight. Who'd like to speak? Mr. Olson, are you the lead or, or who else? I, I can definitely say that we have heard the comments, uh, President, uh, and and I think um, well certainly um, the idea of a continuance, uh, you know, is something that uh, uh, is acceptable. I, I'll have to say I haven't spoken to my client about this, but I'll say based on the comments from from the four of you tonight that. Um, we would abide by a continuance and, and take uh, seriously the comments that we've heard tonight uh, with the idea of coming back to this board uh, with a proposal that uh, I think is, is more to the board's liking. But again, I'm speaking without my client. I don't know if Christine or anybody has any further guidance on this, but your comments have, have been uh, well taken and, and uh, thoughtful and I took notes. And of course, the option is that we take a vote tonight and we deny. Uh, excuse me, we uphold the appeal, and 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 the permit is is rejected. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. I understand that, President Swig, and and so a continuance sounds better than that. Okay, thank you, um, Mr. Buff. Are you? Uh, do you think that you could um, uh, parlay with UCSF? representatives and uh, go over the points made tonight and uh, in consideration not only of our points but what you heard in public comment and also from the appellant and uh, and and refine the direction of, of this opportunity. We do not want to hold up this hospital. We do not want, I'm speaking for the commission, I'm sure, we do not want to be the, the guys that were the bad guys who we would have this hospital ongoing, but if it weren't for Board of Appeals, we don't want to be those guys. But at the same time, I don't think we want to short the citizens of San Francisco for their health and the irony there, the oxymoron there, is hospital health, hospital development health. I mean, wait a moment. Aren't hospitals supposed to bring the community health? Well, in the spirit of bringing health, this is why I think we want a little bit more give on, uh, on this tree issue. So do you think you can work with UCSF to move us forward in that direction? Uh, for sure. Um, we are definitely committed to that, um, Mr. Swig, Commissioner Swig. Okay. Yep. Uh, Mr. Clip, are you available uh, for a, a further conversation on this to uh, get a little bit more? Well, last year I spent the holidays with BART. I guess this year I'll be spending the holidays with UCSF. I would be happy <laughs> to make myself available. But, but Mr. Clip, I think we did okay with BART, hopefully, if it, if it ever moves forward, of course. But we know that. <laughs> There are things that are, the construction is moving forward that that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I'd like to ask UCSF and Buff how much time they need. We have space on our January 4th calendar that might be ambitious, but we are busy. Um, we could put this on this is later, February 8th, February 22nd. Yeah, it's it's it, it don't I would recommend that you don't come back half baked. I would recommend that you hear that. One, you know, that we want to we want to see the RFP and we want to see the scope. I would recommend that you come back with a tree planting plan. I would recommend that you come back with the number of trees to be replaced uh, in, lieu, in in as a result of tearing out the trees or trees plus uh, cash to be dedicated towards tree replacement in other parts of the city. So, you know, that's ambitious. Uh, 
I think, between uh, December 15th and January 4th, given that there's Christmas, New Year's, and all those stuff involved. Um, but again, I, 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 I think I speak for the commission. We don't want to be the guys that held up UCSF hospital expansion. So your choice, guys. Um, what, what was the second date, February? February 8th. Yeah. So, uh, look, I, I, again, I, I, President Swig, I would prefer to, you know, touch base with my client if we could, if we could tentatively, and I agree with you, I don't think we should come back half-baked, we'll address the issues that you, the, the board has presented tonight, it doesn't make sense, uh, but I don't want to, I don't want to commit to the February date if my client's willing to work over the holidays and we, and we can do all of this, so if there's some way, uh, Director, if I could contact you tomorrow and either pick one of those two dates once I've had a chance to touch base with the client. Um, let me ask Mr. Clip: Is he available on this? Uh, is he available on in, on January fourth, or, uh, uh, or or I know he would prefer February eighth, but we have a sense of urgency related to this hospital as well, uh, and I want to underscore that. But uh, can can you be you don't really have to do anything uh, mr clip you just have to show up on the fourth so are you available on the fourth of january uh well it is my appeal so i guess i'm hoping i have some things to do between now and then uh, because if i hadn't brought this we wouldn't be having this conversation right <laughs> but uh yeah i mean i think what I, my concern I, I i get it about the construction and i'm not trying to force a delay at all um as my mom said, she's a retired UCSF social worker, so I have a lot of respect for that. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, given that you know we don't even have an RFP that's got responses yet, and the reasons given for that during this discussion were that basically everyone's out of the office. I'm not really sure how that's going to change um, between now and January 4th. If anything, it's going to get worse that the people who need to be involved in this conversation are not going to be available for that. So. Uh, I don't think January 4th is really a, a feasible date to come back with something other than a half-baked plan. At the same time, February 4th, I can understand why the university feels that that is too far out. I, I'm not sure what the answer is to that. But How about we schedule it for February? Um, sorry, I'm looking at February, February 8th. 8th. And if uh, Mr. Olson talks to his client and they think they can get together a plan by January 4th, then we can just reschedule to January 4th. You said you're available. Um, and I'm sure Mr. Olson doesn't want to come back with a half-baked plan on January 4th. So, But maybe they're willing to work. So yeah. does that sound good? Yeah, I think, I, I think that's fine. We, um, I will, I will you know, touch base with a client uh, tomorrow and you know, explain exactly what the board is looking for. I think I understood what President Swig is looking for, members of the board, and uh, if we uh, will hold the hold February eighth, and if we can realistically make it January fourth, I will let you know that tomorrow. Okay, great. But let's. So we need a motion to continue this to Jan to uh, February eighth. Mr. Trezvino, will you make that motion, please? Uh, thank you, President Swig. Move to continue uh, this matter to February the eighth. And so, and with the, oh, okay, I'm sorry, with the proviso that uh, the president can 
schedule okay. it on the fourth. And also, so for the purpose, um, so that UCSF but, can develop a replacement plan for, for, for the for, for the purpose of uh, UCSF, uh, DPW, and the um, appellant can collaborate on a on further discussions and a, and a enhanced replacement plan. Okay. So on that motion, Commissioner Lemberg? Aye. Commissioner Epler? Aye. President Swig? Aye. So that motion carries four to zero. And Mr. Olson, please let me know tomorrow or Friday. I, I, I will. Okay, great. Thank Everybody, you. Everybody, thank you very much for right, sticking around till 11 o'clock. And uh, have a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, etc. cetera. And uh, oh, I wish thank you all you. the best. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you very much. Bye, John. Oh, Bye. really quick. Uh, Jose Lopez is